Chapter 12 The Patronus Harry knew that Hermione had meant well, but that didn't stop him from being angry with her. He had been the owner of the best broom in the world for a few short hours, and now, because of her interference, he didn't know whether he would ever see it again. He was positive that there was nothing wrong with the firebolt now, but what sort of state would it be in once it had been subjected to all sorts of anti-jinx tests? Ron was furious with Hermione, too. As far as he was concerned, the stripping down of a brand-new firebolt was nothing less than criminal damage. Hermione, who remained convinced that she had acted for the best, started avoiding the common room. Harry and Ron supposed she had taken refuge in the library and didn't try to persuade her to come back. All in all, they were glad when the rest of the school returned shortly after New Year and Gryffindor Tower became crowded and noisy again. Wood sought Harry out on the night before term started. Had a good Christmas, he said, and then without waiting for an answer, he sat down, lowered his voice and said, I've been doing some thinking over Christmas, Harry. After last match, you know, if the Dementors come to the next one, I mean, we can't afford you to, well... Wood broke off, looking awkward. I'm working on it, said Harry quickly. Professor Looping said he'd train me to ward off the Dementors. We should be starting this week. He said he'd have time after Christmas. Ah, said Wood, his expression clearing. Well, in that case, I really didn't want to lose you as seeker, Harry. And have you ordered a new broom yet? No, said Harry. What? You'd better get a move on. You know, you can't ride that shooting star against Ravenclaw. He got a firebolt for Christmas said Ron. A firebolt? No, seriously? A, f a real firebolt? Don't get excited, Oliver, said Harry gloomily. I haven't got it anymore. It was confiscated. And he explained all about how the firebolt was now being checked for jinxes. Jinxed? How could it be jinxed? Sirius Black, Harry said wearily. He's supposed to be after me, so McGonagall reckons he might have sent it. Waving aside the information that a famous murderer was after his seeker, Wood said, But Black couldn't have bought a firebolt. He's on the run. The whole country's on the lookout for him. How could he just walk into quality Quidditch supplies and buy a broomstick? I know, said Harry, but McGonagall still wants to strip it down. Wood went pale. I'll go and talk to her, Harry, he promised. I'll make her see reason. A firebolt, a real firebolt on our team. She wants Gryffindor to win as much as we do. I'll make us his sense. A firebolt. Classes started again the next day. The last thing anyone felt like doing was spending two hours on the grounds on a raw January morning, but Hagrid had provided a bonfire full of salamanders for their enjoyment, and they spent an unusually good lesson collecting dry wood and leaves to keep the fire blazing while the flame-loving lizards scampered up and down the crumbling white-hot logs. The first divination lesson of the new term was much less fun. Professor Trelawney was now teaching them palmistry, and she lost no time in informing Harry that he had the shortest lifeline she had ever seen. It was defense against the dark arts that Harry was keen to get to. After his conversation with Wood, he wanted to get started on his anti-dementor lessons as soon as possible. Ah, yes said Lupin, when Harry reminded him of his promise at the end of class. Let me see. 
How about eight o'clock on Thursday evening? The history of magic classroom should be large enough. I'll have to think carefully about how we're going to do this. We can't bring a real Dementor into the castle to practice on. Still looks ill, doesn't he? said Ron as they walked down the corridor, heading to dinner. What do you reckon's the matter with him? There was a loud and impatient t from behind them. It was Hermione who had been sitting at the feet of a suit of armour, repacking her bag which was so full of books it wouldn't close. And what are you tutting at us for? said Ron irritably. Nothing, said Hermione in a lofty voice, heaving her bag back over her shoulder. Yes, you were, said Ron. I said I wonder what's wrong with Lupin, and you— Well, isn't it obvious, said Hermione, with a look of maddening superiority. If you don't want to tell us, don't. "'snapped Ron. "'Fine,' said Hermione haughtily, and she marched off. "'She doesn't know,' said Ron, staring resentfully after Hermione. "'She's just trying to get us to talk to her again.' "'At eight o'clock on Thursday evening, "'Harry left Gryffindor Tower for the History of Magic classroom. "'It was dark and empty when he arrived, "'but he lit the lamps with his wand "'and had waited only five minutes when Professor Lupin turned up, "'carrying a large packing case.' which he heaved onto Professor Bin's desk. "'What's that?' said Harry. "'Another boggart,' said Lupin, stripping off his cloak. "'I've been combing the castle ever since Tuesday, "'and very luckily I've found this one lurking inside Mr. Filch's filing cabinet. "'It's the nearest we'll get to a real Dementor. "'The boggart will turn into a Dementor when he sees you, "'so we'll be able to practice on him.' I can store him in my office when we're not using him. There's a cupboard under my desk he'll like. Okay, said Harry, trying to sound as though he wasn't apprehensive at all, and merely glad that Lupin had found such a good substitute for a real Dementor. So, Professor Lupin had taken out his own wand and indicated that Harry should do the same. The spell I'm going to try to teach you is highly advanced magic, Harry, well beyond ordinary wizarding level. It is called the Patronus Charm. How does it work? said Harry nervously. Well, when it works correctly, it conjures up a Patronus, said Lupin, which is a kind of anti-dementor, a guardian that acts as a shield between you and the dementor. Harry had a sudden vision of himself crouching behind a Hagrid-sized figure holding a large club. Professor Lupin continued, The Patronus is a kind of positive force, a projection of the very things that the Dementor feeds upon, hope, happiness, the desire to survive. But it cannot feel despair, as real humans can, so the Dementors can't hurt it. But I must warn you, Harry, that the charm might be too advanced for you. Many qualified wizards have difficulty with it. What does a, a Patronus look like? said Harry curiously. Each one is unique to the wizard who conjures it. And how do you conjure it? With an incantation, which will work only if you are concentrating with all your might on a single very happy memory. Harry cast his mind about for a happy memory. Certainly nothing that had happened to him at the Dursleys was going to do. Finally, he settled on the moment when he had first ridden a broomstick. Right, he said, trying to recall as exactly as possible the wonderful, soaring sensation of his stomach. The incantation is this. Lupin cleared his throat. Expecto Patronum. Expecto Patronum. 
Harry repeated under his breath. Expecto Patronum. Concentrating hard on your happy memory? Oh, yeah, said Harry, quickly forcing his thoughts back to that first broom ride. Expecto Patrono. No, Patronum. Sorry. Expecto Patronum. Expecto Patronum. Something whooshed suddenly out of the end of his wand. It looked like a wisp of silvery gas. Did you see that? said Harry excitedly. Something happened. Very good, said Lupin, smiling. Right, then. Ready to try it on a Dementor? Yes, Harry said, gripping his wand very tightly and moving into the middle of the deserted classroom. He tried to keep his mind on flying, but something else kept intruding. Any second now he might hear his mother again, but he shouldn't think that, or he would hear her again, and he didn't want to. Or did he? Lupin grasped the lid of the packing case and pulled. A Dementor rose slowly from the box, its hooded face turned toward Harry, one glistening, scabbed hand gripping its cloak. The lamps around the classroom flickered and went out. The Dementor stepped from the box and started to sweep silently toward Harry, drawing a deep, rattling breath. A wave of piercing cold broke over him. Expecto Patronum! Harry yelled, Expecto! Patronum! Expecto! But the classroom and the Dementor were dissolving. Harry was falling again through thick white fog, and his mother's voice was louder than ever, echoing inside his head. Not Harry! Not Harry! Please, I'll do anything! Stand aside! Stand aside, girl! Harry? Harry jerked back to life. He was lying flat on his back on the floor. The classroom lamps were alight again. He didn't have to ask what had happened. Sorry, he muttered, sitting up and feeling cold sweat trickling down behind his glasses. Are you all right? said Lupin. Yes. Harry pulled himself up on one of the desks and leaned against it. Here, Lupin handed him a chocolate frog. Eat this before we try again. I didn't expect you to do it your first time. In fact, I would have been astounded if you had. It's getting worse, Harry muttered, biting off the frog's head. I could hear her louder that time, and him, Voldemort. Lupin looked paler than usual. Harry, if you don't want to continue, I will more than understand. I do, said Harry fiercely, stuffing the rest of the chocolate frog into his mouth. I've got to. What if the Dementors turn up at our match against Ravenclaw? I can't afford to fall off again. If we lose this game, we've lost the Quidditch Cup. All right, then, said Lupin. You might want to select another memory, a happy memory, I mean, to concentrate on. That one doesn't seem to have been strong enough. Harry thought hard and decided his feelings when Gryffindor had won the house championship last year had definitely qualified as very happy. He gripped his wand tightly again and took up his position in the middle of the classroom. Ready? said Lupin, gripping the box lid. Ready? said Harry, trying hard to fill his head with happy thoughts about Gryffindor winning, and not dark thoughts about what was going to happen when the box opened. Go, said Lupin, pulling off the lid. The room went icily cold and dark once more. The Dementor glided forward, drawing its breath. One rotting hand was extending toward Harry. Expecto Patronum, Harry yelled. Expecto Patronum! Expecto Pat... 
White fog obscured his senses. Big blurred shapes were moving around him. Then came a new voice, a man's voice, shouting, panicking. Lily, take Harry and go. It's him. Go, run. I'll hold him off. The sounds of someone stumbling from a room, a door bursting open, a cackle of high-pitched laughter. Harry? Harry? Wake up. Lupin was tapping Harry hard on the face. This time it was a minute before Harry understood why he was lying on a dusty classroom floor. I heard my dad, Harry mumbled. That's the first time I've ever heard him. He tried to take on Voldemort himself to give my mum time to run for it. Harry suddenly realized that there were tears on his face mingling with the sweat. He bent his face as low as possible, wiping them off on his robes, pretending to do up his shoelace so that Lupin wouldn't see. You heard, James, said Lupin in a strange voice. Yeah. Face dry, Harry looked up. Why, you didn't know my dad, did you? I, I did, as a matter of fact, said Lupin. We were friends at Hogwarts. Listen, Harry... Perhaps we should leave it here for tonight. This charm is ridiculously advanced. I shouldn't have suggested putting you through this. No, said Harry. He got up again. I'll have one more go. I'm not thinking of happy enough things. That's what it is. Hang on. He racked his brains. A really, really happy memory. One that he could turn into a good, strong Patronus. The moment when he'd first found out he was a wizard and would be leaving the Dursleys for Hogwarts... If that wasn't a happy memory, he didn't know what was. Concentrating very hard on how he had felt when he'd realized he'd be leaving Privet Drive, Harry got to his feet and faced the packing case once more. Ready? said Lupin, who looked as though he were doing this against his better judgment. Concentrating hard? All right. Go. He pulled off the lid of the case for the third time, and the Dementor rose out of it. The room fell cold and dark. Expecto Patronum, Harry bellowed. Expecto Patronum, Expecto Patronum. The screaming inside Harry's head had started again, except this time it sounded as though it were coming from a badly tuned radio. Softer and louder and softer again, and he could still see the Dementor. It had halted. And then a huge silver shadow came bursting out of the end of Harry's wand to hover between him and the Dementor. And though Harry's legs felt like water, he was still on his feet, though for how much longer he wasn't sure. Ridiculous! roared Lupin, springing forward. There was a loud crack, and Harry's cloudy Patronus vanished along with the Dementor. He sank into a chair, feeling as exhausted as if he'd just run a mile, and felt his legs shaking. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Professor Looping forcing the bugart back into the packing case with his wand. It had turned into a silvery orb again. Excellent, Lupin said, striding over to where Harry sat. Excellent, Harry. That was definitely a start. Can we have another go, just one more go? Not now, said Lupin firmly. You've had enough for one night. Here. He handed Harry a large bar of Honey Duke's best chocolate. Eat the lot, or Madame Pomfrey will be after my blood. Same time next week. Okay, said Harry. He took a bite of the chocolate and watched Lupin extinguishing the lamps that had rekindled with the disappearance of the Dementor. A thought had just occurred to him. Professor Lupin, 
he said. If you knew my dad, you must have known Sirius Black as well. Lupin turned very quickly. What gives you that idea? he said sharply. Nothing. I mean, I just knew they were friends at Hogwarts, too. Lupin's face relaxed. Yes, I knew him, he said shortly. Or I thought I did. You'd better be off, Harry. It's getting late. Harry left the classroom, walking along the corridor and around a corner, then took a detour behind a suit of armor and sank down on its plinth to finish his chocolate, wishing he hadn't mentioned black, as Lupin was obviously not keen on the subject. Then Harry's thoughts wandered back to his mother and father. He felt drained and strangely empty, even though he was so full of chocolate— Terrible though it was to hear his parents' last moments replayed inside his head, these were the only times Harry had heard their voices since he was a very small child. But he'd never be able to produce a proper Patronus if he half wanted to hear his parents again. They're dead, he told himself sternly. They're dead, and listening to echoes of them won't bring them back. You'd better get a grip on yourself if you want that Quidditch cup. He stood up, crammed the last bit of chocolate into his mouth, and headed back to Gryffindor Tower. Ravenclaw played Slytherin a week after the start of term. Slytherin won, though narrowly. According to Wood, this was good news for Gryffindor, who would take second place if they beat Ravenclaw too. He therefore increased the number of team practices to five a week. This meant that with Lupin's anti-dementor classes, which in themselves were more draining than six Quidditch practices, Harry had just one night a week to do all his homework. Even so, he wasn't showing the strain nearly as much as Hermione, whose immense workload finally seemed to be getting to her. Every night without fail, Hermione was to be seen in a corner of the common room, several tables spread with books, arithmancy charts, rune dictionaries, diagrams of muggles lifting heavy objects, and file upon file of extensive notes. She barely spoke to anybody, and snapped when she was interrupted. "'How's she doing it?' Ron muttered to Harry one evening, as Harry sat finishing a nasty essay on undetectable poisons for Snape. Harry looked up. Hermione was barely visible behind a tottering pile of books. Doing what? Getting to all her classes, Ron said. I heard her talking to Professor Vector, that arithmancy witch, this morning. They were going on about yesterday's lesson. But Hermione can't have been there, because she was with us in Care of Magical Creatures. And Ernie Macmillan told me she's never missed a Muggle Studies class, but half of them are at the same time as divination, and she's never missed one of them either. Harry didn't have time to fathom the mystery of Hermione's impossible schedule at the moment. He really needed to get on with Snape's essay. Two seconds later, however, he was interrupted again, this time by Wood. Bad news, Harry. I've just been to see Professor McGonagall about the firebolt. She, uh, got a bit shirty with me, told me I'd got my priorities wrong. Seemed to think I cared more about winning the cup than I do about you staying alive. Just because I told her I didn't care if it threw you off as long as you caught the snitch first. Wood shook his head in disbelief. Honestly, the way she was yelling at me, you'd think I'd said something terrible. Then I asked her how much longer she was going to keep it. He screwed up his face and imitated Professor McGonagall's severe voice. As long as necessary, Wood. 
I reckon it's time you ordered a new broom, Harry. There's an order form at the back of which broomstick. You could get a Nimbus 2001, like Malfoy's got. I'm not buying anything Malfoy thinks is good, said Harry flatly. January faded imperceptibly into February, with no change in the bitterly cold weather. The match against Ravenclaw was drawing nearer and nearer, but Harry still hadn't ordered a new broom. He was now asking Professor McGonagall for news of the firebolt after every transfiguration lesson. Ron standing hopefully at his shoulder, Hermione rushing past with her face averted. No, Potter, you can't have it back yet, Professor McGonagall told him the twelfth time this happened, before he'd even opened his mouth. We've checked for most of the usual curses, but Professor Flitwick believes the broom might be carrying a hurling hex. I shall tell you once we've finished checking it. Now please, stop badgering me. To make matters even worse, Harry's anti-dementor lessons were not going nearly as well as he had hoped. Several sessions on, he was able to produce an indistinct silvery shadow every time the Bogart Dementor approached him, but his Patronus was too feeble to drive the Dementor away. All it did was hover like a semi-transparent cloud, draining Harry of energy as he fought to keep it there. Harry felt angry with himself guilty about his secret desire to hear his parents' voices again. "'You're expecting too much of yourself,' said Professor Lupin sternly in their fourth week of practice. "'For a thirteen-year-old wizard, even an indistinct Patronus is a huge achievement. You aren't passing out anymore, are you?' "'I thought a Patronus would charge the Dementors down or something,' said Harry dispiritedly. "'Make them disappear.' The true Patronus does do that, said Lupin, but you've achieved a great deal in a very short space of time. If the Dementors put in an appearance at your next Quidditch match, you will be able to keep them at bay long enough to get back to the ground. You said it's harder if there are loads of them, said Harry. I have complete confidence in you, said Lupin, smiling. Here, you've earned a drink, something from the three broomsticks. You won't have tried it before. He pulled two bottles out of his briefcase. Butter beer, said Harry without thinking. Yeah, I like that stuff. Lupin raised an eyebrow. Oh, Ron and Hermione bought me some back from Hogsmeade. Harry lied quickly. I see, said Lupin, though he still looked slightly suspicious. Well, let's drink to a Gryffindor victory against Ravenclaw. Not that I'm supposed to take sides as a teacher, he added hastily. They drank the butterbeer in silence until Harry voiced something he'd been wondering for a while. What's under a Dementor's hood? Professor Lupin lowered his bottle thoughtfully. Hmm. Well, the only people who really know are in no condition to tell us. You see, the Dementor lowers its hood only to use its last and worst weapon. What's that? They call it the Dementor's Kiss said Lupin, with a slightly twisted smile. It's what Dementors do to those they wish to destroy utterly. I suppose there must be some kind of mouth under there, because they clamp their jaws upon the mouth of the victim and... and suck out his soul. Harry accidentally spat out a bit of butterbeer. What? They kill? 
Oh, no, said Lupin, much worse than that. You can exist without your soul, you know, as long as your brain and heart are still working. But you'll have no sense of self any more, no memory, no anything. There's no chance at all of recovery. You'll just exist as an empty shell, and your soul is gone forever, lost. Lupin drank a little more butter beer, then said, It's the fate that awaits Sirius Black. It was in the Daily Prophet this morning. The Ministry have given the Dementors permission to perform it if they find him. Harry sat stunned for a moment at the idea of someone having their soul sucked out through their mouth. But then he thought of Black. He deserves it, he said suddenly. You think so? said Lupin lightly. Do you really think anyone deserves that? Yes, said Harry defiantly, for, for some things. He would have liked to have told Lupin about the conversation he'd overheard about Black in the Three Broomsticks, about Black betraying his mother and father, but it would have involved revealing that he'd gone to Hogsmeade without permission, and he knew Lupin wouldn't be very impressed by that. So he finished his butterbeer, thanked Lupin, and left the history of magic classroom. Harry half-wished that he hadn't asked what was under a Dementor's hood. The answer had been so horrible, and he was so lost in unpleasant thoughts of what it would feel like to have your soul sucked out of you that he walked headlong into Professor McGonagall halfway up the stairs. Do watch where you're going, Potter. Sorry, Professor. I've been looking for you in the Gryffindor common room. Well, here it is. We've done everything we could think of, and there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with it at all. You've got a very good friend somewhere, Potter. Harry's jaw dropped. She was holding out his firebolt, and it looked as magnificent as ever. I can have it back, Harry said weakly. Seriously? Seriously, said Professor McGonagall, and she was actually smiling. I dare say you, you need to get the feel of it before Saturday's match, won't you? And Potter, do try and win, won't you? Or we'll be out of the running for the eighth year in a row, as Professor Sneep was kind enough to remind me only last night. Speechless, Harry carried the firebolt back upstairs toward Gryffindor Tower. As he turned a corner, he saw Ron dashing toward him, grinning from ear to ear. She gave it to you! Excellent! Listen, can I still have a go on it, tomorrow? Yeah! Anything, said Harry, his heart lighter than it had been in a month. You know what? We should make up with her, Marnie. She was only trying to help. Yeah, all right, said Ron. She's in the common room now, working for a change. They turned into the corridor to Gryffindor Tower and saw Neville Longbottom pleading with Sir Cadogan, who seemed to be refusing him entrance. I wrote them down, Neville was saying tearfully, but I must have dropped them somewhere. A likely tale, roared Sir Cadogan, then spotting Harry and Ron. Good evening, my fine young yeoman. Come clap this loon in irons. He's trying to force entry into the chambers within. Oh, shut up said Ron as he and Harry drew level with Neville. I've lost the passwords, Neville told them miserably. I made him tell me what passwords he was going to use this week because he keeps changing them, and now I don't know what I've done with them. Odds bodikins, said Harry to Sir Cadogan, who looked extremely disappointed and reluctantly swung forward to let them into the common room. There was a sudden excited murmur as every head turned, and the next moment Harry was surrounded by people exclaiming over his firebolt. 
Where'd you get it, Harry? Will you let me have a go? Have you ridden it yet, Harry? Ravenclaw will have no chance. They're all on clean sweep sevens. Can I just hold it, Harry? After ten minutes or so, during which the firebolt was passed around and admired from every angle, the crowd dispersed, and Harry and Ron had a clear view of Hermione, the only person who hadn't rushed over to them, bent over her work, and carefully avoiding their eyes. Harry and Ron approached her table, and at last she looked up. I got it back, said Harry, grinning at her and holding up the firebolt. You see, Hermione, there wasn't anything wrong with it, said Ron. Well, there might have been, said Hermione. I mean, at least you know now that it's safe. Yeah, I suppose so, said Harry. I'd better put it upstairs. I'll take it, said Ron eagerly. I've got to give Scabbers his rat tonic. He took the firebolt and, holding it as if it were made of glass, carried it away up the boy's staircase. Can I sit down then? Harry asked Hermione. I suppose so said Hermione, moving a great stack of parchment off a chair. Harry looked around at the cluttered table, at the long arithmancy essay on which the ink was still glistening, at the even longer Muggle Studies essay, Explain Why Muggles Need Electricity, and at the rune translation Hermione was now poring over. How are you getting through all this stuff? Harry asked her. Oh, well, you know, working hard, said Hermione. Close up, Harry saw that she looked almost as tired as Lupin. Why don't you just drop a couple of subjects, Harry asked, watching her lifting books as she searched for her ruined dictionary. I couldn't do that, said Hermione, looking scandalized. Arithmancy looks terrible, said Harry, picking up a very complicated-looking number chart. Oh, no, it's wonderful, said Hermione earnestly. It's my favorite subject. It's... But exactly what was wonderful about arithmancy, Harry never found out. At that precise moment, a strangled yell echoed down the boy's staircase. The whole common room fell silent, staring, petrified at the entrance. Then came hurried footsteps, growing louder and louder, and then Ron came leaping into view, dragging with him a bedsheet. Look! he bellowed, striding over to Hermione's table. Look! he yelled, shaking the sheets in her face. Ron, what? Scabbers! Look! Scabbers! Hermione was leaning away from Ron, looking utterly bewildered. Harry looked down at the sheet Ron was holding. There was something red on it, something that looked horribly like... Blood! Ron yelled into the stunned silence. He's gone! And you know what was on the floor? N no said Hermione in a trembling voice. Ron threw something down onto Hermione's rune translation. Hermione and Harry leaned forward. Lying on top of the weird, spiky shapes were several long ginger cat hairs. Chapter 13 Gryffindor vs. Ravenclaw It looked like the end of Ron and Hermione's friendship. Each was so angry with the other that Harry couldn't see how they'd ever make up. Ron was enraged that Hermione had never taken Crookshank's attempts to eat Scabbers seriously, hadn't bothered to keep a close enough watch on him, and was still trying to pretend that Crookshank's was innocent by suggesting that Ron look for Scabbers under all the boys' beds. Hermione, meanwhile, maintained fiercely that Ron had no proof that Crookshanks had eaten scabbers, that the ginger hares might have been there since Christmas, and that Ron had been prejudiced against her cat ever since Crookshanks had landed on Ron's head in the magical menagerie. 
Personally, Harry was sure that Crookshanks had eaten scabbers, and when he tried to point out to Hermione that the evidence all pointed that way, she lost her temper with Harry, too. Okay, side with Ron. I knew you would, she said shrilly. First the firebolt, now scabbers. Everything's my fault, isn't it? Just leave me alone, Harry. I've got a lot of work to do. Ron had taken the loss of his rat very hard indeed. Come on, Ron. You were always saying how boring scabbers was said Fred bracingly, and he's been off colour for ages. He was wasting away. It was probably better for him to snuff it quickly. One swallow. He probably didn't feel a thing. Fred, said Ginny indignantly. All he did was eat and sleep, Ron. You said it yourself, said George. He bit Goyle for us once, Ron said miserably. Remember, Harry? Yeah, that's true, said Harry. His finest hour said Fred, unable to keep a straight face. Let the scar on Goyle's finger stand as a lasting tribute to his memory. Oh, come on, Ron. Get yourself down to Hogsmeade and buy a new rat. What's the point of moaning? In a last-ditch attempt to cheer Ron up, Harry persuaded him to come along to the Gryffindor team's final practice before the Ravenclaw match, so that he could have a ride on the Firebolt after they'd finished. This did seem to take Ron's mind off scabbers for a moment. Great! Can I try and shoot a few goals on it? So they set off for the Quidditch field together. Madame Hooch, who was still overseeing Gryffindor practices to keep an eye on Harry, was just as impressed with the firebolt as everyone else had been. She took it in her hands before takeoff and gave them the benefit of her professional opinion. Look at the balance on it! If the Nimbus series has a fault, it's a slight list to the tail end. You often find them develop a drag after a few years. They've updated the handle, too. A bit slimmer than the clean sweeps. Reminds me of the old silver arrows. A pity they've stopped making them. I learned to fly on one, and a very fine old broom it was, too. She continued in this vein for some time, until Wood said, Uh, Madam Hooch! Is it okay if Harry has the firebolt back? We need to practice. Ooh, right. Here you are then, Potter, said Madam Hooch. I'll sit over here with Weasley. She and Ron left the field to sit in the stadium, and the Gryffindor team gathered around Wood for his final instructions for tomorrow's match. Harry, I've just found out who Ravenclaw is playing as Seeker. It's Cho Chang. She's a fourth year, and she's pretty good. I really hope she wouldn't be fit. She's had some problems with injuries. Wood scowled his displeasure that Cho Chang had made a full recovery, then said, On the other hand, she rides a Comet 260, which is going to look like a joke next to the firebolt. He gave Harry's broom a look of fervent admiration, then said, OK, everyone, let's go. And at long last, Harry mounted his firebolt and kicked off from the ground. It was better than he'd ever dreamed. The firebolt turned with the lightest touch. It seemed to obey his thoughts rather than his grip. It sped across the field at such speed that the stadium turned into a green and grey blur. Harry turned it so sharply that Alicia Spinett screamed. Then he went into a perfectly controlled dive, brushing the grassy field with his toes before rising thirty, forty, fifty feet into the air again. Harry, I'm letting the snitch out, Wood called. Harry turned and raced a bludger toward the goalposts. He outstripped it easily, saw the snitch dart out from behind Wood, and within ten seconds had caught it tightly in his hand. The team cheered madly. 
Harry let the snitch go again, gave it a minute's head start, then tore after it, weaving in and out of the others. He spotted it lurking near Katie Bell's knee, looped her easily, and caught it again. It was the best practice ever. The team, inspired by the presence of the firebolt in their midst, performed their best moves faultlessly, and by the time they hit the ground again, Wood didn't have a single criticism to make, which, as George Weasley pointed out, was a first. I can't see what's going to stop us tomorrow, said Wood. Not unless, Harry, you've sorted out your Dementor problem, haven't you? Yeah, said Harry, thinking of his feeble Patronus and wishing it was stronger. The Dementors won't turn up again, Oliver. Dumbledore would go ballistic, said Fred confidently. Well, let's hope not, said Wood. Anyway, good work, everyone. Let's get back to the tower. Turn in early. I'm staying out for a bit. Ron wants a go on the firebolt, Harry told Wood. And while the rest of the team headed off to the locker rooms, Harry strode over to Ron, who vaulted the barrier to the stands and came to meet him. Madam Hooch had fallen asleep in her seat. Here you go, said Harry, handing Ron the firebolt. Ron, an expression of ecstasy on his face, mounted the broom and zoomed off into the gathering darkness while Harry walked around the edge of the field, watching him. Night had fallen before Madam Hooch awoke with a start, told Harry and Ron off for not waking her, and insisted that they go back to the castle. Harry shouldered the firebolt, and he and Ron walked out of the shadowy stadium, discussing the firebolt's superbly smooth action, its phenomenal acceleration, and its pinpoint turning. They were halfway toward the castle, when Harry, glancing to his left, saw something that made his heart turn over. A pair of eyes gleaming out of the darkness. Harry stopped dead, his heart banging against his ribs. What's the matter? said Ron. Harry pointed. Ron pulled out his wand and muttered, Lumus! A beam of light fell across the grass, hit the bottom of a tree, and illuminated its branches. There, crouching among the budding leaves, was Crookshanks. Get out of here! Ron roared, and he stooped down and seized a stone lying on the grass, but before he could do anything else, Crookshanks had vanished with one swish of his long ginger tail. See? Ron said furiously, chucking the stone down again. She's still letting him wander about wherever he wants, probably washing down scabbers with a couple of birds now. Harry didn't say anything. He took a deep breath as relief seeped through him. He had been sure for a moment that those eyes had belonged to the grim. They set off for the castle once more. Slightly ashamed of his moment of panic, Harry didn't say anything to Ron, nor did he look left or right until they had reached the well-lit entrance hall. Harry went down to breakfast the next morning with the rest of the boys in his dormitory, all of whom seemed to think the firebolt deserved a sort of guard of honour. As Harry entered the great hall, heads turned in the direction of the firebolt, and there was a good deal of excited muttering. Harry saw, with enormous satisfaction, that the Slytherin team were all looking thunderstruck. "'Did you see his face?' said Ron gleefully, looking back at Malfoy. "'He can't believe it! This is brilliant!' Wood, too, was basking in the reflected glory of the firebolt. "'Put it here, Harry!' he said, laying the broom in the middle of the table and carefully turning it so that its name faced upward. People from the Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff tables were soon coming over to look. 
Cedric Diggory came over to congratulate Harry on having acquired such a superb replacement for his Nimbus, and Percy's Ravenclaw girlfriend, Penelope Clearwater, asked if she could actually hold the firebolt. Now, now, Penny, no sabotage, said Percy heartily as she examined the firebolt closely. Penelope and I have got a bet on, he told the team. Ten galleons on the outcome of the match. Penelope put the firebolt down again, thanked Harry, and went back to her table. Harry, make sure you win, said Percy in an urgent whisper. I haven't got ten galleons. Yes, I'm coming, Penny. And he bustled off to join her in a piece of toast. Sure you can manage that broom, Potter, said a cold, drawling voice. Draco Malfoy had arrived for a closer look, Crab and Goyle right behind him. Yeah, reckon so, said Harry casually. Got plenty of special features, hasn't it? said Malfoy, eyes glittering maliciously. Shame it doesn't come with a parachute, in case you get too near a Dementor. Crab and Goyle sniggered. Pity you can't attach an extra arm to yours, Malfoy, said Harry. Then it could catch the snitch for you. The Gryffindor team laughed loudly. Malfoy's pale eyes narrowed and he stalked away. They watched him rejoin the rest of the Slytherin team, who put their heads together, no doubt asking Malfoy whether Harry's broom really was a firebolt. At a quarter to eleven, the Gryffindor team set off for the locker rooms. The weather couldn't have been more different from their match against Hufflepuff. It was a clear, cool day with a very light breeze. There would be no visibility problems this time, and Harry, though nervous, was starting to feel the excitement only a Quidditch match could bring. They could hear the rest of the school moving into the stadium beyond. Harry took off his black school robes, removed his wand from his pocket, and stuck it inside the T-shirt he was going to wear under his Quidditch robes. He only hoped he wouldn't need it. He wondered suddenly whether Professor Lupin was in the crowd watching. "'You know what we've got to do,' said Wood as they prepared to leave the locker rooms. "'If we lose this match—' We're out of the running. Just, just fly like you did in practice yesterday, and we'll be okay. They walked out onto the field to tumultuous applause. The Ravenclaw team, dressed in blue, were already standing in the middle of the field. Their seeker, Cho Chang, was the only girl on their team. She was shorter than Harry by about a head, and Harry couldn't help noticing, nervous as he was, that she was extremely pretty. She smiled at Harry as the teams faced each other behind their captains, and he felt a slight lurch in the region of his stomach that he didn't think had anything to do with nerves. "'Wood, Davis, shake hands!' Madam Hooch said briskly, and Wood shook hands with the Ravenclaw captain. "'Mount your brooms! On my whistle! Three, two, one!' Harry kicked off into the air, and the firebolt zoomed higher and faster than any other broom. He soared around the stadium and began squinting around for the snitch, listening all the while to the commentary, which was being provided by the Weasley twins' friend, Lee Jordan. They're off, and the big excitement this match is the firebolt that Harry Potter is flying for Gryffindor. According to which broomstick, the firebolt's going to be the broom of choice for the national teams at this year's World Championship. Jordan, would you mind telling us what's going on in the match? interrupted Professor McGonagall's voice. Right you are, Professor. Just giving a bit of background information. The firebolt, incidentally, has a built-in auto-brake and... Jordan! Okay, okay. 
Gryffindor in possession. Katie Boyle of Gryffindor heading for goal. Harry streaked past Katie in the opposite direction, gazing around for a glint of gold and noticing that Cho Chang was tailing him closely. She was undoubtedly a very good flyer. She kept cutting across him, forcing him to change direction. Show her your acceleration, Harry! Fred yelled as he whooshed past in pursuit of a bludger that was aiming for Alicia. Harry urged the firebolt forward as they rounded the Ravenclaw goalposts and Cho fell behind. Just as Katie succeeded in scoring the first goal of the match and the Gryffindor end of the field went wild, he saw it. The snitch was close to the ground, flitting near one of the barriers. Harry dived. Cho saw what he was doing and tore after him. Harry was speeding up, excitement flooding him. Dives were his speciality. He was ten feet away. Then a bludger, hit by one of the Ravenclaw beaters, came pelting out of nowhere. Harry veered off course, avoiding it by an inch, and in those few crucial seconds the snitch had vanished. There was a great ooh of disappointment from the Gryffindor supporters, but much applause for their beater from the Ravenclaw end. George Weasley vented his feelings by hitting the second bludger directly at the offending beater, who was forced to roll right over in midair to avoid it. Gryffindor leads by eighty points to zero, and look at that firebolt go. Potter's really putting it through its paces now. See it turn. Chang's Comet is just no match for it. The firebolt's precision balance is really noticeable in these long... Jordan, are you being paid to advertise firebolts? Get on with the commentary. Ravenclaw was pulling back. They had now scored three goals, which put Gryffindor only fifty points ahead. If Cho got the snitch before him, Ravenclaw would win. Harry dropped lower, narrowly avoiding a Ravenclaw chaser, scanning the field frantically. A glint of gold, a flutter of tiny wings. The snitch was circling the Gryffindor goalpost. Harry accelerated, eyes fixed on the speck of gold ahead. But just then, Cho appeared out of thin air, blocking him. Harry, this is no time to be a gentleman! Wood roared as Harry swerved to avoid a collision. Knock her off her broom if you have to! Harry turned and caught sight of Cho. She was grinning. The snitch had vanished again. Harry turned his firebolt upward and was soon twenty feet above the game. Out of the corner of his eye he saw Cho following him. She decided to mark him rather than search for the snitch herself. All right, then. If she wanted to tail him, she'd have to take the consequences. He dived again, and Cho, thinking he'd seen the snitch, tried to follow. Harry pulled out of the dive very sharply. She hurtled downward. He rose fast as a bullet once more, and then saw it for the third time. The snitch was glittering way above the field at the Ravenclaw end. He accelerated. So, many feet below, did Cho. He was winning, gaining on the snitch with every second. Then, oh, screamed Cho, pointing. Distracted, Harry looked down. Three Dementors, three tall, black-hooded Dementors, were looking up at him. He didn't stop to think. Plunging a hand down the neck of his robes, he whipped out his wand and roared, Expecto Patronum! Something silver-white, something enormous, erupted from the end of his wand. He knew it had shot directly at the Dementors, but didn't pause to watch. His mind still miraculously clear, he looked ahead. He was nearly there. He stretched out the hand, still grasping his wand, and just managed to close his fingers over the small, struggling snitch. Madame Hooch's whistle sounded. 
Harry turned around in midair and saw six scarlet blurs bearing down on him. Next moment, the whole team was hugging him so hard he was nearly pulled off his broom. Down below, he could hear the roars of the Gryffindors in the crowd. That's my boy! Wood kept yelling. Alicia, Angelina, and Katie had all kissed Harry. Fred had him in a grip so tight, Harry felt as though his head would come off. In complete disarray, the team managed to make its way back to the ground. Harry got off his broom and looked up to see a gaggle of Gryffindor supporters sprinting onto the field, Ron in the lead. Before he knew it, he had been engulfed by the cheering crowd. Yes! Ron yelled, yanking Harry's arm into the air. Yes! Yes! Well done, Harry! said Percy, looking delighted. Ten galleons to me! Must find Penelope! Excuse me! Good for you, Harry! roared Seamus Finnegan. Ruddy brilliant! boomed Hagrid over the heads of the milling Gryffindors. That was quite some Patronus, said a voice in Harry's ear. Harry turned around to see Professor Lupin, who looked both shaken and pleased. The Dementors didn't affect me at all! Harry said excitedly. I didn't feel a thing. That would be because they, uh, weren't Dementors, said Professor Lupin. Come and see. He led Harry out of the crowd until they were able to see the edge of the field. You gave Mr. Malfoy quite a fright, said Lupin. Harry stared. Lying in a crumpled heap on the ground were Malfoy, Crabbe, Goyle, and Marcus Flint, the Slytherin team captain, all struggling to remove themselves from long, black, hooded robes. It looked as though Malfoy had been standing on Goyle's shoulders. Standing over them with an expression of the utmost fury on her face was Professor McGonagall. An unworthy trick! She was shouting, A low and cowardly attempt to sabotage the Gryffindor Seeker. Detention for all of you and fifty points from Slytherin. I shall be speaking to Professor Dumbledore about this. Make no mistake. Ah, here he comes now. If anything could have set the seal on Gryffindor's victory, it was this. Ron, who had fought his way through to Harry's side, doubled up with laughter as they watched Malfoy fighting to extricate himself from the robe, Goyle's head still stuck inside it. Come on, Harry, said George, fighting his way over. Party! Gryffindor Common Room, now! Right, said Harry, and feeling happier than he had in ages, he and the rest of the team led the way, still in their scarlet robes, out of the stadium and back up to the castle. It felt as though they had already won the Quidditch Cup. The party went on all day and well into the night. Fred and George Weasley disappeared for a couple of hours and returned with armfuls of bottles of butterbeer, pumpkin fizz, and several bags full of Honeyduke's sweets. How did you do that? squealed Angelina Johnson as George started throwing peppermint toads into the crowd. With a little help from Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, Fred muttered in Harry's ear. Only one person wasn't joining in the festivities. Hermione, incredibly, was sitting in a corner, attempting to read an enormous book entitled Home Life and Social Habits of British Muggles. Harry broke away from the table where Fred and George had started juggling butterbeer bottles and went over to her. Did you even come to the match? he asked her. Of course I did, 
said Hermione in a strangely high-pitched voice, not looking up. And I'm very glad we won, and I think you did really well, but I need to read this by Monday. Come on, Hermione, come and have some food, Harry said, looking over at Ron and wondering whether he was in a good enough mood to bury the hatchet. I can't, Harry, I've still got 422 pages to read, said Hermione, now sounding slightly hysterical. Anyway... She glanced over at Ron, too. He doesn't want me to join in. There was no arguing with this, as Ron chose that moment to say loudly, If Scabbers hadn't just been eaten, he could have had some of these fudged flies. He used to really like them. Hermione burst into tears. Before Harry could say or do anything, she tucked the enormous book under her arm and, still sobbing, ran toward the staircase to the girls' dormitories and out of sight. "'Can't you give her a break?' Harry asked Ron quietly. "'No,' said Ron flatly. "'If she just acted like she was sorry, but she'll never admit she's wrong, Hermione. "'She's still acting like Scabbers has gone on vacation or something.' "'The Gryffindor party ended only when Professor McGonagall turned up in her tartan dressing gown and hairnet "'at one in the morning to insist that they all go to bed.' Harry and Ron climbed the stairs to their dormitory, still discussing the match. At last, exhausted, Harry climbed into bed, twitched the hangings of his four-poster shut to block out a ray of moonlight, lay back, and felt himself almost instantly drifting off to sleep. He had a very strange dream. He was walking through a forest, his firebolt over his shoulder, following something silvery-white— it was winding its way through the trees ahead, and he could only catch glimpses of it between the leaves. Anxious to catch up with it, he sped up, but as he moved faster, so did his quarry. Harry broke into a run, and ahead he heard hooves gathering speed. Now he was running flat out, and ahead he could hear galloping. Then he turned a corner into a clearing, and— Harry woke up suddenly as though he'd been hit in the face. Disoriented in the total darkness, he fumbled with his hangings. He could hear movements around him and Seamus Finnegan's voice from the other side of the room. What's going on? Harry thought he heard the dormitory door slam. At last, finding the divide in his curtains, he ripped them back, and at the same moment, Dean Thomas lit his lamp. Ron was sitting up in bed, the hangings torn from one side, a look of utmost terror on his face. Black? Serious black? With a knife? What? Here! Just now! Slashed the curtains! Woke me up! You sure you weren't dreaming, Ron? said Dean. Look at the curtains! I tell you, he was here! They all scrambled out of bed. Harry reached the dormitory door first, and they sprinted back down the staircase. Doors opened behind them, and sleepy voices called after them. Who shouted? What are you doing? The common room was lit with the glow of the dying fire, still littered with the debris from the party. It was deserted. Are you sure you weren't dreaming, Ron? I'm telling you, I saw him. What's all the noise? Professor McGonagall told us to go to bed. A few of the girls had come down their staircase, pulling on dressing gowns and yawning. Boys, too, were reappearing. Excellent! Are we carrying on? said Fred Weasley brightly. Everyone back upstairs, said Percy, hurrying into the common room and pinning his head boy badge to his pyjamas as he spoke. Pass! Sirius back! 
said Ron faintly. In our dormitory, with a knife, woke me up. The common room went very still. Nonsense, said Percy, looking startled. You had too much to eat, Ron. Had a nightmare. I'm telling you. Now, really, enough's enough. Professor McGonagall was back. She slammed the portrait behind her as she entered the common room and stared furiously around. I am delighted the Gryffindor won the match, but this is getting ridiculous, Percy. I expected better of you. I certainly didn't authorize this, Professor, said Percy, puffing himself up indignantly. I was just telling them all to get back to bed. My brother Ron here had a nightmare. It wasn't a nightmare. Ron yelled. Professor, I woke up and Sirius Black was standing over me, holding a knife. Professor McGonagall stared at him. Don't be ridiculous, Weasley. How could he possibly have gotten through the portrait hole? Ask him, said Ron, pointing a shaking finger at the back of Sir Cadogan's picture. Ask him if he saw... Glaring suspiciously at Ron, Professor McGonagall pushed the portrait back open and went outside. The whole common room listened with bated breath. Sucker Duggan, did you just let a man enter Gryffindor Tower? Suddenly, good lady, cried Sucker Duggan. There was a stunned silence both inside and outside the common room. You, you did, said Professor McGonagall. But, but the password. He had them, said Sucker Duggan proudly. The whole weeks, my lady, read them off a little piece of paper. Professor McGonagall pulled herself back through the portrait hole to face the stunned crowd. She was white as chalk. Which person? She said, her voice shaking. Which abysmally foolish person wrote down this week's passwords and left them lying around? There was utter silence broken by the smallest of terrified squeaks. Neville Longbottom, trembling from head to fluffy-slippered toes, raised his hand slowly into the air. Chapter 14 Snape's Grudge No one in Gryffindor Tower slept that night. They knew that the castle was being searched again, and the whole house stayed awake in the common room, waiting to hear whether Black had been caught. Professor McGonagall came back at dawn to tell them that he had again escaped. Throughout the day, everywhere they went, they saw signs of tighter security. Professor Flitwick could be seen teaching the front doors to recognize a large picture of Sirius Black. Filch was suddenly bustling up and down the corridors, boarding up everything from tiny cracks in the walls to mouse holes. Sir Cadogan had been fired. His portrait had been taken back to its lonely landing on the seventh floor, and the fat lady was back. She had been expertly restored, but was still extremely nervous, and had agreed to return to her job only on condition that she was given extra protection. A bunch of surly security trolls had been hired to guard her. They paced the corridor in a menacing group, talking in grunts and comparing the size of their clubs. Harry couldn't help noticing that the statue of the one-eyed witch on the third floor remained unguarded and unblocked. It seemed that Fred and George had been right in thinking that they, and now Harry, Ron, and Hermione, were the only ones who knew about the hidden passageway within it. "'Do you reckon we should tell someone?' Harry asked Ron. "'We know he's not coming in through Honeydukes,' 
said Ron dismissively. We'd have heard if the shop had been broken into. Harry was glad Ron took this view. If the one-eyed witch was boarded up too, he would never be able to go into Hogsmeade again. Ron had become an instant celebrity. For the first time in his life, people were paying more attention to him than to Harry, and it was clear that Ron was rather enjoying the experience. Though still severely shaken by the night's events, he was happy to tell anyone who asked what had happened with a wealth of detail. I was asleep, and I heard this ripping noise, and I thought it was in my dream, you know, but then there was this draft. I woke up, and one side of the hangings on my bed had been pulled down. I rolled over, and I saw him standing over me, like a skeleton, with loads of filthy hair, holding this great long knife, must have been twelve inches, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and then I yelled, and he scampered. Why, though, Ron added to Harry as the group of second-year girls who had been listening to his chilling tale departed, why did he run? Harry had been wondering the same thing. Why had Black, having got the wrong bed, not silenced Ron and proceeded to Harry? Black had proved twelve years ago that he didn't mind murdering innocent people, and this time he had been facing five unarmed boys, four of whom were asleep. He must have known he'd have a job getting back out of the castle once you'd yelled and woken people up, said Harry thoughtfully. He'd have had to kill the whole house to get back through the portrait hole. Then he would have met the teachers. Neville was in total disgrace. Professor McGonagall was so furious with him she had banned him from all future Hogsmeade visits, given him a detention, and forbidden anyone to give him the password into the tower. Poor Neville was forced to wait outside the common room every night for somebody to let him in, while the security trolls leered unpleasantly at him. None of these punishments, however, came close to matching the one his grandmother had in store for him. Two days after Black's break-in, she sent Neville the very worst thing a Hogwarts student could receive over breakfast, a howler. The school owls swooped into the great hall, carrying the mail as usual, and Neville choked as a huge barn owl landed in front of him, a scarlet envelope clutched in its beak. Harry and Ron, who were sitting opposite him, recognized the letter as a howler at once. Ron had got one from his mother the year before. Run for it, Neville, Ron advised. Neville didn't need telling twice. He seized the envelope and, holding it before him like a bomb, sprinted out of the hall while the Slytherin table exploded with laughter at the sight of him. They heard the howler go off in the entrance hall, Neville's grandmother's voice magically magnified to a hundred times its usual volume, shrieking about how he had brought shame on the whole family. Harry was too busy feeling sorry for Neville to notice immediately that he had a letter, too. Hedwig got his attention by nipping him sharply on the wrist. Ouch! Oh! Thanks, Hedwig! Harry tore open the envelope, while Hedwig helped herself to some of Neville's cornflakes. The note inside said, Dear Harry and Ron, How about having tea with me this afternoon, round six? I'll come and collect you from the castle. Wait for me in the entrance hall. You're not allowed out on your own. Cheers, Hagrid. He probably wants to hear all about Black, said Ron. So at six o'clock that afternoon, Harry and Ron left Gryffindor Tower, passed the security trolls at a run, and headed down to the entrance hall.
Hagrid was already waiting for them. All right, Hagrid, said Ron. Suppose you want to hear about Saturday night, do you? I've already heard all about it, said Hagrid, opening the front doors and leading them outside. Oh, said Ron, looking slightly put out. The first thing they saw on entering Hagrid's cabin was Buckbeak, who was stretched out on top of Hagrid's patchwork quilt, his enormous wings folded tight to his body, enjoying a large plate of dead ferrets. Averting his eyes from this unpleasant sight, Harry saw a gigantic hairy brown suit and a very horrible yellow and orange tie hanging from the top of Hagrid's wardrobe door. "'What are they for, Hagrid?' said Harry. Buckbeat's case against the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures, said Hagrid. This Friday, him and me'll be going down to London together. I've booked two beds on the night bus. Harry felt a nasty pang of guilt. He had completely forgotten that Buckbeat's trial was so near, and judging by the uneasy look on Ron's face, he had too. They had also forgotten their promise about helping him prepare Buckbeak's defence. The arrival of the firebolt had driven it clean out of their minds. Hagrid poured them tea and offered them a plate of bath buns, but they knew better than to accept. They had had too much experience with Hagrid's cooking. "'I got something to discuss with you two, said Hagrid, sitting himself between them and looking uncharacteristically serious. "'What?' said Harry. "'Hermione!' said Hagrid. What about her? said Ron. She's in a right state, that's what. She's been coming down to visit me a lot since Christmas, been feeling lonely. First you weren't talking to her because of the firebolt, now you're not talking to her because her cat ate scabbers, Ron interjected angrily. Because her cat acted like all cats do, Hagrid continued doggedly. She's cried a fair few times, you know, going through a rough time at the moment, bitten off more than cheating chew, if you ask me. All the work she's trying to do. Still found time to help me with Buckbeak's case, mind. She's found some really good stuff for me. Reckon he'll stand a good chance now. Hagrid, we should have helped as well. Sorry, Harry began awkwardly. I'm not blaming you said Hagrid, waving Harry's apology aside. Gold knows you've had enough to be getting on with. I've seen you practice in Quidditch every hour of the day and night, but I gotta tell you, I thought you two would value your friend more than broomsticks or rats. That's all. Harry and Ron exchanged uncomfortable looks. Really upset she was when Black nearly stabbed you, Ron. She's got her heart in the right place, Hermione has. And you two not talking to her? If she'd just get rid of that cat, I'd speak to her again, Ron said angrily. But she's still sticking up for it. It's a maniac, and she won't hear a word against it. Ah, well, people can be a bit stupid about their pets, said Hagrid wisely. Behind him, Buckbeat spat a few ferret bones onto Hagrid's pillow. They spent the rest of their visit discussing Gryffindor's improved chances for the Quidditch Cup. At nine o'clock, Hagrid walked them back up to the castle. A large group of people was bunched around the bulletin board when they returned to the common room. Hogsmeade, next weekend, said Ron, craning over the heads to read the new notice. What do you reckon? He added quietly to Harry as they went to sit down. 
Well, Filch hasn't done anything about the passage into Honeydukes, Harry said even more quietly. Harry, said a voice in his right ear. Harry started and looked around at Hermione, who was sitting at the table right behind them and clearing a space in the wall of books that had been hiding her. Harry, if you go into Hogsmeade again, I'll tell Professor McGonagall about that map, said Hermione. Can you hear someone talking, Harry? growled Ron, not looking at Hermione. Ron, how can you let him go with you after what Sirius Black nearly did to you? I mean it. I'll tell. So now you're trying to get Harry expelled, said Ron furiously. Haven't you done enough damage this year? Hermione opened her mouth to respond, but with a soft hiss, Crookshanks leapt onto her lap. Hermione took one frightened look at the expression on Ron's face, gathered up Crookshanks, and hurried away toward the girls' dormitories. So, how about it? Ron said to Harry as though there had been no interruption. Come on, last time we went you didn't see anything. You haven't even been inside Zonko's yet. Harry looked around to check that Hermione was well out of earshot. Okay, he said, but I'm taking the invisibility cloak this time. On Saturday morning, Harry packed his invisibility cloak in his bag, slipped the marauder's map into his pocket, and went down to breakfast with everyone else. Hermione kept shooting suspicious looks down the table at him, but he avoided her eye and was careful to let her see him walking back up the marble staircase in the entrance hall as everybody else proceeded to the front doors. Bye, Harry called to Ron. See you when you get back. Ron grinned and winked. Harry hurried up to the third floor, slipping the marauder's map out of his pocket as he went. Crouching behind the one-eyed witch, he smoothed it out. A tiny dot was moving in his direction. Harry squinted at it. The minuscule writing next to it read, Neville Longbottom. Harry quickly pulled out his wand, muttered, Descendium, and shoved his bag into the statue. But before he could climb in himself, Neville came round the corner. Harry! I forgot you weren't going to Hogsmeade either. I never won't, said Harry, moving swiftly away from the statue and pushing the map back into his pocket. What are you up to? Nothing, shrugged Neville. Want a game of exploding snap? Uh, not now. I was going to go to the library and do that vampire essay for Lupin. I'll come with you, said Neville brightly. I haven't done it either. Uh, hang on. Yeah, I forgot. I finished it last night. Great. You can help me, said Neville, his round face anxious. I don't understand that thing about the garlic at all. Do they have to eat it, or... He broke off with a small gasp, looking over Harry's shoulder. It was Snape. Neville took a quick step behind Harry. And what are you two doing here, said Snape, coming to a halt and looking from one to the other. An odd place to meet. To Harry's immense disquiet, Snape's black eyes flicked to the doorways on either side of them, and then to the one-eyed witch. "'We're not meeting here,' Harry said. "'We just met here.' "'Indeed,' said Snape. "'You have a habit of turning up in unexpected places, Potter, and you are very rarely there for no good reason. I suggest the pair of you return to Gryffindor Tower, where you belong.' Harry and Neville set off without another word. As they turned the corner, Harry looked back. Snape was running one of his hands over the one-eyed witch's head, 
examining it closely. Harry managed to shake Neville off at the fat lady by telling him the password, then pretending he'd left his vampire essay in the library and doubling back. Once out of sight of the security trolls, he pulled out the map again and held it close to his nose. The third-floor corridor seemed to be deserted. Harry scanned the map carefully and saw with a leap of relief that the tiny dot labeled Severus Snape was now back in its office. He sprinted back to the one-eyed witch, opened her hump, heaved himself inside, and slid down to meet his bag at the bottom of the stone chute. He wiped the marauder's map blank again, then set off at a run. Harry, completely hidden beneath the invisibility cloak, emerged into the sunlight outside Honeyduke's and prodded Ron in the back. It's me, he muttered. What kept you? Ron hissed. Snape was hanging around. They set off up the high street. Where are you? Ron kept muttering out of the corner of his mouth. Are you still there? This feels weird. They went to the post office. Ron pretended to be checking the price of an owl to Bill in Egypt so that Harry could have a good look around. The owls sat hooting softly down at him, at least three hundred of them, from great greys right down to tiny little scops owls, local deliveries only, which were so small they could have sat in the palm of Harry's hand. Then they visited Zonko's, which was so packed with students Harry had to exercise great care not to tread on anyone and cause a panic. There were jokes and tricks to fulfill even Fred's and George's wildest dreams. Harry gave Ron whispered orders and passed him some gold from under the cloak. They left Zonko's with their money bags considerably lighter than they had been on entering, but their pockets bulging with dung bombs, hiccup sweets, frog spawn soap, and a nose-biting teacup apiece. The day was fine and breezy, and neither of them felt like staying indoors, so they walked past the three broomsticks and climbed a slope to visit the Shrieking Shack, the most haunted dwelling in Britain. It stood a little way above the rest of the village, and even in daylight was slightly creepy, with its boarded windows and dank, overgrown garden. Even the Hogwarts ghosts avoid it, said Ron, as they leaned on the fence, looking up at it. I asked nearly Headless Nick. He says he's heard a very rough crowd lives here. No one can get in. Fred and George tried, obviously, but all the entrances are sealed shut. Harry, feeling hot from their climb, was just considering taking off the cloak for a few minutes when they heard voices nearby. Someone was climbing toward the house from the other side of the hill. Moments later, Malfoy had appeared, followed closely by Crab and Goyle. Malfoy was speaking. Should have an owl from father any time now. He had to go to the hearing to tell them about my arm, about how I couldn't use it for three months. Crab and Goyle sniggered. I really wish I could hear that great hairy moron trying to defend himself. There's no arm in him, honest. That hippogriff's as good as dead. Malfoy suddenly caught sight of Ron, his pale face split in a malevolent grin. What are you doing, Weasley? Malfoy looked up at the crumbling house behind Ron. Suppose you'd love to live here, wouldn't you, Weasley? Dreaming about having your own bedroom? I heard your family all sleep in one room. Is that true? Harry seized the back of Ron's robes to stop him from leaping on Malfoy.
Leave him to me, he hissed in Ron's ear. The opportunity was too perfect to miss. Harry crept silently around behind Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, bent down and scooped a large handful of mud out of the path. We were just discussing your friend Hagrid, Malfoy said to Ron, just trying to imagine what he's saying to the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures. Do you think he'll cry when they cut off his hippogriffs? Splat! Malfoy's head jerked forward as the mud hit him. His silver-blonde hair was suddenly dripping in muck. What the— Ron had to hold onto the fence to keep himself standing. He was laughing so hard. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle spun stupidly on the spot, staring wildly around, Malfoy trying to wipe his hair clean. What was that? Who did that? Very haunted up here, isn't it? said Ron, with the air of one commenting on the weather. Crab and Goyle were looking scared. Their bulging muscles were no use against ghosts. Malfoy was staring madly around at the deserted landscape. Harry sneaked along the path where a particularly sloppy puddle yielded some foul-smelling green sludge. Splatter! Crab and Goyle caught some this time. Goyle hopped furiously on the spot, trying to rub it out of his small, dull eyes. It came from over there, said Malfoy, wiping his face and staring at a spot some six feet to the left of Harry. Crab blundered forward, his long arms outstretched like a zombie. Harry dodged around him, picked up a stick, and lobbed it at Crab's back. Harry doubled up with silent laughter as Crab did a kind of pirouette in midair, trying to see who had thrown it. As Ron was the only person Crab could see, it was Ron he started to ward. But Harry stuck out his leg, Crab stumbled, and his huge flat foot caught the hem of Harry's cloak. Harry felt a great tug. Then the cloak slid off his face. For a split second, Malfoy stared at him. Ah! he yelled, pointing at Harry's head. Then he turned tail and ran at breakneck speed back down the hill, Crab and Goyle behind him. Harry tugged the cloak up again, but the damage was done. Harry, Ron said, stumbling forward and staring hopelessly at the point where Harry had disappeared. You'd better run for it. If Malfoy tells anyone, you'd better get back to the castle, quick. See you later, said Harry, and without another word, he tore back down the path toward Hogsmeade. Would Malfoy believe what he had seen? Would anyone believe Malfoy? Nobody knew about the invisibility cloak. Nobody except Dumbledore. Harry's stomach turned over. Dumbledore would know exactly what had happened if Malfoy said anything. Back into Honeydukes, back down the cellar steps, across the stone floor, through the trap door. Harry pulled off the cloak, tucked it under his arm, and ran flat out along the passage. Malfoy would get back first. How long would it take him to find a teacher? Panting, a sharp pain in his side, Harry didn't slow down until he reached the stone slide. He would have to leave the cloak where it was. It was too much of a giveaway in case Malfoy had tipped off a teacher. He hid it in a shadowy corner, then started to climb fast as he could, his sweaty hands slipping on the sides of the chute. He reached the inside of the witch's hump, tapped it with his wand, stuck his head through, and hoisted himself out. The hump closed, and just as Harry jumped out from behind the statue, he heard quick footsteps approaching. It was Snape. He approached Harry at a swift walk, his black robe swishing, then stopped in front of him. So, he 
he said. There was a look of suppressed triumph about him. How he tried to look innocent, all too aware of his sweaty face and his muddy hands, which he quickly hid in his pockets. Come with me, Potter, said Snape. Harry followed him downstairs, trying to wipe his hands clean on the inside of his robes without Snape noticing. They walked down the stairs to the dungeons and then into Snape's office. Harry had been in here only once before, and he had been in very serious trouble then, too. Snape had acquired a few more slimy, horrible things in jars since last time, all standing on shelves behind his desk, glinting in the firelight and adding to the threatening atmosphere. Sit, said Snape. Harry sat. Snape, however, remained standing. Mr. Malfoy has just been to see me with a strange story, Potter, said Snape. Harry didn't say anything. He tells me that he was up by the Shrieking Shack when he ran into Weasley, apparently alone. Still Harry didn't speak. Mr. Malfoy states that he was standing talking to Weasley when a large amount of mud hit him in the back of the head. How do you think that could have happened? Harry tried to look mildly surprised. I don't know, Professor. Snape's eyes were boring into Harry's. It was exactly like trying to stare down a hippogriff. Harry tried hard not to blink. Mr. Malfoy then saw an extraordinary apparition. Can you imagine what it might have been, Potter? No, said Harry, now trying to sound innocently curious. It was your head, Potter, floating in midair. There was a long silence. Maybe he'd better go to Madame Pomfrey, said Harry, if he's seeing things like, What would your head have been doing in Hogsmeade, Potter? said Snape softly. Your head is not allowed in Hogsmeade. No part of your body has permission to be in Hogsmeade. I know that, said Harry, striving to keep his face free of guilt or fear. It sounds like Malfoy's having hallucin... Malfoy is not having hallucinations, snarled Snape, and he bent down, a hand on each arm of Harry's chair, so that their faces were a foot apart. If your head was in Hogsmeade, so was the rest of you. I'd been up in Gryffindor Tower, said Harry, like you told. Can anyone confirm that? Harry didn't say anything. Snape's thin mouth curled into a horrible smile. So, he said, straightening up again, everyone from the Minister of Magic downward has been trying to keep famous Harry Potter safe from Sirius Black. But famous Harry Potter is a law unto himself. Let the ordinary people worry about his safety. Famous Harry Potter goes where he wants to, with no thought for the consequences. Harry stayed silent. Snape was trying to provoke him into telling the truth. He wasn't going to do it. Snape had no proof. Yet. How extraordinarily like your father you are, Potter, Snape said suddenly, his eyes glinting. He too was exceedingly arrogant. 
A small amount of talent on the Quidditch field made him think he was a cut above the rest of us, too, strutting around the place with his friends and admirers. The resemblance between you is uncanny. My dad didn't strut, said Harry, before he could stop himself. And neither do I. Your father didn't set much store by rules, either. Snape went on, pressing his advantage, his thin face full of malice. Rules were for lesser mortals, not Quidditch Cup winners. His head was so swollen. Shut up! Harry was suddenly on his feet. Rage such as he had not felt since his last night in Privet Drive was coursing through him. He didn't care that Snape's face had gone rigid, the black eyes flashing dangerously. What did you say to me, Potter? I told you to shut up about my dad, Harry yelled. I know the truth, all right. He saved your life. Dumbledore told me you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for my dad. Snape's sallow skin had gone the color of sour milk. And did the headmaster tell you the circumstances in which your father saved my life? He whispered. Or did he consider the details too unpleasant for precious Potter's delicate ears? Harry bit his lip. He didn't know what had happened and didn't want to admit it, but Snape seemed to have guessed the truth. I would hate for you to run away with the false idea of your father, Potter, he said, a terrible grin twisting his face. Have you been imagining some act of glorious heroism? Then let me correct you. Your saintly father and his friends played a highly amusing joke on me that would have resulted in my death if your father hadn't got cold feet at the last moment. There was nothing brave about what he did. He was saving his own skin as much as mine. Had their joke succeeded, he would have been expelled from Hogwarts. Snape's uneven yellowish teeth were bared. Turn out your pockets, Potter, he spat suddenly. Harry didn't move. There was a pounding in his ears. Turn out your pockets, or we go straight to the headmaster. Pull them out, Potter. Cold with dread, Harry slowly pulled out the bag of Zonko's tricks and the marauder's map. Snape picked up the Zonko's bag. Ron gave them to me said Harry, praying he'd get a chance to tip Ron off before Snape saw him. He brought them back from Hogsmeade last time. Indeed, and you've been carrying them around ever since. How very touching. And what is this? Snape had picked up the map. Harry tried with all his might to keep his face impassive. Spare bit of parchment, he said with a shrug. Snape turned it over, his eyes on Harry. Surely you don't need such a very old piece of parchment, he said. Why don't I just throw this away? His hand moved toward the fire. No, Harry said quickly. So, said Snape, his long nostrils quivering. Is this another treasured gift from Mr. Weasley, or is it something else? A letter, perhaps written in invisible ink, or instructions to get into Hogsmeade without passing the Dementors? Harry blinked. Snape's eyes gleamed. 
Let me see. Let me see, he muttered, taking out his wand and smoothing the map out on his desk. Reveal your secret, he said, touching the wand to the parchment. Nothing happened. Harry clenched his hands to stop them from shaking. Show yourself, Snape said, tapping the map sharply. It stayed blank. Harry was taking deep, calming breaths. Professor Severus Snape, master of this school, commands you to yield the information you conceal, Snape said, hitting the map with his wand. As though an invisible hand were writing upon it, words appeared on the smooth surface of the map. Mr. Mooney presents his compliments to Professor Snape and begs him to keep his abnormally large nose out of other people's business. Snape froze. Harry stared, dumbstruck at the message. But the map didn't stop there. More writing was appearing beneath the first. Mr. Prongs agrees with Mr. Mooney and would like to add that Professor Snape is an ugly git. It would have been funny if the situation hadn't been so serious, and there was more. Mr. Padfoot would like to register his astonishment that an idiot like that ever became a professor. Harry closed his eyes in horror. When he'd opened them, the map had had its last word. Mr. Wormtail bids Professor Snape good day and advises him to wash his hair, the slime ball. Harry waited for the blow to fall. So, said Snape softly, we'll see about this. He strode across to his fire, seized a fistful of glittering powder from a jar on the fireplace, and threw it into the flames. Lupin! Snape called into the fire. I want a word! Utterly bewildered, Harry stared at the fire. A large shape had appeared in it, revolving very fast. Seconds later, Professor Lupin was clambering out of the fireplace, brushing ash off his shabby robes. You called, Severus? said Lupin mildly. I certainly did, said Snape, his face contorted with fury as he strode back to his desk. I have just asked Potter to empty his pockets. He was carrying this. Snape pointed at the parchment, on which the words of Messrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs were still shining. An odd closed expression appeared on Lupin's face. Well, said Snape. Lupin continued to stare at the map. Harry had the impression that Lupin was doing some very quick thinking. Well, said Snape again. This parchment is plainly full of dark magic. This is supposed to be your area of expertise, Lupin. Where do you imagine Potter got such a thing? Lupin looked up, and by the merest half-glance in Harry's direction, warned him not to interrupt. Full of dark magic, he repeated mildly. Do you really think so, Severus? It looks to me as though it is merely a piece of parchment that insults anybody who reads it. Childish, but surely not dangerous. I imagine Harry got it from a joke shop. Indeed, 
said Snape. His jaw had gone rigid with anger. You think a joke shop could supply him with such a thing? You don't think it more likely that he got it directly from the manufacturers? Harry didn't understand what Snape was talking about, nor apparently did Lupin. You mean by Mr. Wormtail or one of these people? he said. Harry, do you know any of these men? No, said Harry quickly. You see, Severus, said Lupin, turning back to Snape, it looks like a Zonko product to me. Right on cue, Ron came bursting into the office. He was completely out of breath and stopped just short of Snape's desk, clutching the stitch in his chest and trying to speak. I gave Harry that stuff, he choked. Bought it in Zonko's ages ago. Well, said Lupin, clapping his hands together and looking around cheerfully, that seems to clear that up. Severus, I'll take this back, shall I? He folded the map and tucked it inside his robes. Harry, Ron, come with me. I need a word about my vampire essay. Excuse us, Severus. Harry didn't dare look at Snape as they left his office. He, Ron, and Lupin walked all the way back into the entrance hall before speaking. Then Harry turned to Lupin. Professor, I, I don't want to hear explanations, said Lupin shortly. He glanced around the empty entrance hall and lowered his voice. I happen to know that this map was confiscated by Mr. Filch many years ago. Yes, I know it's a map, he said as Harry and Ron looked amazed. I don't want to know how it fell into your possession. I am, however, astounded that you didn't hand it in, particularly after what happened the last time a student left information about the castle lying around and I can't let you have it back, Harry. Harry had expected that, and was too keen for explanations to protest. Why did Snape think I'd got it from the manufacturers? Because, Lupin hesitated, because these mapmakers would have wanted to lure you out of school. They'd think it extremely entertaining. Do you know them? said Harry, impressed. We've... "'Met?' he said shortly. "'He was looking at Harry more seriously than ever before. "'Don't expect me to cover up for you again, Harry. "'I cannot make you take Sirius Black seriously, "'but I would have thought that what you have heard "'when the Dementors draw near you "'would have had more of an effect on you. "'Your parents gave their lives to keep you alive, Harry.' A poor way to repay them, gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. He walked away, leaving Harry feeling worse by far than he had at any point in Snape's office. Slowly, he and Ron mounted the marble staircase. As Harry passed the one-eyed witch, he remembered the invisibility cloak. It was still down there, but he didn't dare go and get it. It's my fault said Ron abruptly. I persuaded you to go. Lupin's right. It was stupid. We shouldn't have done it. He broke off. They reached the corridor where the security trolls were pacing, and Hermione was walking toward them. One look at her face convinced Harry that she had heard what had happened. His heart plummeted. Had she told Professor McGonagall? Come to have a good gloat, 
said Ron savagely as she stopped in front of them. Or have you just been to tell on us? No, said Hermione. She was holding a letter in her hands, and her lip was trembling. I just thought, you ought to know. Hagrid lost his case. Buckbeak is going to be executed. Chapter 15 The Quidditch Final He... he sent me this, Hermione said, holding out the letter. Harry took it. The parchment was damp, and enormous teardrops had smudged the ink so badly in places that it was very difficult to read. Dear Hermione, we lost. I'm allowed to bring him back to Hogwarts, execution date to be fixed. Beaky has enjoyed London. I won't forget all the help you gave us, Hagrid. They can't do this, said Harry. They can't. Buckbeak isn't dangerous. Malfoy's dad frightened the committee into it, said Hermione, wiping her eyes. You know what he's like. They're a bunch of doddery old fools, and they were scared. There'll be an appeal, though. There always is. Only I can't see any hope. Nothing will have changed. Yes, it will, said Ron fiercely. You won't have to do all the work alone this time, Hermione. I'll help. Oh, Ron! Hermione flung her arms around Ron's neck and broke down completely. Ron, looking quite terrified, patted her very awkwardly on the top of the head. Finally, Hermione drew away. Ron, I'm really, really sorry about Scabbers, she sobbed. Oh, well, he was old, said Ron, looking thoroughly relieved that she had let go of him. And he was a bit useless. You never know. Mum and Dad might get me an owl now. The safety measures imposed on the students since Black's second break-in made it impossible for Harry, Ron and Hermione to go and visit Hagrid in the evenings. Their only chance of talking to him was during care of magical creatures' lessons. He seemed numb with shock at the verdict. It's all my fault. Got all tongue-tied. They was all sitting there in black robes, and I kept dropping me notes and forgetting all them dates you looked up for me, Hermione. And then Lucius Malfoy stood up and said his bit, and the committee just did exactly what he told them. There's still the appeal, said Ron fiercely. Don't give up yet. We're working on it. They were walking back up to the castle with the rest of the class. Ahead they could see Malfoy, who was walking with Crabbe and Goyle, and kept looking back, laughing derisively. "'It's no good, Ron,' said Hagrid sadly as they reached the castle steps. "'That committee's in Lucius Malfoy's pocket. I'm just going to make sure the rest of Beaky's time is the happiest he's ever had. I owe him that.' Hagrid turned around and hurried back towards his cabin, his face buried in his handkerchief. Look at him, blubber! Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle had been standing just inside the castle doors, listening. Have you ever seen anything quite as pathetic? said Malfoy. And he's supposed to be our teacher? Harry and Ron both made furious moves towards Malfoy, but Hermione got there first. Smack! She had slapped Malfoy across the face with all the strength she could muster. Malfoy staggered. Harry, Ron, Crabbe, and Goyle stood flabbergasted as Hermione raised her hand again. Don't 
you dare call Hagrid pathetic, you foul, you evil! Hermione, said Ron weakly, and he tried to grab her hand as she swung it back. Get off, Ron! Hermione pulled out her wand. Malfoy stepped backward. Crabbe and Goyle looked at him for instructions, thoroughly bewildered. Come on, Malfoy muttered, and in a moment all three of them had disappeared into the passageway to the dungeons. Hermione, Ron said again, sounding both stunned and impressed. Harry, you'd better beat him in the Quidditch final. Hermione said shrilly. You just better had, because I can't stand it if Slytherin wins. We're due in charms, said Ron, still goggling at Hermione. We'd better go. They hurried up the marble staircase toward Professor Flitwick's classroom. You're late, boys, said Professor Flitwick, reprovingly as Harry opened the classroom door. Come along, quickly. One's out. We're experimenting with cheering charms today. We've already divided into pairs. Harry and Ron hurried to a desk at the back and opened their bags. Ron looked behind him. Where's Hermione gone? Harry looked around too. Hermione hadn't entered the classroom, yet Harry knew she had been right next to him when he'd opened the door. That's weird, said Harry, staring at Ron. Maybe, maybe she went to the bathroom or something. But Hermione didn't turn up all lesson. She could have done with a cheering charm on her, too, said Ron, as the class left for lunch, all grinning broadly. The cheering charms had left them with a feeling of great contentment. Hermione wasn't at lunch, either. By the time they had finished their apple pie, the after-effects of the cheering charms were wearing off, and Harry and Ron had started to get slightly worried. You don't think Malfoy did something to her? Ron said anxiously as they hurried upstairs toward Gryffindor Tower. They passed the security trolls, gave the fat lady the password, Flibbertagibbet, and scrambled through the portrait hole into the common room. Hermione was sitting at a table, fast asleep, her head resting on an open arithmancy book. They went to sit down on either side of her. Harry prodded her awake. What? said Hermione, waking with a start and staring wildly around. Is it time to go? Which lesson have we got now? Divination, but it's not for another twenty minutes, said Harry. Hermione, why didn't you come to charms? What? Oh, no, Hermione squeaked. I forgot to go to charms. But how could you forget, said Harry. You were with us till we were right outside the classroom. I don't believe it, Hermione wailed. Was Professor Flitwick angry? Oh, it was Malfoy. I was thinking about him, and I lost track of things. You know what, Hermione, said Ron, looking down at the enormous arithmancy book Hermione had been using as a pillow. I reckon you're cracking up. You're trying to do too much. No, I'm not, said Hermione, brushing her hair out of her eyes and staring hopelessly around for her bag. I just made a mistake, that's all. I'd better go and see Professor Flitwick and say sorry. I'll see you in divination. Hermione joined them at the foot of the ladder to Professor Trelawney's classroom twenty minutes later, looking extremely harassed. I can't believe I miss cheering charms, and I bet they come up in our exams. Professor Flitwick hinted they might. Together they climbed the ladder into the dim, stifling tower room. Glowing on every little table was a crystal ball full of pearly white mist. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat down together at the same rickety table. 
I thought we weren't starting crystal balls till next term, Ron muttered, casting a wary eye around for Professor Trelawney in case she was lurking nearby. Don't complain. This means we've finished palmistry, Harry muttered back. I was getting sick of her flinching every time she looked at my hands. Good day to you, said the familiar, misty voice, and Professor Trelawney made her usual dramatic entrance out of the shadows. Pavati and Lavender quivered with excitement, their faces lit by the milky glow of their crystal ball. I have decided to introduce the crystal ball a little earlier than I had planned, said Professor Trelawney, sitting with her back to the fire and gazing around. The fates have informed me that your examination in June will concern the orb, and I'm anxious to give you sufficient practice. Hermione snorted. Well, honestly, the fates have informed her. Who sets the exam? She does. What an amazing prediction, she said, not troubling to keep her voice low. Harry and Ron choked back laughs. It was hard to tell whether Professor Trelawney had heard them, as her face was hidden in shadow. She continued, however, as though she had not. Crystal gazing is a particularly refined art, she said dreamily. I do not expect any of you to see when first you peer into the orb's infinite depths. We shall start by practicing relaxing the conscious mind and external eyes. Ron began to snigger uncontrollably and had to stuff his fist in his mouth to stifle the noise, so as to clear the inner eye and the superconscious. Perhaps, if we are lucky, some of you will see before the end of the class. And so they began. Harry at least felt extremely foolish, staring blankly at the crystal ball, trying to keep his mind empty when thoughts such as, This is stupid, kept drifting across it. It didn't help that Ron kept breaking into silent giggles, and Hermione kept tutting. "'Seen anything yet?' Harry asked them after a quarter of an hour's quiet crystal-gazing. "'Yeah, there's a burn on this table,' said Ron, pointing. "'Someone spilt their candle.' "'This is such a waste of time,' Hermione hissed. "'I could be practicing something useful. I could be catching up on cheering charms.' Professor Trelawney rustled past. Would anyone like me to help them interpret the shadowy portents within their orb? She murmured over the clinking of her bangles. I don't need help, Ron whispered. It's obvious what this means. There's going to be loads of fog tonight. Both Harry and Hermione burst out laughing. Now, really, said Professor Trelawney, as everyone's heads turned in their direction. Pavati and Lavender were looking scandalized. You are disturbing the clairvoyant vibrations. She approached their table and peered into their crystal ball. Harry felt his heart sinking. He was sure he knew what was coming. There is something here, Professor Trelawney whispered, lowering her face to the ball so that it was reflected twice in her huge glasses. Something moving, but... What is it? Harry was prepared to bet everything he owned, including his firebolt, that it wasn't good news, whatever it was, and sure enough. My dear! Professor Trelawney breathed, gazing up at Harry. It is here, plainer than ever before. My dear, stalking toward you, growing ever closer, the gr— Oh, for goodness sake! 
said Hermione loudly. Not that ridiculous grim again. Professor Trelawney raised her enormous eyes to Hermione's face. Pavati whispered something to Lavender, and they both glared at Hermione too. Professor Trelawney stood up, surveying Hermione with unmistakable anger. I am sorry to say that from the moment you have arrived in this class, my dear, it has been apparent that you do not have what the noble art of divination requires. Indeed, I don't remember ever meeting a student whose mind was so hopelessly mundane. There was a moment's silence then. Fine, said Hermione suddenly, getting up and cramming, unfogging the future back into her bag. Fine. She repeated, swinging the bag over her shoulder and almost knocking Ron off his chair. I give up. I'm leaving. And to the whole class's amazement, Hermione strode over to the trap door, kicked it open, and climbed down the ladder out of sight. It took a few minutes for the class to settle down again. Professor Trelawney seemed to have forgotten all about the grim. She turned abruptly from Harry and Ron's table, breathing rather heavily as she tugged her gauzy shawl more closely to her. "'Ooh!' said Lavender suddenly, making everyone start. "'Ooh! Professor Trelawney, I've just remembered. You saw her leaving, didn't you? Didn't you, Professor? Around Easter, one of our number will leave us forever. You said it ages ago, Professor!' Professor Trelawney gave her a dewy smile. Yes, my dear, I did indeed know that Miss Granger would be leaving us. One hopes, however, that one might have mistaken the signs. The inner eye can be a burden, you know. Lavender and Pavati looked deeply impressed and moved over so that Professor Trelawney could join their table instead. Some day Hermione's having, eh? Ron muttered to Harry, looking awed. Yeah. Harry glanced into the crystal ball but saw nothing but swirling white mist. Had Professor Trelawney really seen the grim again? Would he? The last thing he needed was another near-fatal accident, with the Quidditch final drawing ever nearer. The Easter holidays were not exactly relaxing. The third years had never had so much homework. Neville Longbottom seemed close to a nervous collapse, and he wasn't the only one. "'Call this a holiday!' Seamus Finnegan roared at the common room one afternoon. "'The exams are ages away. What are they playing at?' But nobody had as much to do as Hermione. Even without divination, she was taking more subjects than anybody else. She was usually last to leave the common room at night, first to arrive at the library the next morning. She had shadows like lupins under her eyes and seemed constantly close to tears. Ron had taken over responsibility for Buckbeak's appeal. When he wasn't doing his own work, he was poring over enormously thick volumes with names like The Handbook of Hippogriff Psychology and Fowl or Fowl, a study of hippogriff brutality. He was so absorbed, he even forgot to be horrible to Crookshanks. Harry, meanwhile, had to fit in his homework around Quidditch practice every day, not to mention endless discussions of tactics with Wood. The Gryffindor-Slytherin match would take place on the first Saturday after the Easter holidays. Slytherin was leading the tournament by exactly two hundred points. This meant, as Wood constantly reminded his team, that they needed to win the match by more than that amount to win the cup.
It also meant that the burden of winning fell largely on Harry, because capturing the snitch was worth one hundred and fifty points. So you must catch it only if we're more than fifty points up, Wood told Harry constantly. Only if we're more than fifty points up, Harry, or we win the match, but lose the cup. You've got that, haven't you? You must catch the snitch only if I know, Oliver. Harry yelled. The whole of Gryffindor House was obsessed with the coming match. Gryffindor hadn't won the Quidditch Cup since the legendary Charlie Weasley, Ron's second oldest brother, had been seeker. But Harry doubted whether any of them, even Wood, wanted to win as much as he did. The enmity between Harry and Malfoy was at its highest point ever. Malfoy was still smarting about the mud-throwing incident in Hogsmeade, and was even more furious that Harry had somehow wormed his way out of punishment. Harry hadn't forgotten Malfoy's attempt to sabotage him in the match against Ravenclaw, but it was the matter of Buckbeak that made him most determined to beat Malfoy in front of the entire school. Never in anyone's memory had a match approached in such a highly charged atmosphere. By the time the holidays were over, tension between the two teams and their houses was at the breaking point. A number of small scuffles broke out in the corridors. Culminating in a nasty incident in which a Gryffindor fourth year and a Slytherin sixth year ended up in the hospital wing with leeks sprouting out of their ears, Harry was having a particularly bad time of it. He couldn't walk to class without Slytherin sticking out their legs and trying to trip him up. Crab and Goyle kept popping up wherever he went and slouching away, looking disappointed when they saw him surrounded by people. Wood had given instructions that Harry should be accompanied everywhere he went, in case the Slytherins tried to put him out of action. The whole of Gryffindor House took up the challenge enthusiastically, so that it was impossible for Harry to get to classes on time because he was surrounded by a vast, chattering crowd. Harry was more concerned for his firebolt safety than his own. When he wasn't flying it, he locked it securely in his trunk and frequently dashed back up to Gryffindor Tower at break times to check that it was still there. All usual pursuits were abandoned in the Gryffindor common room the night before the match. Even Hermione had put down her books. I can't work. I can't concentrate, she said nervously. There was a great deal of noise. Fred and George Weasley were dealing with the pressure by being louder and more exuberant than ever. Oliver Wood was crouched over a model of a Quidditch field in the corner, prodding little figures across it with his wand and muttering to himself. Angelina, Alicia, and Katie were laughing at Fred's and George's jokes. Harry was sitting with Ron and Hermione, removed from the center of things, trying not to think about the next day, because every time he did, he had the horrible sensation that something very large was fighting to get out of his stomach. You're going to be fine. Hermione told him, though she looked positively terrified. "You've got a firebolt," said Ron. "Yeah," said Harry, his stomach writhing. It came as a relief when Wood suddenly stood up and yelled, "Team, bed!" Harry slept badly. First, he dreamed that he had overslept, and that Wood was yelling, "Where were you? We had to use Neville instead." Then he dreamed that Malfoy and the rest of the Slytherin team arrived for the match, riding dragons. 
He was flying at breakneck speed, trying to avoid a spurt of flames from Malfoy's steed's mouth, when he realized he had forgotten his firebolt. He fell through the air and woke with a start. It was a few seconds before Harry remembered that the match hadn't taken place yet, that he was safe in bed, and that the Slytherin team definitely wouldn't be allowed to play on dragons. He was feeling very thirsty. Quietly as he could, he got out of his four-poster and went to pour himself some water from the silver jug beneath the window. The grounds were still and quiet. No breath of wind disturbed the treetops in the forbidden forest. The whomping willow was motionless and innocent-looking. It looked as though the conditions for the match would be perfect. Harry set down his goblet and was about to turn back to his bed when something caught his eye. An animal of some kind was prowling across the silvery lawn. Harry dashed to his bedside table, snatched up his glasses and put them on, then hurried back to the window. It couldn't be the grim. Not now, not right before the match. He peered out at the grounds again, and, after a minute's frantic searching, spotted it. It was skirting the edge of the forest now. It wasn't the grim at all. It was a cat. Harry clutched the window ledge in relief as he recognized the bottle-brush tail. It was only Crookshanks. Or was it only Crookshanks? Harry squinted, pressing his nose flat against the glass. Crookshanks seemed to have come to a halt. Harry was sure he could see something else moving in the shadow of the trees, too. And just then it emerged, a gigantic, shaggy, black dog moving stealthily across the lawn, Crookshanks trotting at its side. Harry stared. What did this mean? If Crookshanks could see the dog as well, how could it be an omen of Harry's death? Run, Harry hissed. Run, wake up. Huh? I need you to tell me if you can see something. It's all dark, Harry, Ron muttered thickly. What are you on about? Down here. Harry looked quickly back out of the window. Crookshanks and the dog had vanished. Harry climbed onto the windowsill to look right down into the shadows of the castle, but they weren't there. Where had they gone? A loud snore told him Ron had fallen asleep again. Harry and the rest of the Gryffindor team entered the Great Hall the next day to enormous applause. Harry couldn't help grinning broadly as he saw that both the Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff tables were applauding them too. The Slytherin table hissed loudly as they passed. Harry noticed that Malfoy looked even paler than usual. Wood spent the whole of breakfast urging his team to eat while touching nothing himself. Then he hurried them off to the field before anyone else had finished, so they could get an idea of the conditions. As they left the great hall, everyone applauded again. "'Good luck, Harry!' called Cho. Harry felt himself blushing. "'Okay. No wind to speak of. Sun's a bit bright. That could impair your vision. Watch out for it. Ground's fairly hard. Good. That'll give us a fast kick-off.' Wood paced the field, staring around with the team behind him. Finally they saw the front doors of the castle open in the distance and the rest of the school spilling onto the lawn. "'Locker rooms,' said Wood tersely. None of them spoke as they changed into their scarlet robes. 
Harry wondered if they were feeling like he was, as though he'd eaten something extremely wriggly for breakfast. In what seemed like no time at all, Wood was saying, Okay, it's time. Let's go. They walked out onto the field to a tidal wave of noise. Three-quarters of the crowd was wearing scarlet rosettes, waving scarlet flags with the Gryffindor lion upon them, or brandishing banners with slogans like Go Gryffindor and Lions for the Cup. Behind the slithering goalposts, however, two hundred people were wearing green. The silver serpent of Slytherin glittered on their flags, and Professor Snape sat in the very front row, wearing green like everyone else, and a very grim smile. "'And here are the Gryffindors!' yelled Lee Jordan, who was acting as commentator as usual. Potter, Bell, Johnson, Spinnet, Weasley, Weasley, and Wood. Widely acknowledged as the best team Hogwarts has seen in a good few years. Lee's comments were drowned by a tide of boos from the Slytherin end. And here comes the Slytherin team, led by Captain Flint. He's made some changes in the lineup and seems to be going for size rather than skill. More boos from the Slytherin crowd. Harry, however, thought Lee had a point. Malfoy was easily the smallest person on the Slytherin team. The rest of them were enormous. Captains, shake hands, said Madame Hooch. Flint and Wood approached each other and grasped each other's hand very tightly. It looked as though each was trying to break the other's fingers. Mount your brooms, said Madame Hooch. Three, two... One. The sound of her whistle was lost in the roar from the crowd as fourteen brooms rose into the air. Harry felt his hair fly back off his forehead. His nerves left him in the thrill of the flight. He glanced around, saw Malfoy on his tail, and sped off in search of the snitch. And it's Gryffindor in possession. Alicia Spinnet of Gryffindor with the Quaffle, heading straight for the Slithering Goalpost. Looking good? Alicia? Ah, no. Quaffle intercepted by Warrington. Warrington of Slithering tearing up the field. Wham! Nice bludger work there by George Weasley. Warrington drops the Quaffle. It's caught by Johnson. Gryffindor back in possession. Come on, Angelina. Nice swerve around Montague. Duck, Angelina. That's a bludger. She scores. Ten zero to Gryffindor. Angelina punched the air as she soared around the end of the field. The sea of scarlet below was screaming its delight. Ouch! Angelina was nearly thrown from her broom as Marcus Flint went smashing into her. Sorry, said Flint as the crowd below booed. Sorry, didn't see her. A moment later, Fred Weasley chucked his beater's club at the back of Flint's head. Flint's nose smashed into the handle of his broom and began to bleed. That will do, shrieked Madame Hooch, zooming between them. Penalty shot to Gryffindor for an unprovoked attack on their chaser. Penalty shot to Slytherin for deliberate damage to their chaser. Come off it, miss, howled Fred, but Madame Hooch blew her whistle and Alicia flew forward to take the penalty. Come on, Alicia, yelled Lee into the silence that had descended on the crowd. Yes, she's beaten the keeper. Twenty-zero to Gryffindor. Harry turned the firebolt sharply to watch Flint, still bleeding freely, fly forward to take the Slytherin penalty. Wood was hovering in front of the Gryffindor goalposts, his jaw clenched. "'Course, Wood's a superb keeper,' Lee Jordan told the crowd as Flint waited for Madame Hooch's whistle. "'Superb! Very difficult to pass! Very difficult indeed! Yes, I don't believe it! He saved it!'
Relieved, Harry zoomed away, gazing around for the snitch, but still making sure he caught every word of Lee's commentary. It was essential that he hold Malfoy off the snitch until Gryffindor was more than fifty points up. Gryffindor in possession. No, Slytherin in possession. No, Gryffindor back in possession. And it's Katie Bell. Katie Bell for Gryffindor with the quaffle. She's streaking up the field. That was deliberate! Montague, a Slytherin chaser, had swerved in front of Katie, and instead of seizing the quaffle, had grabbed her head. Katie cartwheeled in the air, managed to stay on her broom, but dropped the quaffle. Madame Hooch's whistle rang out again as she soared over to Montague and began shouting at him. A minute later, Katie had put another penalty past the Slytherin seeker. Thirty-zero! Take that, you dirty, cheating Jordan! If you can't commentate in an unbiased way, I'm telling it like it is, Professor! Harry felt a huge jolt of excitement. He had seen the snitch. It was shimmering at the foot of one of the Gryffindor goalposts. But he mustn't catch it yet, and if Malfoy saw it... Faking a look of sudden concentration, Harry pulled his firebolt around and sped off toward the Slytherin end. It worked. Malfoy went herring after him, clearly thinking Harry had seen the snitch there. Whoosh! One of the bludgers came streaking past Harry's right ear, hit by the gigantic Slytherin beater, Derek. Then again, whoosh! The second bludger grazed Harry's elbow. The other beater, Bowl, was closing in. Harry had a fleeting glimpse of Bowl and Derek zooming toward him, clubs raised. He turned the firebolt upward at the last second, and Bowl and Derek collided with a sickening crunch. Ha-ha! yelled Lee Jordan as the slithering beaters lurched away from each other, clutching their heads. Two bad boys! You'll need to get up earlier than that to beat a firebolt! And it's Gryffindor in possession again as Johnson takes the quaffle. Flint alongside her. Poke him in the eye, Angelina. It was a joke! Professor, it was a joke. Oh, no. Flint in possession. Flint flying toward the Gryffindor goalposts. Come on now, Wood, save. But Flint has scored. There was an eruption of cheers from the Slytherin end, and Lee swore so badly that Professor McGonagall tried to tug the magical megaphone away from him. Sorry, Professor, sorry. It won't happen again. So, Gryffindor in the lead, 30 points to 10, and Gryffindor in possession. It was turning into the dirtiest game Harry had ever played in. Enraged that Gryffindor had taken such an early lead, the Slytherins were rapidly resorting to any means to take the quaffle. Bowl hit Alicia with his club and tried to say he'd thought she was a bludger. George Weasley elbowed Bowl in the face in retaliation. Madame Hooch awarded both teams penalties, and Wood pulled off another spectacular save, making the score 40-10 to Gryffindor. The snitch had disappeared again. Malfoy was still keeping close to Harry as he soared over the match, looking around for it. Once Gryffindor was fifty points ahead. Katie scored fifty-ten. Fred and George Weasley were swooping around her, clubs raised in case any of the Slytherins were thinking of revenge. Bowl and Derek took advantage of Fred's and George's absence to aim both bludgers at wood. They caught him in the stomach, one after the other, and he rolled over in the air, clutching his broom, completely winded. Madame Hooch was beside herself. You do not attack the keeper unless the quaffle is within the scoring area! She shrieked at Bowl and Derek. Gryffindor penalty! And Angelina scored. Sixty. Ten. Moments later, Fred Weasley pelted a bludger at Warrington, knocking the quaffle out of his hands. Alicia seized it and put it through the slithering goal. Seventy-ten.
The Gryffindor crowd below was screaming itself hoarse. Gryffindor was sixty points in the lead, and if Harry caught the snitch now, the cup was theirs. Harry could almost feel hundreds of eyes following him as he soared around the field, high above the rest of the game, with Malfoy speeding along behind him. And then he saw it. The snitch was sparkling twenty feet above him. Harry put on a huge burst of speed. The wind was roaring in his ears. He stretched out his hand, but suddenly the firebolt was slowing down. Horrified, he looked around. Malfoy had thrown himself forward, grabbing hold of the firebolt's tail, and was pulling it back. You! Harry was angry enough to hit Malfoy, but couldn't reach. Malfoy was panting with the effort of holding on to the firebolt, but his eyes were sparkling maliciously. He had achieved what he'd wanted to do. The snitch had disappeared again. Penalty! Penalty to Gryffindor! I've never seen such tactics! Madame Hooch screeched shooting up to where Malfoy was sliding back onto his Nimbus 2001. "'You cheating scum!' Lee Jordan was howling into the megaphone, dancing out of Professor McGonagall's reach. "'You filthy, cheating b Professor McGonagall didn't even bother to tell him off. She was actually shaking her finger in Malfoy's direction. Her hat had fallen off, and she too was shouting furiously. Alicia took Gryffindor's penalty, but she was so angry she missed by several feet. The Gryffindor team was losing concentration, and the Slytherins, delighted by Malfoy's foul on Harry, were being spurred on to greater heights. Slytherin in possession. Slytherin heading for goal. Montague scores, Lee groaned. Seventy-twenty to Gryffindor. Harry was now marking Malfoy so closely their knees kept hitting each other. Harry wasn't going to let Malfoy anywhere near the snitch. Get out of it, Potter! Malfoy yelled in frustration as he tried to turn and found Harry blocking him. Angelina Johnson gets the quaffle for Gryffindor. Come on, Angelina! Come on! Harry looked around. Every single Slytherin player apart from Malfoy was streaking up the pitch toward Angelina, including the Slytherin keeper. They were all going to block her. Harry wheeled the firebolt around, bent so low he was lying flat along the handle, and kicked it forward. Like a bullet, he shot toward the Slytherins. Ah! They scattered as the firebolt zoomed toward them. Angelina's way was clear. She scores! She scores! Gryffindor leads by 80 points to 20! Harry, who had almost pelted headlong into the stands, skidded to a halt in midair, reversed, and zoomed back into the middle of the field. And then he saw something to make his heart stand still. Malfoy was diving, a look of triumph on his face. There, a few feet above the grass below, was a tiny, golden glimmer. Harry urged the firebolt downward, but Malfoy was miles ahead. Go! 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 Harry urged his broom. He was gaining on Malfoy. Harry flattened himself to the broom handle as Bowles sent a bludger at him. He was at Malfoy's ankles. He was level. Harry threw himself forward, took both hands off his broom. He knocked Malfoy's arm out of the way and... Yes! He pulled out of his dive, his hand in the air, and the stadium exploded. Harry soared above the crowd, an odd ringing in his ears. The tiny golden ball was held tight in his fist, beating its wings hopelessly against his fingers.
Then Wood was speeding toward him, half blinded by tears. He seized Harry round the neck and sobbed unrestrainedly into his shoulder. Harry felt two large thumps as Fred and George hit them. Then Angelina's, Alicia's, and Katie's voices. We've won the cup! We've won the cup! Tangled together in a many-armed hug, the Gryffindor team sank, yelling hoarsely back to earth. Wave upon wave of crimson supporters was pouring over the barriers onto the field. Hands were raining down on their backs. Harry had a confused impression of noise and bodies pressing in on him. Then he and the rest of the team were hoisted onto the shoulders of the crowd. Thrust into the light, he saw Hagrid plastered with crimson rosettes. You beat him, Harry! You beat him! Wait till I tell Buckbeak! There was Percy jumping up and down like a maniac, all dignity forgotten. Professor McGonagall was sobbing harder even than Wood, wiping her eyes with an enormous Gryffindor flag. And there, fighting their way toward Harry, were Ron and Hermione. Words failed them. They simply beamed as Harry was borne toward the stands, where Dumbledore stood waiting with the enormous Quidditch cup. If only there had been a Dementor around, as a sobbing wood passed Harry the cup, as he lifted it into the air, Harry felt he could have produced the world's best Patronus. Chapter 16 Professor Trelawney's Prediction Harry's euphoria at finally winning the Quidditch Cup lasted at least a week. Even the weather seemed to be celebrating. As June approached, the days became cloudless and sultry, and all anybody felt like doing was strolling onto the grounds and flopping down on the grass with several pints of iced pumpkin juice, perhaps playing a casual game of gobstones or watching the giant squid propel itself dreamily across the surface of the lake. But they couldn't. Exams were nearly upon them, and instead of lazing around outside, the students were forced to remain inside the castle, trying to bully their brains into concentrating while enticing wafts of summer air drifted in through the windows. Even Fred and George Weasley had been spotted working. They were about to take their OWLs, Ordinary Wizarding Levels. Percy was getting ready to take his NEWTs, Nastily Exhausting Wizarding Tests the highest qualification Hogwarts offered. As Percy hoped to enter the Ministry of Magic, he needed top grades. He was becoming increasingly edgy and gave very severe punishments to anybody who disturbed the quiet of the common room in the evenings. In fact, the only person who seemed more anxious than Percy was Hermione. Harry and Ron had given up asking her how she was managing to attend several classes at once, but they couldn't restrain themselves when they saw the exam schedule she had drawn up for herself. The first column read, Monday, nine o'clock, arithmancy, nine o'clock, transfiguration, lunch, one o'clock, charms, one o'clock, ancient runes. Hermione? Ron said cautiously, because she was liable to explode when interrupted these days. Uh, are you sure you've copied down these times, right? What? snapped Hermione, picking up the exam schedule and examining it. Yes, of course I have. Is there any point asking how you're going to sit for two exams at once? said Harry. No, said Hermione shortly. Have either of you seen my copy of Numerology and Grammatica? 
Oh, yeah, I borrowed it for a bit of bedtime reading, said Ron, but very quietly. Hermione started shifting heaps of parchment around on her table, looking for the book. Just then, there was a rustle at the window, and Hedwig fluttered through it, a note clutched tight in her beak. It's from Hagrid, said Harry, ripping the note open. Buckbeak's appeal. It's set for the sixths. That's the day we finish our exams, said Hermione, still looking everywhere for her arithmancy book. And they're coming up here to do it said Harry, still reading from the letter. Someone from the Ministry of Magic and... and an executioner. Hermione looked up, startled. They're bringing the executioner to the appeal, but that sounds as though they've already decided. Yeah, it does, said Harry slowly. They can't, Ron howled. I've spent ages reading up on stuff for him. They can't just ignore it all. But Harry had a horrible feeling that the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures had had its mind made up for it by Mr. Malfoy. Draco, who had been noticeably subdued since Gryffindor's triumph in the Quidditch final, seemed to regain some of his old swagger over the next few days. From sneering comments Harry overheard, Malfoy was certain Buckbeak was going to be killed and seemed thoroughly pleased with himself for bringing it about. It was all Harry could do to stop himself imitating Hermione and hitting Malfoy in the face on these occasions. And the worst thing of all was that they had no time or opportunity to go and see Hagrid, because the strict new security measures had not been lifted, and Harry didn't dare retrieve his invisibility cloak from below the one-eyed witch. Exam week began, and an unnatural hush fell over the castle. The third years emerged from transfiguration at lunchtime on Monday, limp and ashen-faced, comparing results and bemoaning the difficulty of the tasks they had been set, which had included turning a teapot into a tortoise. Hermione irritated the rest by fussing about how her tortoise had looked more like a turtle, which was the least of everyone else's worries. Mine still had a spout for a tail. What a nightmare! Were the tortoises supposed to breathe steam? It still had a willow-patterned shell. Do you think that'll count against me? Then, after a hasty lunch, it was straight back upstairs for the charms exam. Hermione had been right. Professor Flitwick did indeed test them on cheering charms. Harry slightly overdid his, out of nerves, and Ron, who was partnering him, ended up in fits of hysterical laughter and had to be led away to a quiet room for an hour before he was ready to perform the charm himself. After dinner, the students hurried back to their common rooms, not to relax, but to start studying for care of magical creatures, potions, and astronomy. Hagrid presided over the care of magical creatures exam the following morning with a very preoccupied air indeed. His heart didn't seem to be in it at all. He had provided a large tub of fresh flobber worms for the class and told them that to pass the test their flobber worm had to still be alive at the end of one hour. As flobber worms flourished best if left to their own devices, it was the easiest exam any of them had ever taken, and also gave Harry, Ron, and Hermione plenty of opportunity to speak to Hagrid. Beak is getting a bit depressed, Hagrid told them, bending low on the pretense of checking that Harry's flobber worm was still alive. Been cooped up too long, but still, we'll know day after tomorrow. 
one way or the other. They had potions that afternoon, which was an unqualified disaster. Try as Harry might, he couldn't get his confusing concoction to thicken, and Snape, standing watch with an air of vindictive pleasure, scribbled something that looked suspiciously like a zero onto his notes before moving away. Then came astronomy at midnight up on the tallest tower, history of magic on Wednesday morning, in which Harry scribbled everything Florian Fortescue had ever told him about medieval witch hunts, while wishing he could have had one of Fortescue's choco-nut Sundays with him in the stifling classroom. Wednesday afternoon meant herbology, in the greenhouses under a baking hot sun. Then back to the common room once more, with sunburnt necks, thinking longingly of this time next day, when it would all be over. Their second-to-last exam on Thursday morning was Defense Against the Dark Arts. Professor Lupin had compiled the most unusual exam any of them had ever taken, a sort of obstacle course outside in the sun, where they had to wade across a deep paddling pool containing a grindylow, cross a series of potholes full of red caps, squish their way across a patch of marsh while ignoring misleading directions from a hinky-punk, then climb into an old trunk and battle with a new bogart. "'Excellent, Harry!' Lupin muttered as Harry climbed out of the trunk, grinning. Full marks! Flush with his success, Harry hung around to watch Ron and Hermione. Ron did very well until he reached the hinky-punk, which successfully confused him into sinking waist-high into the quagmire. Hermione did everything perfectly until she reached the trunk with the bogart in it. After about a minute inside it, she burst out again, screaming. Hermione! said Lupin, startled. What's the matter? P -p "'Professor McGonagall!' Hermione gasped, pointing into the trunk. She, "'She said I'd failed everything!' It took a little while to calm Hermione down. When at last she had regained a grip on herself, she, Harry, and Ron went back to the castle. Ron was still slightly inclined to laugh at Hermione's bogart, but an argument was averted by the sight that met them on the top of the steps. Cornelius Fudge, sweating slightly in his pinstripe cloak, was standing there, staring out at the grounds. He started at the sight of Harry. "'Hello there, Harry,' he said. "'Just had an exam, I expect. Nearly finished?' "'Yes,' said Harry. Hermione and Ron, not being on speaking terms with the Minister of Magic, hovered awkwardly in the background. "'Lovely day,' said Fudge, casting an eye over the lake. "'Pity!' Pity. He sighed deeply and looked down at Harry. I'm here on an unpleasant mission, Harry. The Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures required a witness to the execution of a mad hippogriff. As I needed to visit Hogwarts to check on the black situation, I was asked to step in. Does that mean the appeals already happened? Ron interrupted, stepping forward. No, no. It's scheduled for this afternoon said Fudge, looking curiously at Ron. "'Then you might not have to witness an execution at all,' said Ron stoutly. "'The hippogriff might get off.' Before Fudge could answer, two wizards came through the castle doors behind him. One was so ancient he appeared to be withering before their very eyes. The other was tall and strapping with a thin black moustache. Harry gathered that they were representatives of the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures, because the very old wizard squinted toward Hagrid's cabin and said in a feeble voice, 
dear, dear, I'm getting too old for this. Two o'clock, isn't it, Fudge? The black-moustached man was fingering something in his belt. Harry looked and saw that he was running one broad thumb along the blade of a shining axe. Ron opened his mouth to say something, but Hermione nudged him hard in the ribs and jerked her head toward the entrance hall. "'Why'd you stop me?' said Ron angrily as they entered the great hall for lunch. "'Did you see them? They've even got the axe ready. This isn't justice!' "'Ron, your dad works for the Ministry. You can't go saying things like that to his boss!' said Hermione, but she too looked very upset. As long as Hagrid keeps his head this time and argues his case properly, they can't possibly execute Buckbeak. But Harry could tell Hermione didn't really believe what she was saying. All around them, people were talking excitedly as they ate their lunch, happily anticipating the end of the exams that afternoon. But Harry, Ron, and Hermione, lost in worry about Hagrid and Buckbeak, didn't join in. Harry and Ron's last exam was divination, Hermione's muggle studies. They walked up the marble staircase together. Hermione left them on the first floor, and Harry and Ron proceeded all the way up to the seventh, where many of their class were sitting on the spiral staircase to Professor Trelawney's classroom, trying to cram in a bit of last-minute studying. "'She's seeing us all separately!' Neville informed them as they went to sit down next to him. He had his copy of Unfogging the Future open on his lap at the pages devoted to crystal gazing. Have either of you ever seen anything in a crystal ball? He asked them unhappily. Nope, said Ron in an offhand voice. He kept checking his watch. Harry knew that he was counting down the time until Buckbeak's appeal started. The line of people outside the classroom shortened very slowly. As each person climbed back down the silver ladder, the rest of the class hissed. What did she ask? Was it okay? But they all refused to say. She says the crystal balls told her that if I tell you, I'll have a horrible accident, squeaked Neville as he clambered back down the ladder toward Harry and Ron, who had now reached the landing. That's convenient snorted Ron. You know, I'm starting to think Hermione was right about her. He jabbed his thumb toward the trapdoor overhead. She's a right old fraud. Yeah, said Harry, looking at his own watch. It was now two o'clock. Wish she'd hurry up. Pavati came back down the ladder, glowing with pride. She says I've got all the makings of a true seer, she informed Harry and Ron. I saw loads of stuff. Well, good luck. She hurried off down the spiral staircase toward Lavender. Ronald Weasley, said the familiar misty voice from over their heads. Ron grimaced at Harry and climbed the silver ladder out of sight. Harry was now the only person left to be tested. He settled himself on the floor with his back against the wall, listening to a fly buzzing in the sunny window, his mind across the grounds with Hagrid. Finally, after about twenty minutes, Ron's large feet reappeared on the ladder. How'd it go? Harry asked him, standing up. Rubbish, said Ron. Couldn't see a thing, so I made some stuff up. Don't think she was convinced, though. Meet you in the common room, Harry muttered, as Professor Trelawney's voice called, Harry Potter. The tower room was hotter than ever before, 
The curtains were closed, the fire was alight, and the usual sickly scent made Harry cough as he stumbled through the clutter of chairs and tables to where Professor Trelawney sat waiting for him before a large crystal ball. Good day, my dear, she said softly. If you would kindly gaze into the orb, take your time now. Then tell me what you see within it. Harry bent over the crystal ball and stared, stared as hard as he could, willing it to show him something other than swirling white fog. But nothing happened. Well, Professor Trelawney prompted delicately, what do you see? The heat was overpowering, and his nostrils were stinging with the perfume smoke wafting from the fire beside them. He thought of what Ron had just said, and decided to pretend. Ah. Uh, said Harry. A dark shape. Um, what does it resemble? whispered Professor Trelawney. Think now. Harry cast his mind around, and it landed on Buckbeak. A hippogriff, he said firmly. Indeed, whispered Professor Trelawney, scribbling keenly on the parchment perched upon her knees. My boy, you may well be seeing the outcome of poor Hagrid's trouble with the Ministry of Magic. Look closer. Does the hippogriff appear to have its head? Yes, said Harry firmly. Are you sure? Professor Trelawney urged him. Are you quite sure, dear? You don't see it writhing on the ground, perhaps, and a shadowy figure raising an axe behind it? No, said Harry, starting to feel slightly sick. No blood? No weeping Hagrid? No, said Harry again, wanting more than ever to leave the room and the heat. It looks fine. It's flying away. Professor Trelawney sighed. Well, dear, I think we'll leave it there. A little disappointing, but I'm sure you did your best. Relieved, Harry got up, picked up his bag, and turned to go. But then a loud, harsh voice spoke behind him. It will happen tonight. Harry wheeled round. Professor Trelawney had gone rigid in her armchair. Her eyes were unfocused and her mouth sagging. Sorry, said Harry, but Professor Trelawney didn't seem to hear him. Her eyes started to roll. Harry sat there in a panic. She looked as though she was about to have some sort of seizure. He hesitated, thinking of running to the hospital wing, and then Professor Trelawney spoke again, in the same harsh voice, quite unlike her own. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these twelve years. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever he was. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. Professor Trelawney's head fell forward onto her chest. She made a grunting sort of noise. Harry sat there, staring at her. Then, quite suddenly, Professor Trelawney's head snapped up again. I'm, I'm so sorry, dear boy, she said dreamily. The heat of the day, you know. I drifted off for a moment. Harry sat there, staring at her. Is there anything wrong, my dear? You, you just told me that the, 
the dark lord's going to rise again, that his servant's going to go back to him. Professor Trelawney looked thoroughly startled. The dark lord? He who must not be named? My dear boy, that's hardly something to joke about. Rise again, indeed. But you just said it. You said the dark lord. I think you must have dozed off too, dear, said Professor Trelawney. I would certainly not presume to predict anything quite as far-fetched as that. Harry climbed back down the ladder and the spiral staircase, wondering, had he just heard Professor Trelawney make a real prediction, or had that been her idea of an impressive end to the test? Five minutes later he was dashing past the security trolls outside the entrance to Gryffindor Tower, Professor Trelawney's words still resounding in his head. People were striding past him in the opposite direction, laughing and joking, heading for the grounds and a bit of long-awaited freedom. By the time he had reached the portrait hall and entered the common room, it was almost deserted. Over in the corner, however, sat Ron and Hermione. "'Professor Trelawney,' Harry panted, "'she just... just told me.' But he stopped abruptly at the sight of their faces. "'Buckbeat lost,' said Ron weakly. Hagrid's just sent this. Hagrid's note was dry this time. No tears had splattered it. Yet his hands seemed to have shaken so much as he wrote that it was hardly legible. Lost appeal. They're going to execute at sunset. Nothing you can do. Don't come down. I don't want you to see it. Hagrid. We've got to go said Harry at once. He can't just sit there on his own, waiting for the executioner. Sunset, though, said Ron, who was staring out of the window in a glazed sort of way. We'd never be allowed, especially you, Harry. Harry sank his head into his hands, thinking, If we only had the invisibility cloak. Where is it? said Hermione. Harry told her about leaving it in the passageway under the one-eyed witch. If Snape sees me anywhere near there again, I'm in serious trouble, he finished. That's true, said Hermione, getting to her feet. If he sees you, how do you open the witch's hump again? You, you tap it and say, Descendium, said Harry, but Hermione didn't wait for the rest of his sentence. She strode across the room, pushed open the fat lady's portrait, and vanished from sight. She hasn't gone to get it. Ron said, staring after her. She had. Hermione returned a quarter of an hour later with a silvery cloak folded carefully under her robes. Hermione, I don't know what's gotten into you lately, said Ron, astounded. First you hit Malfoy, then you walk out on Professor Trelawney. Hermione looked rather flattered. They went down to dinner with everybody else, but did not return to Gryffindor Tower afterward. Harry had the cloak hidden down the front of his robes. He had to keep his arms folded to hide the lump. They skulked in an empty chamber off the entrance hall, listening until they were sure it was deserted. They heard a last pair of people hurrying across the hall and a door slamming. Hermione poked her head around the door. Okay, she whispered. No one there. Cloak on. Walking very close together so that nobody would see them, they crossed the hall on tiptoe beneath the cloak, then walked down the stone front steps into the grounds. 
The sun was already sinking behind the forbidden forest, gilding the top branches of the trees. They reached Hagrid's cabin and knocked. He was a minute in answering, and when he did, he looked all around for his visitor, pale-faced and trembling. It's us, Harry hissed. We're wearing the invisibility cloak. Let us in, and we can take it off. You shouldn't have come, Hagrid whispered. But he stood back, and they stepped inside. Hagrid shut the door quickly, and Harry pulled off the cloak. Hagrid was not crying, nor did he throw himself upon their necks. He looked like a man who did not know where he was or what to do. This helplessness was worse to watch than tears. "'Want some tea?' he said. His great hands were shaking as he reached for the kettle. "'Where's Buckbeak, Hagrid?' said Hermione hesitantly. "'I... I took him outside,' said Hagrid, spilling milk all over the table as he filled up the jug. "'He's tethered in me pumpkin patch. Thought he ought to see the trees and... and smell fresh air. Before...' Hagrid's hand trembled so violently that the milk jug slipped from his grasp and shattered all over the floor. "'I'll do it, Hagrid.' said Hermione quickly, hurrying over and starting to clean up the mess. There's another one in the cupboard, Hagrid said, sitting down and wiping his forehead on his sleeve. Harry glanced at Ron, who looked back hopelessly. Isn't there anything anyone can do, Hagrid? Harry asked fiercely, sitting down next to him. Dumbledore! He's tried, said Hagrid. He's got no power to overrule the committee. He told them Buckbeak's all right, but they're scared. You know what Lucius Malfoy's like. Threatened him, I expect. And the executioner, McNair. He's an old pal of Malfoy's. But it'll be quick and clean, and I'll be beside him. Hagrid swallowed. His eyes were darting all over the cabin, as though looking for some shred of hope or comfort. Dumbledore's gonna come down while it... while it happens. Wrote me this morning. Said he wants to... to be with me. Great man, Dumbledore. Hermione, who had been rummaging in Hagrid's cupboard for another milk jug, let out a small, quickly stifled sob. She straightened up with the new jug in her hands, fighting back tears. We'll stay with you too, Hagrid, she began, but Hagrid shook his shaggy head. You to go back up to the castle. I told you I don't want you watching, and you shouldn't be down here anyway. If Fudge and Dumbledore catch you out without permission, Harry, you'll be in big trouble. Silent tears were now streaming down Hermione's face, but she hid them from Hagrid, bustling around making tea. Then, as she picked up the milk bottle to pour some into the jug, she let out a shriek. Ron, I, I don't believe it. It's scabbers. Ron gaped at her. What are you talking about? Hermione carried the milk jug over to the table and turned it upside down. With a frantic squeak and much scrabbling to get back inside, scabbers the rat came sliding out onto the table. Scabbers! said Ron blankly. Scabbers, what are you doing here? 
He grabbed the struggling rat and held him up to the light. Scabbers looked dreadful. He was thinner than ever. Large tufts of hair had fallen out, leaving wide, bald patches, and he writhed in Ron's hands as though desperate to free himself. It's okay, Scabbers, said Ron. No cats. There's nothing here to hurt you. Hagrid suddenly stood up, his eyes fixed on the window. His normally ruddy face had gone the color of parchment. They're coming. Harry, Ron, and Hermione whipped around. A group of men was walking down the distant castle steps. In front was Albus Dumbledore, his silver beard gleaming in the dying sun. Next to him trotted Cornelius Fudge. Behind them came the feeble old committee member and the executioner, McNair. You gotta go, said Hagrid. Every inch of him was trembling. They mustn't find you here. Go now. Ron stuffed scabbers into his pocket, and Hermione picked up the cloak. I'll let you out the back way, said Hagrid. They followed him to the door into his back garden. Harry felt strangely unreal, and even more so when he saw Buckbeak a few yards away, tethered to a tree behind Hagrid's pumpkin patch. Buckbeak seemed to know something was happening. He turned his sharp head from side to side and pawed the ground nervously. It's okay, Beaky, said Hagrid softly. It's okay. He turned to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Go on, he said. Get going. But they didn't move. Hagrid, we can't. We'll tell them what really happened. They can't kill him. Go, said Hagrid fiercely. It's bad enough without you lot in trouble and all. They had no choice. As Hermione threw the cloak over Harry and Ron, they heard voices at the front of the cabin. Hagrid looked at the place where they had just vanished from sight. Go quick, he said hoarsely. Don't listen. And he strode back into his cabin as someone knocked at the front door. Slowly, in a kind of horrified trance, Harry, Ron, and Hermione set off silently around Hagrid's house. As they reached the other side, the front door closed with a sharp snap. Please, let's hurry, Hermione whispered. I can't stand it. I can't bear it. They started up the sloping lawn toward the castle. The sun was sinking fast now. The sky had turned to a clear, purple-tinged grey, but to the west there was a ruby-red glow. Ron stopped dead. Oh, please, Ron, she began. It's Scabbers. He won't stay put. Ron was bent over, trying to keep Scabbers in his pocket. But the rat was going berserk, squeaking madly, twisting and flailing, trying to sink its teeth into Ron's hand. Scabbers, it's me, you idiot, it's Ron, Ron hissed. They heard a door open behind them and men's voices. Oh, Ron, please, let's move. They're going to do it, Hermione breathed. Okay, Scabbers, stay put. They walked forward. Harry, like Hermione, was trying not to listen to the rumble of voices behind them. Ron stopped again. I can't hold him. Scabbers, shut up. Everybody will hear us. The rat was squealing wildly, but not loudly enough to cover up the sounds drifting from Hagrid's garden. There was a jumble of indistinct male voices, a silence, and then, without warning the unmistakable swish and thud of an axe. Hermione swayed on the spot.
They did it, she whispered to Harry. I d don't believe it. They did it. Chapter 17 Cat, Rat, and Dog Harry's mind had gone blank with shock. The three of them stood transfixed with horror under the invisibility cloak. The very last rays of the setting sun were casting a bloody light over the long-shadowed grounds. Then, behind them, they heard a wild howling. Hagrid, Harry muttered. Without thinking about what he was doing, he made to turn back, but both Ron and Hermione seized his arms. We can't, said Ron, who was paper-white. He'll be in worse trouble if they know we've been to see him. Hermione's breathing was shallow and uneven. How could they? she choked. How could they? Come on, said Ron, whose teeth seemed to be chattering. They set off back toward the castle, walking slowly to keep themselves hidden under the cloak. The light was fading fast now. By the time they reached open ground, darkness was settling like a spell around them. Scabbers, keep still, Ron hissed, clamping his hand over his chest. The rat was wriggling madly. Ron came to a sudden halt, trying to force Scabbers deeper into his pocket. What's the matter with you, you stupid rat? Stay still. Ouch! He bit me. Ron, be quiet, Hermione whispered urgently. Fudge will be out here in a minute. He won't stay put. Scabbers was plainly terrified. He was writhing with all his might, trying to break free of Ron's grip. What's the matter with him? But Harry had just seen, slinking toward them, his body low to the ground, wide yellow eyes glinting eerily in the darkness, Crookshanks. Whether he could see them or was following the sound of Scabbers' squeaks, Harry couldn't tell. Crookshanks, Hermione moaned. No, go away, Crookshanks, go away. But the cat was getting nearer. Scabbers, no! Too late, the rat had slipped between Ron's clutching fingers, hit the ground and scampered away. In one bound, Crookshanks sprang after him, and before Harry or Hermione could stop him, Ron had thrown the invisibility cloak off himself and pelted away into the darkness. Ron, Hermione moaned. She and Harry looked at each other, then followed at a sprint. It was impossible to run full out under the cloak. They pulled it off and it streamed behind them like a banner as they hurled after Ron. They could hear his feet thundering along ahead and his shouts at Crookshanks. Get away from him! Get away! Scabbers, come here! There was a loud thud. Gotcha! Get off, you stinking cat! Harry and Hermione almost fell over Ron. They skidded to a stop right in front of him. He was sprawled on the ground, but Scabbers was back in his pocket. He had both hands held tight over the quivering lump. Ron, come on, back under the cloak, Hermione panted. Dumbledore, the minister, they'll be coming back out in a minute. But before they could cover themselves again... Before they could even catch their breath, they heard the soft pounding of gigantic paws. Something was bounding toward them, quiet as a shadow, an enormous, pale-eyed, jet-black dog. 
Harry reached for his wand, but too late. The dog had made an enormous leap, and the front paws hit him on the chest. He keeled over backward in a whirl of hair. He felt its hot breath, saw inch-long teeth. But the force of its leap had carried it too far. It rolled off him. Dazed, feeling as though his ribs were broken, Harry tried to stand up. He could hear it growling as it skidded around for a new attack. Ron was on his feet. As the dog sprang back toward them, he pushed Harry aside. The dog's jaws fastened instead around Ron's outstretched arm. Harry lunged forward. He seized a handful of the brute's hair, but it was dragging Ron away as easily as though he were a rag doll. Then, out of nowhere, something hit Harry so hard across the face he was knocked off his feet again. He heard Hermione shriek with pain and fall, too. Harry groped for his wand, blinking blood out of his eyes. Lumos, he whispered. The wand light showed him the trunk of a thick tree. They had chased scabbers into the shadow of the whomping willow, and its branches were creaking as though in a high wind, whipping backward and forward to stop them going nearer. And there, at the base of the trunk, was the dog, dragging Ron backward into a large gap in the roots. Ron was fighting furiously, but his head and torso were slipping out of sight. Ron! Harry shouted, trying to follow, but the heavy branch whipped lethally through the air, and he was forced backward again. All they could see now was one of Ron's legs, which he had hooked around a root in an effort to stop the dog from pulling him farther underground. But a horrible crack cut the air like a gunshot. Ron's leg had broken, and a moment later his foot vanished from sight. Harry, we've got to go for help, Hermione gasped. She was bleeding too. The willow had cut her across the shoulder. No, that thing's big enough to eat him. We haven't got time. Harry, we're never going to get through without help. Another branch whipped down at them, twigs clenched like knuckles. If that dog can get in, we can, Harry panted, darting here and there, trying to find a way through the vicious, swishing branches. But he couldn't get an inch nearer to the tree roots without being in range of the tree's blows. Oh, help, help, Hermione whispered frantically, dancing uncertainly on the spot. Please. Crookshanks darted forward. He slithered between the battering branches like a snake and placed his front paws upon a knot on the trunk. Abruptly, as though the tree had been turned to marble, it stopped moving. Not a leaf twitched or shook. Crookshanks, Hermione whispered uncertainly. Now she grasped Harry's arm painfully hard. How did he know? He's friends with that dog, said Harry grimly. I've seen them together. Come on, and keep your wand out. They covered the distance to the trunk in seconds, but before they had reached the gap in the roots, Crookshanks had slid into it with a flick of his bottle brush tail. Harry went next. He crawled forward head first and slid down an earthy slope to the bottom of a very low tunnel. Crookshanks was a little way along, his eyes flashing in the light from Harry's wand. Seconds later, Hermione slithered down beside him. Where's Ron? she whispered in a terrified voice. This way, said Harry, setting off bent-backed after Crookshanks. Where does this tunnel come out? Hermione asked breathlessly from behind him. I don't know. It's marked on the Marauder's map, but Fred and George said no one's ever gotten into it. It goes off the edge of the map, but it looked like it was heading for Hogsmeade.
They moved as fast as they could, bent almost double. Ahead of them, Crookshank's tail bobbed in and out of view. On and on went the passage. It felt at least as long as the one to Honeyduke's. All Harry could think of was Ron and what the enormous dog might be doing to him. He was drawing breath in sharp, painful gasps, running at a crouch. And then the tunnel began to rise. Moments later it twisted, and Crookshanks had gone. Instead, Harry could see a patch of dim light through a small opening. He and Hermione paused, gasping for breath, edging forward. Both raised their wands to see what lay beyond. It was a room, a very disordered, dusty room. Paper was peeling from the walls. There were stains all over the floor. Every piece of furniture was broken as though somebody had smashed it. The windows were all boarded up. Harry glanced at Hermione, who looked very frightened, but nodded. Harry pulled himself out of the hole, staring around. The room was deserted, but a door to their right stood open, leading to a shadowy hallway. Hermione suddenly grabbed Harry's arm again. Her wide eyes were travelling around the boarded windows. "'Harry!' she whispered. "'I think we're in the Shrieking Shack.' Harry looked around. His eyes fell on a wooden chair near them. Large chunks had been torn out of it. One of the legs had been ripped off entirely. "'Ghosts didn't do that,' he said slowly. At that moment there was a creak overhead.' Something had moved upstairs. Both of them looked up at the ceiling. Hermione's grip on Harry's arm was so tight, he was losing feeling in his fingers. He raised his eyebrows at her. She nodded again and let go. Quietly as they could, they crept out into the hall and up the crumbling staircase. Everything was covered in a thick layer of dust, except the floor, where a wide, shiny stripe had been made by something being dragged upstairs. They reached the dark landing. Knox, they whispered together, and the lights at the end of their wands went out. Only one door was open. As they crept toward it, they heard movement from behind it, a low moan, and then a deep, loud purring. They exchanged a last look, a last nod. Wand held tightly before him, Harry kicked the door wide open. On a magnificent four-poster bed with dusty hangings lay Crookshanks, purring loudly at the sight of them. On the floor beside him, clutching his leg, which stuck out at a strange angle, was Ron. Harry and Hermione dashed across to him. Ron, are you okay? Where's the dog? Not a dog, Ron moaned. His teeth were gritted with pain. Harry, it's a trap. What? He's the dog. He's an animagus. Ron was staring over Harry's shoulder. Harry wheeled around. With a snap, the man in the shadows closed the door behind them. A mass of filthy matted hair hung to his elbows. If eyes hadn't been shining out of the deep, dark sockets, he might have been a corpse. The waxy skin was stretched so tightly over the bones of his face it looked like a skull. His yellow teeth were bared in a grin. It was Sirius Black. Expelliarmus, he croaked, pointing Ron's wand at them. Harry and Hermione's wands shot out of their hands, high in the air, and Black caught them. Then he took a step closer. His eyes were fixed on Harry.
I thought you'd come and help your friend, he said hoarsely. His voice sounded as though he had long since lost the habit of using it. Your father would have done the same for me. Brave of you not to run for a teacher. I'm grateful. It will make everything much easier. The taunt about his father rang in Harry's ears as though Black had bellowed it. A boiling hate erupted in Harry's chest, leaving no place for fear. For the first time in his life he wanted his wand back in his hand, not to defend himself, but to attack, to kill. Without knowing what he was doing, he started forward, but there was a sudden movement on either side of him, and two pairs of hands grabbed him and held him back. No, Harry! Hermione gasped in a petrified whisper. Ron, however, spoke to Black. If you want to kill Harry, you'll have to kill us too, he said fiercely, though the effort of standing upright was draining him of still more color, and he swayed slightly as he spoke. Something flickered in Black's shadowed eyes. Lie down, he said quietly to Ron. You will damage that leg even more. Did you hear me? Ron said weakly, though he was clinging painfully to Harry to stay upright. You'll have to kill all three of us. There'll be only one murder here tonight, said Black, and his grin widened. Why's that? Harry spat, trying to wrench himself free of Ron and Hermione. Didn't care last time, did you? Didn't mind slaughtering all those muggles to get at Pettigrew? What's the matter? Gone soft in Azkaban? Harry! Hermione whimpered. Be quiet! He killed my mum and dad! Harry roared, and with a huge effort he broke free of Hermione's and Ron's restraint and lunged forward. He had forgotten about magic. He had forgotten that he was short and skinny and thirteen, whereas Black was a tall, full-grown man. All Harry knew was that he wanted to hurt Black as badly as he could and that he didn't care how much he got hurt in return. Perhaps it was the shock of Harry doing something so stupid, but Black didn't raise the wands in time. One of Harry's hands fastened over his wasted wrist, forcing the wand tips away. The knuckles of Harry's other hand collided with the side of Black's head, and they fell backward into the wall. Hermione was screaming. Ron was yelling. There was a blinding flash as the wands in Black's hand sent a jet of sparks into the air that missed Harry's face by inches. Harry felt the shrunken arm under his fingers twisting madly, but he clung on, his other hand punching every part of Black it could find. But Black's free hand had found Harry's throat. No! he hissed. I've waited too long! The fingers tightened. Harry choked, his glasses askew. Then he saw Hermione's foot swing out of nowhere. Black let go of Harry with a grunt of pain. Ron had thrown himself on Black's wand hand, and Harry heard a faint clatter. He fought clear of the tangle of bodies and saw his own wand rolling across the floor. He threw himself toward it, but... Ah! Crookshanks had joined the fray. Both sets of front claws had sunk themselves deep into Harry's arm. Harry threw him off, but Crookshanks now darted toward Harry's wand. No, you don't, roared Harry, and he aimed a kick at Crookshanks that made the cat leap aside, spitting. Harry snatched up his wand and turned. Get out of the way, he shouted at Ron and Hermione. 
They didn't need telling twice. Hermione, gasping for breath, her lip bleeding, scrambled aside, snatching up her and Ron's ones. Ron crawled to the four-poster and collapsed onto it, panting, his white face now tinged with green, both hands clutching his broken leg. Black was sprawled at the bottom of the wall. His thin chest rose and fell rapidly as he watched Harry walking slowly nearer, his wand pointing straight at Black's heart. "'Going to kill me, Harry?' he whispered. Harry stopped right above him, his wand still pointing at Black's chest, looking down at him. A livid bruise was rising around Black's left eye, and his nose was bleeding. "'You killed my parents,' said Harry, his voice shaking slightly, but his wand hand quite steady. Black stared up at him out of those sunken eyes. "'I don't deny it,' he said very quietly. "'But if you knew the whole story—' "'The whole story?' Harry repeated, a furious pounding in his ears. "'You sold them to Voldemort. That's all I need to know. "'You've got to listen to me,' Black said, and there was a note of urgency in his voice now. "'You'll regret it if you don't. You don't understand.' I understand a lot better than you think, said Harry, and his voice shook more than ever. You never heard her, did you? My mum, trying to stop Voldemort killing me, and you did that. You did it. Before either of them could say another word, something ginger streaked past Harry. Crookshanks leapt onto Black's chest and settled himself there, right over Black's heart. Black blinked and looked down at the cat. Get off, he murmured, trying to push Crookshanks off him. But Crookshanks sank his claws into Black's robes and wouldn't shift. He turned his ugly, squashed face to Harry and looked up at him with those great yellow eyes. To his right, Hermione gave a dry sob. Harry stared down at Black and Crookshanks, his grip tightening on the wand. So what if he had to kill the cat too? It was in league with Black— if it was prepared to die trying to protect Black, that wasn't Harry's business. If Black wanted to save it, that only proved he cared more for Crookshanks than for Harry's parents. Harry raised the wand. Now was the moment to do it. Now was the moment to avenge his mother and father. He was going to kill Black. He had to kill Black. This was his chance. The seconds lengthened. And still Harry stood frozen there, one poised, black staring up at him, crookshanks on his chest. Ron's ragged breathing came from near the bed. Hermione was quite silent. And then came a new sound. Muffled footsteps were echoing up through the floor. Someone was moving downstairs. We're up here! Hermione screamed suddenly. We're up here! Sirius Black! Quick! Black made a startled movement that almost dislodged Crookshanks. Harry gripped his wand convulsively. Do it now, said a voice in his head, but the footsteps were thundering up the stairs and Harry still hadn't done it. 
The door of the room burst open in a shower of red sparks, and Harry wheeled around as Professor Lupin came hurtling into the room, his face bloodless, his wand raised and ready. His eyes flickered over Ron lying on the floor, over Hermione cowering next to the door, to Harry standing there with his wand covering Black, and then to Black himself, crumpled and bleeding at Harry's feet. Expelliarmus! Lupin shouted. Harry's wand flew once more out of his hand. So did the two Hermione was holding. Lupin caught them all deftly, then moved into the room, staring at Black, who still had Crookshanks lying protectively across his chest. Harry stood there, feeling suddenly empty. He hadn't done it. His nerve had failed him. Black was going to be handed back to the Dementors. Then Lupin spoke in a very tense voice. Where is he, Sirius? Harry looked quickly at Lupin. He didn't understand what Lupin meant. Who was Lupin talking about? He turned to look at Black again. Black's face was quite expressionless. For a few seconds he didn't move at all. Then, very slowly, he raised his empty hand and pointed straight at Ron. Mystified, Harry glanced around at Ron, who looked bewildered. But then, Lupin muttered, staring at Black so intently, it seemed he was trying to read his mind. Why hasn't he shown himself before now? Unless... Lupin's eyes suddenly widened, as though he was seeing something beyond Black, something none of the rest could see. Unless he was the one, unless you switched without telling me. Very slowly, his sunken gaze never leaving Lupin's face, Black nodded. Professor, Harry interrupted loudly, what's going on? But he never finished the question, because what he saw made his voice die in his throat. Lupin was lowering his wand, gazing fixedly at Black. The professor walked to Black's side, seized his hand, pulled him to his feet so that Crookshanks fell to the floor, and embraced Black like a brother. Harry felt as though the bottom had dropped out of his stomach. I don't believe it! Hermione screamed. Lupin let go of Black and turned to her. She had raised herself off the floor and was pointing at Lupin, wild-eyed. You! You! Hermione! You and him! Hermione, calm down! I didn't tell anyone! Hermione shrieked. I've been covering up for you! Hermione, listen to me, please, Lupin shouted. I can explain. Harry could feel himself shaking, not with fear, but with a fresh wave of fury. I trusted you, he shouted at Lupin, his voice wavering out of control. And all the time, you've been his friend. You're wrong, said Lupin. I haven't been Sirius's friend, but I am now. Let me explain. No! Hermione screamed. Harry, don't trust him. He's been helping Black get into the castle. He wants you dead, too. He's a werewolf. There was a ringing silence. Everyone's eyes were now on Lupin, who looked remarkably calm, though rather pale. Not at all up to your usual standard, Hermione, he said. Only one out of three, I'm afraid. I have not been helping Sirius get into the castle, and I certainly don't want Harry dead. 
An odd shiver passed over his face. But I won't deny that I am a werewolf. Ron made a valiant effort to get up again, but fell back with a whimper of pain. Lupin made toward him, looking concerned, but Ron gasped, Get away from me, werewolf! Lupin stopped dead. Then, with an obvious effort, he turned to Hermione and said, How long have you known? Ages, Hermione whispered, since I did Professor Snape's essay. He'll be delighted, said Lupin coolly. He assigned that essay, hoping someone would realize what my symptoms meant. Did you check the lunar chart and realize that I was always ill at the full moon? Or did you realize that the bug art changed into the moon when it saw me? Both, Hermione said quietly. Lupin forced a laugh. You're the cleverest witch of your age I've ever met, Hermione. I'm not, Hermione whispered. If I'd been a bit cleverer, I'd have told everyone what you are. But they already know, said Lupin. At least the staff do. Dumbledore hired you when he knew you were a werewolf? Ron gasped. Is he mad? Some of the staff thought so, said Lupin. He had to work very hard to convince certain teachers that I'm trustworthy. And he was wrong, Harry yelled. You've been helping him all the time. He was pointing at Black, who suddenly crossed to the four-poster bed and sank onto it, his face hidden in one shaking hand. Crookshanks leapt up beside him and stepped onto his lap, purring. Ron edged away from both of them, dragging his leg. I have not been helping Sirius, said Lupin. If you'll give me a chance, I'll explain. Look, he separated Harry's, Ron's, and Hermione's ones, and threw each back to its owner. Harry caught his, stunned. There, said Lupin, sticking his own one back into his belt. You're armed, we're not. Now will you listen? Harry didn't know what to think. Was it a trick? If you haven't been helping him, he said with a furious glance at Black, how did you know he was here? The map, said Lupin, the marauder's map. I was in my office, examining it. You know how to work it? Harry said suspiciously. Of course I know how to work it, said Lupin, waving his hand impatiently. I help write it. I'm Mooney. That was my friend's nickname for me at school. You wrote? The important thing is I was watching it carefully this evening because I had an idea that you, Ron, and Hermione might try and sneak out of the castle to visit Hagrid before his hippogriff was executed. And I was right, wasn't I? He had started to pace up and down, looking at them. Little patches of dust rose at his feet. You might have been wearing your father's old cloak, Harry. How do you know about the cloak? The number of times I saw James disappearing under it, said Lupin, waving an impatient hand again. The point is, even if you're wearing an invisibility cloak, you still show up on the Marauder's map. I watched you cross the grounds and enter Hagrid's hut. Twenty minutes later, you left Hagrid and set off back toward the castle, but you were now accompanied by somebody else. What? said Harry. No, we weren't. I couldn't believe my eyes, 
said Lupin, still pacing and ignoring Harry's interruption. I thought the map must be malfunctioning. How could he be with you? No one was with us, said Harry. And then I saw another dot moving fast toward you, labelled Sirius Black. I saw him collide with you. I watched as he pulled two of you into the Whomping Willow. One of us, Ron said angrily. No, Ron, said Lupin. Two of you. He had stopped his pacing, his eyes moving over Ron. Do you think I could have a look at the rat? He said evenly. What? said Ron. What scabbers got to do with it? Everything, said Lupin. Could I see him, please? Ron hesitated, then put a hand inside his robes. Scabbers emerged, thrashing desperately. Ron had to seize his long, bald tail to stop him escaping. Crookshank stood up on Black's leg and made a soft, hissing noise. Lupin moved closer to Ron. He seemed to be holding his breath as he gazed intently at Scabbers. What? Ron said again, holding Scabbers close to him, looking scared. What's my rat got to do with anything? That's not a rat, croaked Sirius Black suddenly. What do you mean? Of course he's a rat. No, he's not, said Lupin quietly. He's a wizard. An animagus, said Black by the name of Peter Pettigrew. Chapter 18 Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs It took a few seconds for the absurdity of this statement to sink in. Then Ron voiced what Harry was thinking. You're both mental. Ridiculous, said Hermione faintly. Peter Pettigrew's dead said Harry. He killed him twelve years ago. He pointed at Black, whose face twitched convulsively. I meant to, he growled, his yellow teeth bared. But little Peter got the better of me. Not this time, though. And Crookshanks was thrown to the floor as Black lunged at Scabbers. Ron yelled with pain as Black's weight fell on his broken leg. Sirius, no! Lupin yelled, launching himself forwards and dragging Black away from Ron again. Wait! You can't do it just like that. They need to understand. We've got to explain. We can explain afterwards, snarled Black, trying to throw Lupin off. One hand was still clawing the air as it tried to reach Scabbers, who was squealing like a piglet, scratching Ron's face and neck as he tried to escape. They've got a right to know everything, Lupin panted, still trying to restrain Black. Ron's kept him as a pet. There are parts of it even I don't understand. And Harry, you owe Harry the truth, Sirius. Black stopped struggling, though his hollowed eyes were still fixed on Scabbers, who was clamped tightly under Ron's bitten, scratched and bleeding hands. All right, then. Black said, without taking his eyes off the rat. Tell them whatever you like, but make it quick, Remus. I want to commit the murder I was imprisoned for. You're nutters, both of you, said Ron shakily, looking round at Harry and Hermione for support. I've had enough of this. I'm off. 
He tried to heave himself up on his good leg, but Lupin raised his wand again, pointing it at Scabbers. You're going to hear me out, Ron, he said quietly. Just keep a tight hold on Peter while you listen. He's not Peter, he's Scabbers, Ron yelled, trying to force the rat back into his front pocket. But Scabbers was fighting too hard. Ron swayed and overbalanced, and Harry caught him and pushed him back down to the bed. Then, ignoring Black, Harry turned to Lupin. There were witnesses who saw Pettigrew die, he said, a whole street full of them. They didn't see what they thought they saw, said Black savagely, still watching Scabbers struggling in Ron's hands. Everyone thought Sirius killed Peter, said Lupin, nodding. I believed it myself until I saw the map tonight, because the Marauder's map never lies. Peter's alive. Ron's holding him, Harry. Harry looked down at Ron, and as their eyes met, they agreed silently. Black and Lupin were both out of their minds. Their story made no sense whatsoever. How could Scabbers be Peter Pettigrew? Azkaban must have unhinged Black after all. But why was Lupin playing along with him? Then Hermione spoke in a trembling, would-be-calm sort of voice, as though trying to will Professor Lupin to talk sensibly. But... Professor Lupin, Scabbers can't be Pettigrew. It just can't be true. You know it can't. Why can't it be true? Lupin said calmly, as though they were in class and Hermione had simply spotted a problem in an experiment with Grindy Lowe's. Because, because people would know if Peter Pettigrew had been an animagus. We did animagi in class with Professor McGonagall, and I looked them up when I did my homework. The Ministry of Magic keeps tabs on witches and wizards who can become animals. There's a register showing what animal they become and their markings and things. And I went and looked Professor McGonagall up on the register, and there have been only seven animagi this century, and Pettigrew's name wasn't on the list. Harry had barely had time to marvel inwardly at the effort Hermione put into her homework when Lupin started to laugh. Right again, Hermione, he said, but the Ministry never knew that there used to be three unregistered animagi running around Hogwarts. If you're going to tell them the story, get a move on, Remus, snarled Black, who was still watching Scabbers every desperate move. I've waited twelve years. I'm not going to wait much longer. All right, but you'll need to help me, Sirius, said Lupin. I only know how it began. Lupin broke off. There had been a loud crack behind him. The bedroom door had opened of its own accord. All five of them stared at it. Then Lupin strode toward it and looked out into the landing. No one there. This place is haunted said Ron. It's not, said Lupin, still looking at the door in a puzzled way. The shrieking shack was never haunted. The screams and howls the villagers used to hear were made by me. He pushed his graying hair out of his eyes, thought for a moment, then said, That's where all of this starts, with my becoming a werewolf. None of this could have happened if I hadn't been bitten, and if I hadn't been so foolhardy. 
He looked sober and tired. Ron started to interrupt, but Hermione said, Shh! She was watching Lupin very intently. I was a very small boy when I received the bite. My parents tried everything, but in those days there was no cure. The potion that Professor Snape has been making for me is a very recent discovery. It makes me safe, you see. As long as I take it in the week preceding the full moon, I keep my mind when I transform. I am able to curl up in my office, a harmless wolf, and wait for the moon to wane again. Before the wolf's bane potion was discovered, however, I became a fully-fledged monster once a month. It seemed impossible that I would be able to come to Hogwarts. Other parents weren't likely to want their children exposed to me. But then Dumbledore became headmaster, and he was sympathetic. He said that as long as we took certain precautions, there was no reason I shouldn't come to school. Lupin sighed and looked directly at Harry. I told you months ago that the Whomping Willow was planted the year I came to Hogwarts. The truth is that it was planted because I came to Hogwarts. This house, Lupin looked miserably around the room, the tunnel that leads to it, they were built for my use. Once a month I was smuggled out of the castle into this place to transform. The tree was placed at the tunnel mouth to stop anyone coming across me while I was dangerous. Harry couldn't see where this story was going, but he was listening raptly all the same. The only sound apart from Lupin's voice was Scabber's frightened squeaking. My transformations in those days were... were terrible. It is very painful to turn into a werewolf... I was separated from humans to bite, so I bit and scratched myself instead. The villagers heard the noise and the screaming and thought they were hearing particularly violent spirits. Dumbledore encouraged the rumor. Even now, when the house has been silent for years, the villagers don't dare approach it. But apart from my transformations, I was happier than I had ever been in my life. For the first time ever, I had friends, three great friends, Sirius Black, Peter Pettigrew, and, of course, your father, Harry, James Potter. Now, my three friends could hardly fail to notice that I disappeared once a month. I made up all sorts of stories. I told them my mother was ill and that I had to go home to see her. I was terrified they would desert me the moment they found out what I was. But of course, they, like you, Hermione, worked out the truth. And they didn't desert me at all. Instead, they did something for me that would make my transformations not only bearable, but the best times in my life. They became an Imagi. My dad, too? said Harry, astounded. Yes, indeed, said Lupin. It took them the best part of three years to work out how to do it. Your father and Sirius here were the cleverest students in the school. And lucky they were, because the Animagus transformation can go horribly wrong. 
one reason the ministry keeps a close watch on those attempting to do it. Peter needed all the help he could get from James and Sirius. Finally, in our fifth year, they managed it. They could each turn into a different animal at will. But how did that help you? said Hermione, sounding puzzled. They couldn't keep me company as humans, so they kept me company as animals, said Lupin. A werewolf is only a danger to people. They sneaked out of the castle every month under James's invisibility cloak. They transformed. Peter, as the smallest, could slip beneath the willow's attacking branches and touch the knot that freezes it. They would then slip down the tunnel and join me. Under their influence, I became less dangerous. My body was still wolfish, but my mind seemed to become less so while I was with them. Hurry up, Ramus, snarled Black, who was still watching Scabbers with a horrible sort of hunger on his face. I'm getting there, Sirius, I'm getting there. Well, highly exciting possibilities were open to us now that we could all transform. Soon we were leaving the shrieking shack and roaming the school grounds and the village by night. Sirius and James transformed into such large animals they were able to keep a werewolf in check. I doubt whether any Hogwarts students ever found out more about the Hogwarts grounds and Hogsmeade than we did, and that's how we came to write the Marauder's Map and sign it with our nicknames, Sirius is Padfoot, Peter is Wormtail, James was Prongs. What sort of animal? Harry began, but Hermione cut him off. That was still really dangerous, running around in the dark with a werewolf. What if you've given the others the slip and bitten somebody? A thought that still haunts me, said Lupin heavily and there were near misses, many of them. We laughed about them afterwards. We were young, thoughtless, carried away with our own cleverness. I sometimes felt guilty about betraying Dumbledore's trust, of course. He had admitted me to Hogwarts when no other headmaster would have done so, and he had no idea I was breaking the rules he had set down for my own and others' safety. He never knew I had led three fellow students into becoming Animagi illegally, but I always managed to forget my guilty feelings every time we sat down to plan our next month's adventure, and I haven't changed. Lupin's face had hardened, and there was self-disgust in his voice. All this year I have been battling with myself, wondering whether I should tell Dumbledore that Sirius was an animagus, but I didn't do it. Why? Because I was too cowardly. It would have meant admitting that I'd betrayed his trust while I was at school, admitting that I'd led others along with me, and Dumbledore's trust has meant everything to me. He let me into Hogwarts as a boy, and he gave me a job when I have been shunned all my adult life, unable to find paid work because of what I am, and so I convinced myself that Sirius was getting into the school using dark arts he learnt from Voldemort, that being an animagus had nothing to do with it. So, in a way, Snape's been right about me all along. Snape? said Black harshly, taking his eyes off Scabbers for the first time in minutes and looking up at Lupin. What's Snape got to do with it? He's here, 
serious, said Lupin heavily. He's teaching here as well. He looked up at Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Professor Snape was at school with us. He fought very hard against my appointment to the Defense Against the Dark Arts job. He has been telling Dumbledore all year that I am not to be trusted. He has his reasons. You see, Sirius here played a trick on him which nearly killed him, a trick which involved me. Black made a derisive noise. It served him right, he sneered, sneaking around, trying to find out what we were up to, hoping he could get us expelled. Severus was very interested in where I went every month, Lupin told Harry, Ron, and Hermione. We were in the same year, you know, and we, uh, didn't like each other very much. He especially disliked James. Jealous, I think, of James's talent on the Quidditch field. Anyway, Snape had seen me crossing the grounds with Madame Pomfrey one evening as she led me toward the Whomping Willow to transform. Sirius thought it would be, uh, amusing to tell Snape all he had to do was prod the knot on the tree trunk with a long stick, and he'd be able to get in after me. Well, of course, Snape tried it. If he'd got as far as this house, he'd have met a fully grown werewolf. But your father, who'd heard what Sirius had done, went after Snape and pulled him back, at great risk to his life. Snape glimpsed me, though, at the end of the tunnel. He was forbidden by Dumbledore to tell anybody, but from that time on, he knew what I was. So that's why Snape doesn't like you, said Harry slowly, because he thought you were in on the joke. That's right, sneered a cold voice from the wall behind Lupin. Severus Snape was pulling off the invisibility cloak, his wand pointing directly at Lupin. Chapter 19 The Servant of Lord Voldemort Hermione screamed. Black leapt to his feet. Harry felt as though he'd received a huge electric shock. I found this at the base of the Whomping Willow, said Snape, throwing the cloak aside, careful to keep this one pointing directly at Lupin's chest. Very useful, Potter. I thank you. Snape was slightly breathless, but his face was full of suppressed triumph. You're wondering perhaps how I knew you were here, he said, his eyes glittering. I've just been to your office, Lupin. You forgot to take your potion tonight, so I took a goblet full along. And very lucky I did. Lucky for me, I mean. Lying on your desk was a certain map. One glance at it told me all I needed to know— I saw you running along this passageway and out of sight. Severus, Lupin began, but Snape overrode him. I've told the headmaster again and again that you're helping your old friend Black into the castle, Lupin, and here's the proof. Not even I dreamed you would have the nerve to use this old place as your hideout. Severus, you're making a mistake said Lupin urgently. You haven't heard everything. I can explain. Sirius is not here to kill Harry. Two more for Azkaban tonight, said Snape, his eyes now gleaming fanatically. I shall be interested to see how Dumbledore takes this. He was quite convinced you were harmless. You know, Lupin, a tame werewolf. 
"'You fool,' said Lupin softly. "'Is a schoolboy grudge worth putting an innocent man back inside Azkaban?' Bang! Thin, snake-like cords burst from the end of Snape's wand and twisted themselves around Lupin's mouth, wrists, and ankles. He overbalanced and fell to the floor, unable to move. With a roar of rage, Black started towards Snape, but Snape pointed his wand straight between Black's eyes. "'Give me a reason!' he whispered. Give me a reason to do it, and I swear I will. Black stopped dead. It would have been impossible to say which face showed more hatred. Harry stood there, paralyzed, not knowing what to do or whom to believe. He glanced around at Ron and Hermione. Ron looked just as confused as he did, still fighting to keep hold on the struggling scabbers. Hermione, however, took an uncertain step towards Snape and said in a very breathless voice, Professor Snape, it, it wouldn't hurt to hear what they've got to say, w would it? Miss Granger, you are already facing suspension from this school. Snape spat. You, Potter, and Weasley are out of bounds in the company of a convicted murderer and a werewolf. For once in your life, hold your tongue! But if, if there was a mistake, keep quiet, you stupid girl! Snape shouted, looking suddenly quite deranged. Don't talk about what you don't understand! A few sparks shot out of the end of his wand, which was still pointed at Black's face. Hermione fell silent. Vengeance is very sweet, Snape breathed at Black. How I hoped I would be the one to catch you. The joke's on you again, Severus, Black snarled. As long as this boy brings his rat up to the castle, he jerked his head at Ron. I'll come quietly. Up to the castle, said Snape silkily. I don't think we need to go that far. All I have to do is call the Dementors once we get out of the Willow. They'll be very pleased to see you, Black. Pleased enough to give you a little kiss, I dare say. What little color there was in Black's face left it. You, you've got to hear me out, he croaked. The rat! Look at the rat! but there was a mad glint in Snape's eyes that Harry had never seen before. He seemed beyond reason. Come on, all of you, he said. He clicked his fingers, and the ends of the cords that bound Lupin flew to his hands. I'll drag the werewolf. Perhaps the Dementors will have a kiss for him, too. Before he knew what he was doing, Harry had crossed the room in three strides and blocked the door. Get out of the way, Potter. You're in enough trouble already, snarled Snape. If I hadn't been here to save your skin. Professor Lupin could have killed me about a hundred times this year, Harry said. I've been alone with him loads of times, having defense lessons against the Dementors. If he was helping Black, why didn't he just finish me off then? Don't ask me to fathom the way a werewolf's mind works, hissed Snape. Get out of the way, Potter. You're pathetic, Harry yelled. Just because they made a fool of you at school, you won't even listen. Silence! I will not be spoken to like that, 
Snape shrieked, looking madder than ever. Like father, like son, Potter, I have just saved your neck. You should be thanking me on bended knee. You would have been well served if he'd killed you. You'd have died like your father, too arrogant to believe you might be mistaken in black. Now get out of the way, or I will make you. Get out of the way, Potter. Harry made up his mind in a split second. Before Snape could take even one step toward him, he had raised his wand. Expelliarmus, he yelled, except that his wasn't the only voice that shouted. There was a blast that made the door rattle on its hinges. Snape was lifted off his feet and slammed into the wall, then slid down it to the floor, a trickle of blood oozing from under his hair. He had been knocked out. Harry looked around. Both Ron and Hermione had tried to disarm Snape at exactly the same moment. Snape's wand soared in a high arc and landed on the bed next to Crookshanks. "'You shouldn't have done that,' said Black, looking at Harry. "'You should have left him to me.' Harry avoided Black's eyes. He wasn't sure even now that he'd done the right thing. "'We attacked a teacher! We attacked a teacher!' Hermione whimpered, staring at the lifeless Snape with frightened eyes. Oh, we're going to be in so much trouble. Lupin was struggling against his bonds. Black bent down quickly and untied him. Lupin straightened up, rubbing his arms where the ropes had cut into them. Thank you, Harry, he said. I'm still not saying I believe you, he told Lupin. Then it's time we offered you some proof, said Lupin. You, boy, give me Peter, please. Now. Ron clutched Scabbers closer to his chest. Come off it, he said weakly. Are you trying to say he broke out of Azkaban just to get his hands on Scabbers? I mean... He looked up at Harry and Hermione for support. Okay, say Pettigrew could turn into a rat. There are millions of rats. How's he supposed to know which one he's after if he was locked up in Azkaban? You know, Sirius, that's a fair question, said Lupin, turning to Black and frowning slightly. How did you find out where he was? Black put one of his claw-like hands inside his robes and took out a crumpled piece of paper, which he smoothed flat and held out to show the others. It was the photograph of Ron and his family that had appeared in the Daily Prophet the previous summer, and there, on Ron's shoulder, was Scabbers. How did you get this? Lupin asked Black, thunderstruck. Fudge, said Black. When he came to inspect Azkaban last year, he gave me his paper, and there was Peter on the front page on this boy's shoulder. I knew him at once. How many times had I seen him transform? And the caption said the boy would be going back to Hogwarts, to where Harry was. My God, said Lupin, softly, staring from Scabbers to the picture in the paper and back again. His front paw. What about it? said Ron defiantly. He's got a toe missing, said Black. Of course, Lupin breathed, so simple, so brilliant. He cut it off himself. Just before he transformed, said Black. When I cornered him, he yelled for the whole street to hear that I'd betrayed Lily and James. Then before I could curse him... He blew apart the street with the wand behind his back, killed everyone within twenty feet of himself, and sped down into the sewer with the other rats. Didn't you ever hear, Ron, 
said Lupin, the biggest bit of Peter they found was his finger. Look, Scabbers probably had a fight with another rat or something. He's been in my family for ages, right? Twelve years, in fact, said Lupin. Didn't you ever wonder why he was living so long? We... we've been taking good care of him, said Ron. Not looking too good at the moment, though, is he? said Lupin. I'd guess he's been losing weight ever since he heard Sirius was on the loose again. He's been scared of that mad cat, said Ron, nodding toward Crookshanks, who was still purring on the bed. But that wasn't right, Harry thought suddenly. Scabbers had been looking ill before he met Crookshanks, ever since Ron's return from Egypt, since the time when Black had escaped. This cat isn't mad? said Black hoarsely. He reached out a bony hand and stroked Crookshank's fluffy head. He's the most intelligent of his kind I've ever met. He recognized Peter for what he was right away. And when he met me, he knew I was no dog. It was a while before he trusted me. Finally, I managed to communicate to him what I was after, and he's been helping me. What do you mean? breathed Hermione. He tried to bring Peter to me, but couldn't, so he stole the passwords into Gryffindor Tower for me. As I understand it, he took them from a boy's bedside table. Harry's brain seemed to be sagging under the weight of what he was hearing. It was absurd, and yet... But Peter got wind of what was going on and ran for it, croaked Black. This cat, Crookshanks, did you call him, told me Peter had left blood on the sheets. I suppose he bit himself. Well, faking his own death had worked once. These words jolted Harry to his senses. And why did he fake his death? he said furiously. Because he knew you were about to kill him, like you killed my parents? No, said Lupin. Harry, and now you've come to finish him off? Yes. I have, said Black, with an evil look at Scabbers. Then I should have let Snape take you, Harry shouted. Harry, said Lupin hurriedly, don't you see, all this time we've thought Sirius betrayed your parents, and Peter tracked him down, but it was the other way around. Don't you see, Peter betrayed your mother and father. Sirius tracked Peter down. That's not true, Harry yelled. He was their secret keeper. He said so before you turned up. He said he killed them. He was pointing at Black, who shook his head slowly. The sunken eyes were suddenly overbright. Harry, I as good as killed them, he croaked. I persuaded Lily and James to change to Peter at the last moment, persuaded them to use him as secret keeper instead of me. I'm to blame, I know it. The night they died, I'd arranged to check on Peter, make sure he was still safe. But when I arrived at his hiding place, he'd gone. Yet there was no sign of a struggle. It didn't feel right. I was scared. I set out for your parents' house straight away. And when I saw their house destroyed and their bodies, I realized what Peter must have done. What I'd done. His voice broke. He turned away. Enough of this, said Lupin. And there was a steely note in his voice Harry had never heard before. There's one certain way to prove what really happened. Ron... 
Give me that rat. What are you going to do with him if I give him to you? Ron asked Lupin tensely. Force him to show himself, said Lupin. If he really is a rat, it won't hurt him. Ron hesitated. Then at long last he held out Scabbers, and Lupin took him. Scabbers began to squeak without stopping, twisting and turning, his tiny black eyes bulging in his head. Ready, Sirius? said Lupin. Black had already retrieved Snape's wand from the bed. He approached Lupin and the struggling rat, and his wet eyes suddenly seemed to be burning in his face. Together, he said quietly. I think so, said Lupin, holding Scabbers tightly in one hand and his wand in the other. On the count of three. One, two, three. A flash of blue-white light erupted from both wands. For a moment, Scabbers was frozen in midair, his small grey form twisting madly. Ron yelled. The rat fell and hit the floor. There was another blinding flash of light, and then... It was like watching a speeded-up film of a growing tree. A head was shooting upward from the ground. Limbs were sprouting. A moment later, a man was standing where Scabbers had been, cringing and wringing his hands. Cookshanks was spitting and snarling on the bed. The hair on his back was standing up. He was a very short man, hardly taller than Harry and Hermione. His thin, colourless hair was unkempt, and there was a large bald patch on top. He had the shrunken appearance of a plump man who has lost a lot of weight in a short time. His skin looked grubby, almost like Scabber's fur, and something of the rat lingered around his pointed nose and his very small, watery eyes. He looked around at them all, his breathing fast and shallow. Harry saw his eyes dart to the door and back again. "'Well, hello, Peter!' said Lupin pleasantly, as the rats frequently erupted into old-school friends around him. Long time no see. S-Sirius! Remus! Even Pettigrew's voice was squeaky. Again his eyes darted toward the door. My friends! My old friends! Black's wand arm rose, but Lupin seized him around the wrist, gave him a warning look, then turned again to Pettigrew, his voice light and casual. We've been having a little chat, Peter, about what happened the night Lily and James died. You might have missed the finer points while you were squeaking around down there on the bed. Remus, gasped Pettigrew, and Harry could see beads of sweat breaking out over his pasty face. You don't believe him, do you? He tried to kill me, Remus. So we've heard, said Lupin more coldly. I'd like to clear up one or two little matters with you, Peter, if you'd be so. He's come to try and kill me again! Pettigrew squeaked suddenly, pointing at Black, and Harry saw that he used his middle finger because his index was missing. He killed Lillian James and now he's going to kill me too. You've got to help me, Remus! Black's face looked more skull-like than ever as he stared at Pettigrew with his fathomless eyes. "'No one's going to try and kill you until we've sorted a few things out,' said Lupin. "'Sorted things out?' squealed Pettigrew, looking wildly about him once more, eyes taking in the boarded windows and, again, the only door. "'I knew he'd come after me! I knew he'd be back for me! I've been waiting for this for twelve years!' "'You knew Sirius was going to break out of Azkaban?' said Lupin. His brow furrowed. When nobody has ever done it before? 
got dark powers the rest of us can only dream of, Pettigrew shouted shrilly. How else did he get out of there? I suppose he who must not be named taught him a few tricks. Black started to laugh, a horrible mirthless laugh that filled the whole room. Voldemort, teach me tricks, he said. Pettigrew flinched as though Black had brandished a whip at him. What? Scared to hear your old master's name? said Black. I don't blame you, Peter. His lot aren't very happy with you, are they? Don't know what you mean, Sirius, muttered Pettigrew, his breathing faster than ever. His whole face was shining with sweat now. You haven't been hiding from me for twelve years, said Black. You've been hiding from Voldemort's old supporters. I heard things in Azkaban, Peter. They all think you're dead, or you'd have to answer to them. I've heard them screaming all sorts of things in their sleep. Sounds like they think the double-crosser double-crossed them. Voldemort went to the Potters on your information, and Voldemort met his downfall there. And not all Voldemort's supporters ended up in Azkaban, did they? There are still plenty out here, biding their time, pretending they've seen the error of their ways. If they ever got wind that you were still alive, Peter... Don't know what you're talking about said Pettigrew again, more shrilly than ever. He wiped his face on his sleeve and looked up at Lupin. You don't believe this, this madness, Remus? I must admit, Peter, I have difficulty in understanding why an innocent man would want to spend twelve years as a rat, said Lupin evenly. Innocent, but scared, squealed Pettigrew. If Voldemort's supporters were after me, it was because I put one of their best men in Azkaban, the spy, Sirius Black. Black's face contorted. How dare you, he growled, sounding suddenly like the bear-sized dog he had been. I, a spy for Voldemort? When did I ever sneak around people who were stronger and more powerful than myself? But you, Peter, I'll never understand why I didn't see you were the spy from the start. You always liked big friends who'd look after you, didn't you? It used to be us, me and Remus and James. Pettigrew wiped his face again. He was almost panting for breath. Me, a spy, must be out of your mind. Never. Don't know how you can say such a... Lily and James only made you secret keeper because I suggested it. Black hissed so venomously that Pettigrew took a step backward. I thought it was the perfect plan. A bluff. Voldemort would be sure to come after me. Would never dream they'd use a weak, talentless thing like you. It must have been the finest moment of your miserable life, telling Voldemort you could hand him the potters. Pettigrew was muttering distractedly. Harry caught words like, Far-fetched! And lunacy! but he couldn't help paying more attention to the ashen colour of Pettigrew's face and the way his eyes continued to dart toward the windows and door. Professor Lupin, said Hermione timidly, can, can I say something? Certainly, Hermione, said Lupin courteously. Well, Scabbers, I mean, this, this man, he's been sleeping in Harry's dormitory for three years. If he's working for you-know-who, how come he never tried to hurt Harry before now? There! said Pettigrew shrilly, pointing at Ron with his maimed hand. Thank you! You see, 
Remus, I have never hurt a hair of Harry's head. Why should I? I'll tell you why, said Black, because you never did anything for anyone unless you could see what was in it for you. Voldemort's been in hiding for fifteen years. They say he's half dead. You weren't about to commit murder right under Albus Dumbledore's nose for a wreck of a wizard who'd lost all his power, were you? You'd want to be quite sure he was the biggest bully in the playground before you went back to him, wouldn't you? Why else did you find a wizard family to take you in? Keeping an ear out for news, weren't you, Peter? Just in case your old protector regained strength and it was safe to rejoin him. Pettigrew opened his mouth and closed it several times. He seemed to have lost the ability to talk. Ah, Mr. Black, Sirius, said Hermione. Black jumped at being addressed like this, and stared at Hermione as though he had never seen anything quite like her. If you don't mind me asking, how, how did you get out of Azkaban if you didn't use dark magic? Thank you, gasped Pettigrew, nodding frantically at her. Exactly, precisely what I... But Lupin silenced him with a look. Black was frowning slightly at Hermione, but not as though he were annoyed with her. He seemed to be pondering his answer. I don't know how I did it, he said slowly. I think the only reason I never lost my mind is that I knew I was innocent. That wasn't a happy thought, so the Dementors couldn't suck it out of me. But it kept me sane and knowing who I am helped me keep my powers. So when it all became too much, I could transform in my cell, become a dog. Dementors can't see, you know. He swallowed. They feel their way toward people by feeding off their emotions. They could tell that my feelings were less, less human, less complex when I was a dog. But they thought, of course, that I was losing my mind like everyone else in there, so it didn't trouble them. But I was weak, very weak, and I had no hope of driving them away from me without a wand. But then... I saw Peter in that picture. I realized he was at Hogwarts with Harry, perfectly positioned to act if one hint reached his ears that the dark side was gathering strength again. Pettigrew was shaking his head, mouthing noiselessly, but staring all the while at Black as though hypnotized, ready to strike at the moment he could be sure of allies, and to deliver the last potter to them. If he gave them Harry... Who dare say he'd betrayed Lord Voldemort? He'd be welcomed back with honors. So, you see, I had to do something. I was the only one who knew Peter was still alive. Harry remembered what Mr. Weasley had told Mrs. Weasley. The guards say he's been talking in his sleep always the same words. He's at Hogwarts. It was as if someone had lit a fire in my head and the Dementors couldn't destroy it. It wasn't a happy feeling. It was an obsession. But it gave me strength. It cleared my mind. So one night, when they opened my door to bring food, I slipped past them as a dog. It's so much harder for them to sense animal emotions that they were confused. I was thin, very thin, thin enough to slip through the bars. I swam as a dog back to the mainland. I journeyed north and slipped into the Hogwarts grounds as a dog. I've been living in the forest ever since, 
except when I came to watch the Quidditch, of course. You fly as well as your father did, Harry. He looked at Harry, who did not look away. Believe me, croaked Black, believe me, Harry, I never betrayed James and Lily. I would have died before I betrayed them. And at long last, Harry believed him. Throat too tight to speak, he nodded. No! Pettigrew had fallen to his knees as though Harry's nod had been his own death sentence. He shuffled forward on his knees, groveling, his hands clasped in front of him as though praying. Sirius, it's me, it's Peter, your friend, you wouldn't... Black kicked out, and Pettigrew recoiled. There's enough filth on my robes without you touching them, said Black. Remus! Pettigrew squeaked, turning to Lupin instead, writhing imploringly in front of him. You don't believe this? Wouldn't Sirius have told you they'd changed the plan? Not if he thought I was the spy, Peter, said Lupin. I assume that's why you didn't tell me, Sirius, he said casually over Pettigrew's head. Forgive me, Remus, said Black. Not at all, Padfoot, old friend, said Lupin, who was now rolling up his sleeves. And will you, in turn, forgive me for believing you were the spy? Of course, said Black, and the ghost of a grin flitted across his gaunt face. He, too, began rolling up his sleeves. Shall we kill him together? Yes, I think so, said Lupin grimly. You wouldn't! You won't! gasped Pettigrew, and he scrambled around to Ron. Ron! Haven't I been a good friend, a good pet? You won't let them kill me, Ron, will you? You're on my side, aren't you? But Ron was staring at Pettigrew with the utmost revulsion. I let you sleep in my bed, he said. Kind boy, kind master, Pettigrew crawled toward Ron. You won't let them do it. I was your rat. I was a good pet. If you made a better rat than a human, it's not much to boast about, Peter, said Black harshly. Ron, going still paler with pain, wrenched his broken leg out of Pettigrew's reach. Pettigrew turned on his knees, staggered forward, and seized the hem of Hermione's robes. Sweet girl, clever girl, you... you won't let them... help me! Hermione pulled her robes out of Pettigrew's clutching hands and backed away against the wall, looking horrified. Pettigrew knelt, trembling uncontrollably, and turned his head slowly toward Harry. Harry, Harry, you look just like your father, just like him. How dare you speak to Harry, roared Black. How dare you face him? How dare you talk about James in front of him? Harry, whispered Pettigrew, shuffling toward him, hands outstretched. Harry, James wouldn't have wanted me killed. James would have understood, Harry. He would have shown me mercy. Both Black and Lupin strode forward, seized Pettigrew's shoulders, and threw him backward onto the floor. He sat there twitching with terror, staring up at them. You sold Lily and James to Voldemort, said Black, who was shaking too. Do you deny it? 
Pettigrew burst into tears. It was horrible to watch like an oversized balding baby cowering on the floor. Sidious, Sidious, what could I have done? The Dark Lord, you have no idea. He has weapons you can't imagine. I was scared, Sidious. I was never brave like you and Remus and James. I never meant it to happen. He who must not be named forced me. Don't lie. Bellowed Black. You'd been passing information to him for a year before Lillian James died. You were his spy. He, he was taking over everywhere. Gasped Pettigrew. What, what was there to be gained by refusing him? What was there to be gained by fighting the most evil wizard who has ever existed? Said Black with a terrible fury in his face. Only innocent lives, Peter. You don't understand, whined Pettigrew. He would have killed me, Sidious. Then you should have died, roared Black. Died rather than betray your friends, as we would have done for you. Black and Lupin stood shoulder to shoulder, ones raised. You should have realized, said Lupin quietly. If Voldemort didn't kill you, we would. Goodbye, Peter. Hermione covered her face with her hands and turned to the wall. No! Harry yelled. He ran forward, placing himself in front of Pettigrew, facing the ones. You can't kill him, he said breathlessly. You can't! Black and Lupin both looked staggered. Harry, this piece of vermin is the reason you have no parents, Black snarled. This cringing bit of filth would have seen you die too, without turning a hair. You heard him. His own stinking skin meant more to him than your whole family. I know, Harry panted. We'll take him up to the castle. We'll hand him over to the Dementors. He can go to Azkaban. But don't kill him. Harry, gasped Pettigrew, and he flung his arms around Harry's knees. You, thank you. It's more than I deserve. Thank you. Get off me. Harry spat, throwing Pettigrew's hands off him in disgust. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it because I don't reckon my dad would have wanted them to become killers just for you. No one moved or made a sound except Pettigrew, whose breath was coming in wheezes as he clutched his chest. Black and Lupin were looking at each other. Then, with one movement, they lowered their wands. You're the only person who has the right to decide, Harry, said Black. But think, think what he did. He can go to Azkaban, Harry repeated. If anyone deserves that place, he does. Pettigrew was still wheezing behind him. Very well, said Lupin. Stand aside, Harry. Harry hesitated. I'm going to tie him up, said Lupin. That's all, I swear. Harry stepped out of the way. Thin cords shot from Lupin's wand this time. The next moment, Pettigrew was wriggling on the floor, bound and gagged. But if you transform, Peter, growled Black, his own wand pointing at Pettigrew too, we will kill you. You agree, Harry? Harry looked down at the pitiful figure on the floor and nodded so that Pettigrew could see him. Right, said Lupin, suddenly businesslike. Ron, I can't mend bones nearly as well as Madame Pomfrey, so I think it's best if we just strap your leg up until we can get you to the hospital wing. He hurried over to Ron, bent down, tapped Ron's leg with his wand, and muttered, Ferula. Bandages spun up Ron's leg, strapping it tightly to a splint. 
Lupin helped him to his feet. Ron put his weight gingerly on the leg and didn't wince. That's better, he said. Thanks. What about Professor Snape? said Hermione in a small voice, looking down at Snape's prone figure. There's nothing seriously wrong with him, said Lupin, bending over Snape and checking his pulse. You were just a little over-enthusiastic, still out cold. Uh, perhaps it will be best if we don't revive him until we're safely back in the castle. We can take him like this. He muttered, Mobile corpus. As though invisible strings were tied to Snape's wrists, neck and knees, he was pulled into a standing position, head still lolling unpleasantly, like a grotesque puppet. He hung a few inches above the ground, his limp feet dangling. Lupin picked up the invisibility cloak and tucked it safely into his pocket. "'And two of us should be chained to this,' said Black, nudging Pettigrew with his toe, "'just to make sure.' "'I'll do it,' said Lupin. "'And me,' said Ron, savagely limping forward. Black conjured heavy manacles from thin air. Soon Pettigrew was upright again, left arm chained to Lupin's right, right arm to Ron's left.' Ron's face was set. He seemed to have taken Scabber's true identity as a personal insult. Crookshanks leapt lightly off the bed and led the way out of the room, his bottle-brushed tail held jauntily high. Chapter 20 The Dementor's Kiss Harry had never been part of a stranger group. Crookshanks led the way down the stairs. Lupin, Pettigrew, and Ron went next, looking like entrance in a six-legged race. Next came Professor Snape, drifting creepily along, his toes hitting each stair as they descended, held up by his own wand, which was being pointed at him by Sirius. Harry and Hermione brought up the rear. Getting back into the tunnel was difficult. Lupin, Pettigrew, and Ron had to turn sideways to manage it. Lupin still had Pettigrew covered with his wand. Harry could see them edging awkwardly along the tunnel in single file. Crookshanks was still in the lead. Harry went right after Black, who was still making Snape drift along ahead of them. He kept bumping his lolling head on the low ceiling. Harry had the impression Black was making no effort to prevent this. You know what this means? Black said abruptly to Harry as they made their slow progress along the tunnel. Turning Pettigrew in. You're free, said Harry. Yes, said Black, but I'm also... I don't know if anyone ever told you. I'm your godfather. Yeah, I knew that, said Harry. Well, your parents appointed me your guardian, said Black stiffly. If anything happened to them... Harry waited... Did Black mean what he thought he meant? I'll understand, of course, if you want to stay with your aunt and uncle, said Black. But, well, think about it. Once my name's cleared, if you wanted a, a different home... Some sort of explosion took place in the pit of Harry's stomach. What? Live with you? He said, accidentally cracking his head on a bit of rock protruding from the ceiling. Leave the Dursleys? Of course, I thought you wouldn't want to, said Black quickly. I understand, I just thought I'd... Are you insane? said Harry, his voice easily as croaky as Black's. Of course I want to leave the Dursleys. Have you got a house? When can I move in? Black turned right around to look at him. Snape's head was scraping the ceiling, but Black didn't seem to care. You want to? he said. You mean it? Yeah. 
I mean it, said Harry. Black's gaunt face broke into the first true smile Harry had seen upon it. The difference it made was startling, as though a person ten years younger was shining through the starved mask. For a moment, he was recognizable as the man who had laughed at Harry's parents' wedding. They did not speak again until they had reached the end of the tunnel. Crookshanks darted up first. He had evidently pressed his paw to the knot on the trunk, because Lupin, Pettigrew, and Ron clambered upward without any sign of savaging branches. Black saw Snape up through the hole, then stood back for Harry and Hermione to pass. At last, all of them were out. The grounds were very dark now. The only light came from the distant windows of the castle. Without a word, they set off. Pettigrew was still wheezing and occasionally whimpering. Harry's mind was buzzing. He was going to leave the Dursleys. He was going to live with Sirius Black, his parents' best friend. He felt dazed. What would happen when he told the Dursleys he was going to live with the convict they'd seen on television? One wrong move, Peter, said Looping, threateningly ahead. His wand was still pointed sideways at Pettigrew's chest. Silently, they tramped through the grounds, the castle lights growing slowly larger. Snape was still drifting weirdly ahead of Black, his chin bumping on his chest. And then... A cloud shifted. There was suddenly dim shadows on the ground. Their party was bathed in moonlight. Snape collided with Lupin, Pettigrew, and Ron, who had stopped abruptly. Black froze. He flung out one arm to make Harry and Hermione stop. Harry could see Lupin's silhouette. He had gone rigid. Then his limbs began to shake. Oh, my, Hermione gasped. He didn't take his potion tonight. He's not safe. Run, Black whispered. Run, now. But Harry couldn't run. Ron was chained to Pettigrew and Lupin. He leapt forward, but Black caught him around the chest and threw him back. Leave it to me. Run. There was a terrible snarling noise. Lupin's head was lengthening, so was his body. His shoulders were hunching. Hair was sprouting visibly on his face and hands, which were curling into clawed paws. Cookshank's hair was on end again. He was backing away. As the werewolf reared, snapping its long jaws, Sirius disappeared from Harry's side. He had transformed. The enormous, bear-like dog bounded forward. As the werewolf wrenched itself free of the manacle binding it, the dog seized it about the neck and pulled it backward, away from Ron and Pettigrew. They were locked jaw to jaw, claws ripping at each other. Harry stood transfixed by the sight, too intent upon the battle to notice anything else. It was Amani's scream that alerted him. Pettigrew had died for Lupin's dropped wand. Ron, unsteady on his bandaged leg, fell. There was a bang, a burst of light, and Ron lay motionless on the ground. Another bang. Crookshanks flew into the air and back to the earth in a heap. Expelliarmus! Harry yelled, pointing his own wand at Pettigrew. Lupin's wand flew high into the air and out of sight. Stay where you are! Harry shouted, running forward. Too late. Pettigrew had transformed. Harry saw his bald tail whip through the manacle on Ron's outstretched arm and heard a scurrying through the grass. There was a howl and a rumbling growl. Harry turned to see the werewolf taking flight. It was galloping into the forest. Sirius, he's gone! Pettigrew transformed! Harry yelled. Black was bleeding. There were gashes across his muzzle and back. But at Harry's words, he scrambled up again, and in an instant the sound of his paws faded to silence as he pounded away across the grounds. Harry and Hermione dashed over to Ron. What did he do to him? 
Hermione whispered. Ron's eyes were only half closed. His mouth hung open. He was definitely alive. They could hear him breathing, but he didn't seem to recognize them. I don't know. Harry looked desperately around. Black and Lupin, both gone. They had no one but Snape for company, still hanging unconscious in midair. We'd better get them up to the castle and tell someone, said Harry, pushing his hair out of his eyes, trying to think straight. Come. But then, from beyond the range of their vision, they heard a yelping, a whining, a dog in pain. Serious, Harry muttered, staring into the darkness. He had a moment's indecision, but there was nothing they could do for Ron at the moment, and by the sound of it, Black was in trouble. Harry set off at a run, Hermione right behind him. The yelping seemed to be coming from the ground near the edge of the lake. They pelted toward it, and Harry, running flat out, felt the cold without realizing what it must mean. The yelping stopped abruptly. As they reached the lake shore, they saw why. Sirius had turned back into a man. He was crouched on all fours, his hands over his head. No! he moaned. No! Please! And then Harry saw them. Dementors, at least a hundred of them, gliding in a black mass around the lake toward them. He spun round, the familiar icy cold penetrating his insides, fog starting to obscure his vision. More were appearing out of the darkness on every side. They were encircling them. Hermione, think of something happy, Harry yelled, raising his wand, blinking furiously to try and clear his vision, shaking his head to rid it of the faint screaming that had started inside it. I'm going to live with my godfather. I'm leaving the Dursleys. He forced himself to think of Black, and only Black, and began to chant, Expecto Patronum! Expecto Patronum! Black gave a shudder, rolled over, and lay motionless on the ground, pale as death. He'll be all right. I'm going to go and live with him. Expecto Patronum! Hermione, help me! Expecto Patronum! Expecto! Hermione whispered. Expecto! Expecto! But she couldn't do it. The Dementors were closing in, barely ten feet from them. They formed a solid wall around Harry and Hermione, and were getting closer. Expecto Patronum! Harry yelled, trying to blot the screaming from his ears. Expecto Patronum! A thin wisp of silver escaped his wand and hovered like mist before him. At the same moment, Harry felt Hermione collapse next to him. He was alone, completely alone. Expecto, expecto, patronum. Harry felt his knees hit the cold grass. Fog was clouding his eyes. With a huge effort, he fought to remember. Sirius was innocent. Innocent. We'll be okay. I'm going to live with him. Expecto Patronum, he gasped. By the feeble light of his formless Patronus, he saw a Dementor halt very close to him. It couldn't walk through the cloud of silver mist Harry had conjured. A dead, slimy hand slid out from under the cloak. It made a gesture as though to sweep the Patronus aside. No, no, Harry gasped. He's innocent. Expecto, expecto, Patronum. He could feel them watching him, hear their rattling breath like an evil wind around him. The nearest Dementor seemed to be considering him. Then it raised both its rotting hands and lowered its hood. Where there should have been eyes... There was only thin, grey, scabbed skin stretched blankly over empty sockets, 
but there was a mouth, a gaping, shapeless hole, sucking the air with the sound of a death rattle. A paralyzing terror filled Harry so that he couldn't move or speak. His Patronus flickered and died. White fog was blinding him. He had to fight. Expecto! Patronum! He couldn't see, and in the distance he heard the familiar screaming. Expecto! Patronum! He groped in the mist for Sirius and found his arm. They weren't going to take him, but a pair of strong, clammy hands suddenly attached themselves around Harry's neck. They were forcing his face upward. He could feel its breath. It was going to get rid of him first. He could feel its putrid breath. His mother was screaming in his ears. She was going to be the last thing he ever heard. And then, through the fog that was drowning him, he thought he saw a silvery light growing brighter and brighter. He felt himself fall forward onto the grass. Face down, too weak to move, sick and shaking, Harry opened his eyes. The Dementor must have released him. The blinding light was illuminating the grass around him. The screaming had stopped. The cold was ebbing away. Something was driving the Dementors back. It was circling around him and Black and Hermione. They were leaving. The air was warm again. With every ounce of strength he could muster, Harry raised his head a few inches and saw an animal amid the light galloping away across the lake. Eyes blurred with sweat, Harry tried to make out what it was. It was as bright as a unicorn. Fighting to stay conscious, Harry watched it canter to a halt as it reached the opposite shore. For a moment, Harry saw, by its brightness, somebody welcoming it back, raising his hand to pat it, someone who looked strangely familiar. But it couldn't be. Harry didn't understand. He couldn't think any more. He felt the last of his strength leave him, and his head hit the ground as he fainted. Chapter 21 Hermione's Secret Shocking business. Shocking. Miracle none of them died. Never heard the like. By thunder, it was lucky you were there, Snape. Thank you, Minister. Order of Merlin. Second class, I'd say. First class, if I can wangle it. Thank you very much indeed, Minister. Nasty cut you've got there. Black's work, I suppose. As a matter of fact, it was Potter, Weasley and Granger, Minister. No. Black had bewitched them. I saw it immediately. A confundus charm, to judge by their behavior. They seemed to think there was a possibility he was innocent. They weren't responsible for their actions... On the other hand, their interference might have permitted Black to escape. They obviously thought they were going to catch Black single-handed. They've got away with a great deal before now. I'm afraid it's given them a rather high opinion of themselves. And, of course, Potter has always been allowed an extraordinary amount of license by the headmaster. Ah, well, Snape. Harry Potter, you know. We've all got a bit of a blind spot where he's concerned. And yet, is it good for him to be given so much special treatment? Personally, I try and treat him like any other student, and any other student would be suspended, at the very least, for leading his friends into such danger. Consider, Minister, against all school rules, after all the precautions put in place for his protection, out of bounds at night, consorting with a werewolf and a murderer, 
and I have reason to believe he has been visiting Hogsmeade illegally, too. Well, well, we shall see, Snape, we shall see. The boy has undoubtedly been foolish. Harry lay listening with his eyes tight shut. He felt very groggy. The words he was hearing seemed to be traveling very slowly from his ears to his brain, so that it was difficult to understand. His limbs felt like lead, his eyelids too heavy to lift. He wanted to lie here on this comfortable bed forever. What amazes me most is the behavior of the Dementors. You've really no idea what made them retreat, Snape? No, Minister. By the time I had come round, they were heading back to their positions at the entrances. Extraordinary. And yet, Black and Harry and the girl, all unconscious by the time I reached them. I bound and gagged Black, naturally, conjured stretchers, and brought them all straight back to the castle. There was a pause. Harry's brain seemed to be moving a little faster, and as it did, a gnawing sensation grew in the pit of his stomach. He opened his eyes. Everything was slightly blurred. Somebody had removed his glasses. He was lying in the dark hospital wing. At the very end of the ward, he could make out Madame Pomfrey with her back to him, bending over a bed. Harry squinted. Ron's red hair was visible beneath Madame Pomfrey's arm. Harry moved his head over on the pillow. In the bed to his right lay Hermione. Moonlight was falling across her bed. Her eyes were open, too. She looked petrified, and when she saw that Harry was awake, pressed a finger to her lips, then pointed to the hospital wing door. It was ajar, and the voices of Cornelius Fudge and Snape were coming through it from the corridor outside. Madame Pomfrey now came walking briskly up the dark ward to Harry's bed. He turned to look at her. She was carrying the largest block of chocolate he had ever seen in his life. It looked like a small boulder. Ah, oh, you're awake, she said briskly. She placed the chocolate on Harry's bedside table and began breaking it apart with a small hammer. How's Ron? said Harry and Hermione together. He'll live, said Madame Pomfrey grimly. As for you two, you'll be staying here until I'm satisfied you're... Potter, what do you think you're doing? Harry was sitting up, putting his glasses back on and picking up his wand. I need to see the headmaster, he said. Potter, said Madame Pomfrey soothingly. It's all right. They've got Black. He's locked away upstairs. The Dementors will be performing the kiss any moment now. What? Harry jumped up out of bed. Hermione had done the same, but his shout had been heard in the corridor outside. Next second, Cornelius Fudge and Snape had entered the ward. Harry, Harry, what's this? said Fudge, looking agitated. You should be in bed. Has he had any chocolate? he asked Madame Pomfrey anxiously. Minister, listen, Harry said. Sirius Black's innocent. Peter Pettigrew faked his own death. We saw him tonight. You can't let the Dementors do that thing to Sirius. He's... But Fudge was shaking his head with a small smile on his face. Harry, Harry, you're very confused. You've been through a dreadful ordeal. Lie back down now. We've got everything under control. You haven't? Harry yelled. You've got the wrong man. Minister, listen, please. 
Hermione said. She had hurried to Harry's side and was gazing imploringly into Fudge's face. I saw him too. It was Ron's rat. He's an animagus. Pettigrew, I mean, and... You see, minister, said Snape, confounded both of them. Black's done a very good job on them. We're not confounded, Harry roared. Minister, professor, said Madame Pomfrey angrily. I must insist that you leave. Potter is my patient and he should not be distressed. I'm not distressed. I'm trying to tell them what happened, Harry said furiously. If they'd just listen. But Madame Pomfrey suddenly stuffed a large chunk of chocolate into Harry's mouth. He choked, and she seized the opportunity to force him back onto the bed. Now, please, minister, these children need care. Please leave. The door opened again. It was Dumbledore. Harry swallowed his mouth full of chocolate with great difficulty and got up again. Professor Dumbledore, Sirius Black, for heaven's sake, said Madame Pomfrey hysterically, is this a hospital wing or not? Headmaster, I must insist. My apologies, Poppy, but I need a word with Mr. Potter and Miss Granger, said Dumbledore calmly. I have just been talking to Sirius Black. I suppose he's told you the same fairy tale he's planted in Potter's mind, spat Snape. Something about a rat and Pettigrew being alive. That indeed is Black's story, said Dumbledore, surveying Snape closely through his half-moon spectacles. And does my evidence count for nothing? snarled Snape. Peter Pettigrew was not in the shrieking shack, nor did I see any sign of him on the grounds. That was because you were knocked out, Professor, said Hermione earnestly. You didn't arrive in time to hear. Miss Granger, hold your tongue. Now, Snape, said Fudge, startled, the young lady is disturbed in her mind. We must make allowances. I would like to speak to Harry and Hermione alone, said Dumbledore abruptly. Cornelius, Severus, Poppy, please leave us. Headmaster, sputtered Madame Pomfrey. They need treatment. They need rest. This cannot wait, said Dumbledore. I must insist. Madame Pomfrey pursed her lips and strode away into her office at the end of the ward, slamming the door behind her. Fudge consulted the large gold pocket watch dangling from his waistcoat. The Dementors should have arrived by now, he said. I'll go and meet them, Dumbledore. I'll see you upstairs. He crossed to the door and held it open for Snape, but Snape hadn't moved. You surely don't believe a word of Black's story, Snape whispered, his eyes fixed on Dumbledore's face. I wish to speak to Harry and Hermione alone, Dumbledore repeated. Snape took a step toward Dumbledore. Sirius Black showed he was capable of murder at the age of sixteen, he breathed. You haven't forgotten that, Headmaster? You haven't forgotten that he once tried to kill me? My memory is as good as it ever was, Severus, said Dumbledore quietly. Snape turned on his heel and marched through the door Fudge was still holding. It closed behind them, and Dumbledore turned to Harry and Hermione. They both burst into speech at the same time. Professor Black's telling the truth. We saw Pettigrew. He escaped when Professor Lupin turned into a werewolf. He's a rat. Pettigrew's front paw, I mean finger, he cut it off. Pettigrew attacked Ron. It wasn't serious. 
but Dumbledore held up his hand to stem the flood of explanations. It is your turn to listen, and I beg you will not interrupt me because there is very little time, he said quietly. There is not a shred of proof to support Black's story, except your word, and the word of two thirteen-year-old wizards will not convince anybody. A street full of eyewitnesses swore they saw Sirius murder Pettigrew. I myself gave evidence to the Ministry that Sirius had been the Potter's secret keeper. Professor Lupin can tell you. Harry said, unable to stop himself. Professor Lupin is currently deep in the forest, unable to tell anyone anything. By the time he is human again, it will be too late. Sirius will be worse than dead. I might add that werewolves are so mistrusted by most of our kind that his support will count for very little, and the fact that he and Sirius are old friends. But listen to me, Harry, it is too late. You understand me? You must see that Professor Snape's version of events is far more convincing than yours. He hates Sirius, Hermione said desperately, all because of some stupid trick Sirius played on him. Sirius has not acted like an innocent man. The attack on the fat lady entering Gryffindor Tower with a knife... Without Pettigrew alive or dead, we have no chance of overturning Sirius's sentence. But you believe us? Yes, I do, said Dumbledore quietly. But I have no power to make other men see the truth, or to overrule the Minister of Magic. Harry stared up into the grave face, and felt as though the ground beneath him were falling sharply away. He had grown used to the idea that Dumbledore could solve anything. He had expected Dumbledore to pull some amazing solution out of the air, but no, their last hope was gone. "'What we need,' said Dumbledore slowly, and his light blue eyes moved from Harry to Hermione, "'is more time.' "'But,' Hermione began, and then her eyes became very round. "'Oh!' Now, pay attention, said Dumbledore, speaking very low and very clearly. Sirius is locked in Professor Flitwick's office on the seventh floor, thirteenth window from the right of the West Tower. If all goes well, you will be able to save more than one innocent life tonight. But remember this, both of you, you must not be seen. Miss Granger, you know the law, you know what is at stake. You must not be seen. Harry didn't have a clue what was going on. Dumbledore had turned on his heel and looked back as he reached the door. I'm going to lock you in. It is, he consulted his watch, five minutes to midnight. Miss Granger, three turns should do it. Good luck. Good luck, Harry repeated as the door closed behind Dumbledore. Three turns? What's he talking about? What are we supposed to do? But Hermione was fumbling with the neck of her robes, pulling from beneath them a very long, very fine gold chain. Harry, come here, she said urgently. Quick! Harry moved toward her, completely bewildered. She was holding the chain out. He saw a tiny, sparkling hourglass hanging from it. Here! She had thrown the chain around his neck, too. Ready? she said breathlessly. What are we doing? Harry said, completely lost. Hermione turned the hourglass over three times. 
The dark ward dissolved. Harry had the sensation that he was flying very fast, backward. A blur of colors and shapes rushed past him. His ears were pounding. He tried to yell but couldn't hear his own voice. And then he felt solid ground beneath his feet, and everything came into focus again. He was standing next to Hermione in the deserted entrance hall, and a stream of golden sunlight was falling across the paved floor from the open front doors. He looked wildly around at Hermione, the chain of the hourglass cutting into his neck. Hermione, what? In here! Hermione seized Harry's arm and dragged him across the hall to the door of a broom closet. She opened it, pushed him inside among the buckets and mops, then slammed the door behind them. What? How? Hermione, what happened? We've gone back in time, Hermione whispered, lifting the chain off Harry's neck in the darkness. Three hours back. Harry found his own leg and gave it a very hard pinch. It hurt a lot, which seemed to rule out the possibility that he was having a very bizarre dream. But, shh, listen, someone's coming. I think, I think it might be us. Hermione had her ear pressed against the cupboard door. Footsteps across the hall. Yes, I think it's us going down to Hagrid's. Are you telling me, Harry whispered, that we're here in this cupboard... And we're out there, too. Yes, said Hermione, her ear still glued to the cupboard door. I'm sure it's us. It doesn't sound like more than three people. And we're walking slowly because we're under the invisibility cloak. She broke off, still listening intently. We've gone down the front steps. Hermione sat down on an upturned bucket, looking desperately anxious. But Harry wanted a few questions answered. Where did you get that hourglass thing? It's called a time-turner, Hermione whispered, and I got it from Professor McGonagall on our first day back. I've been using it all year to get to all my lessons. Professor McGonagall made me swear I wouldn't tell anyone. She had to write all sorts of letters to the Ministry of Magic so I could have one. She had to tell them that I was a model student, that I'd never, ever use it for anything except my studies. I've been turning it back so I could do hours over again. That's how I've been doing several lessons at once, see? But, Harry, I don't understand what Dumbledore wants us to do. Why did he tell us to go back three hours? How's that going to help Sirius? Harry stared at her shadowy face. There must be something that happened around now. He wants us to change, he said slowly. What happened? We were walking down to Hagrid's three hours ago. This is three hours ago, and we are walking down to Hagrid's, said Hermione. We just heard ourselves leaving. Harry frowned. He felt as though he was screwing up his whole brain in concentration. Dumbledore just said, just said we could save more than one innocent life. And then it hit him. Hermione, we're going to save Buckbeak. But how will that help Sirius? Dumbledore said. He just told us where the window is, the window of Flitwick's office where they've got Sirius locked up. We've got to fly Buckbeak up to the window and rescue Sirius. Sirius can escape on Buckbeak. They can escape together. From what Harry could see of Hermione's face, she looked terrified. If we manage that without being seen, it'll be a miracle. Well, we've got to try, haven't we? said Harry. He stood up and pressed his ear against the door. Doesn't sound like anyone's there. Come on, let's go.
Harry pushed open the closet door. The entrance hall was deserted. As quietly and quickly as they could, they darted out of the closet and down the stone steps. The shadows were already lengthening. The tops of the trees in the forbidden forest gilded once more with gold. If anyone's looking out of the window, Hermione squeaked, looking up at the castle behind them. We'll run for it, said Harry determinedly, straight into the forest, all right? We'll have to hide behind a tree or something and keep a lookout. Okay, but we'll go around by the greenhouses said Hermione breathlessly. We need to keep out of sight of Hagrid's front door, or we'll see us. We must be nearly at Hagrid's by now. Still working out what she meant, Harry set off at a sprint, Hermione behind him. They tore across the vegetable gardens to the greenhouses, paused for a moment behind them, then set off again, fast as they could, skirting around the whomping willow, tearing toward the shelter of the forest. Safe in the shadows of the trees, Harry turned around. Seconds later, Hermione arrived beside him, panting. Right, she gasped. We need to sneak over to Hagrid's. Keep out of sight, Harry. They made their way silently through the trees, keeping to the very edge of the forest. Then, as they glimpsed the front of Hagrid's house, they heard a knock upon his door. They moved quickly behind a wide oak trunk and peered out from either side. Hagrid had appeared in his doorway, shaking and white, looking around to see who had knocked, and Harry heard his own voice. It's us. We're wearing the invisibility cloak. Let us in, and we can take it off. You shouldn't have come, Hagrid whispered. He stood back, then shut the door quickly. This is the weirdest thing we've ever done, Harry said fervently. Let's move along a bit. Hermione whispered, we need to get nearer to Buckbeak. They crept through the trees until they saw the nervous hippogriff tethered to the fence around Hagrid's pumpkin patch. Now, Harry whispered, no, said Hermione, if we steal him now, those committee people will think Hagrid set him free. We've got to wait until they've seen he's tied outside. That's going to give us about sixty seconds, said Harry. This was starting to seem impossible. At that moment, there was a crash of breaking china from inside Hagrid's cabin. That's Hagrid breaking the milk jug, Hermione whispered. I'm going to find Scabbers in a moment. Sure enough, a few minutes later they heard Hermione's shriek of surprise. Hermione, said Harry suddenly, what if we, we just run in there and grab Pettigrew? No! said Hermione in a terrified whisper. Don't you understand? We're breaking one of the most important wizarding laws. Nobody's supposed to change time. Nobody. You heard Dumbledore. If we're seen, we'd only be seen by ourselves and Hagrid. Harry, what do you think you'd do if you saw yourself bursting into Hagrid's house? said Hermione. I'd... I'd think I'd gone mad, said Harry. Or I'd think there was some dark magic going on. Exactly. You wouldn't understand. You might even attack yourself. Don't you see? Professor McGonagall told me what awful things have happened when wizards have meddled with time. Loads of them ended up killing their past or future selves by mistake. Okay, said Harry. It was just an idea. I just thought... But Hermione nudged him and pointed toward the castle. Harry moved his head a few inches to get a clear view of the distant front doors. Dumbledore, Fudge, the old committee member, and McNair, the executioner, were coming down the steps. We're about to come out, 
Hermione breathed. And, sure enough, moments later, Hagrid's back door opened, and Harry saw himself, Ron, and Hermione walking out of it with Hagrid. It was, without a doubt, the strangest sensation of his life, standing behind the tree and watching himself in the pumpkin patch. It's okay, Beaky, it's okay, Hagrid said to Buckbeak. Then he turned to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Go on, get going. Hagrid, we can't. We'll tell them what really happened. They can't kill him. Go! It's bad enough without you lot in trouble and all. Harry watched the Hermione and the pumpkin patch throw the invisibility cloak over him and Ron. Go, quick! Don't listen. There was a knock on Hagrid's front door. The execution party had arrived. Hagrid turned around and headed back into his cabin, leaving the back door ajar. Harry watched the grass flatten in patches all around the cabin and heard three pairs of feet retreating. He, Ron, and Hermione had gone, but the Harry and Hermione hidden in the trees could now hear what was happening inside the cabin through the back door. "'Where is the beast?' came the cold voice of McNair. "'Out, outside,' Hagrid croaked. Harry pulled his head out of sight as McNair's face appeared at Hagrid's window, staring out at Buckbeak. Then they heard Fudge. We, uh, have to read you the official notice of execution, Hagrid. I'll make it quick, and then you and McNair need to sign it. McNair, you're supposed to listen, too. That's procedure. McNair's face vanished from the window. It was now or never. Wait here, Harry whispered to Hermione. I'll do it. As Fudge's voice started again, Harry darted out from behind his tree, vaulted the fence into the pumpkin patch, and approached Buckbeak. It is the decision of the committee for the disposal of dangerous creatures that the hippogriff Buckbeak, hereafter called the Condemned, shall be executed on the 6th of June at sundown. Careful not to blink, Harry stared up into Buckbeak's fierce orange eyes once more and bowed. Buckbeak sank to his scaly knees and then stood up again. Harry began to fumble with the knot of rope tying Buckbeak to the fence. Sentenced to execution by beheading, to be carried out by the committee's appointed executioner, Walden McNair. Come on, Buckbeak, Harry murmured. Come on, we're going to help you. Quietly, quietly. As witnessed below, Hagrid, you sign here. Harry threw all his weight onto the rope, but Buckbeak had dug in his front feet. Well, let's get this over with, said the reedy voice of the committee member from inside Hagrid's cabin. Hagrid, perhaps it will be better if you stay inside. No, I... I want to be with him. I don't want him to be alone. Footsteps echoed from within the cabin. Buckbeak, move! Harry hissed. Harry tugged harder on the rope around Buckbeak's neck. The hippogriff began to walk, rustling its wings irritably. They were still ten feet away from the forest, in plain view of Hagrid's back door. One moment, please, McNair, came Dumbledore's voice. You need to sign, too. The footsteps stopped. Harry heaved on the rope. Buckbeak snapped his beak and walked a little faster. Hermione's white face was sticking out from behind a tree. Hurry, hurry, she mouthed. 
Harry could still hear Dumbledore's voice talking from within the cabin. He gave the rope another wrench. Buckbeak broke into a grudging trot. They had reached the trees. Quick! Quick! Hermione moaned, darting out from behind her tree, seizing the rope too and adding her weight to make Buckbeak move faster. Harry looked over his shoulder. They were now blocked from sight. They couldn't see Hagrid's garden at all. Stop! he whispered to Hermione. They might hear us. Hagrid's back door had opened with a bang. Harry, Hermione, and Buckbeak stood quite still. Even the hippogriff seemed to be listening intently. Silence. Then... Where is it? said the reedy voice of the committee member. Where is the beast? It was tied here, said the executioner furiously. I saw it, just here. How extraordinary, said Dumbledore. There was a note of amusement in his voice. Beaky, said Hagrid huskily. There was a swishing noise and the thud of an axe. The executioner seemed to have swung it into the fence in anger. And then came the howling, and this time they could hear Hagrid's words through the sobs. Gone! Gone! Bless his little beak! He's gone! Must have pulled himself free! Beaky, you clever boy! Buckbeak started to strain against the rope, trying to get back to Hagrid. Harry and Hermione tightened their grip and dug their heels into the forest floor to stop him. Someone untied him, the executioner was snarling. We should search the grounds, the forest. McNair, if Buckbeak has indeed been stolen, do you really think the thief will have led him away on foot? said Dumbledore, still sounding amused. Search the skies, if you will. Hagrid, I could do with a cup of tea or a large brandy. Oh, of course, Professor, said Hagrid, who sounded weak with happiness. Come in, come in. Harry and Hermione listened closely. They heard footsteps, the soft cursing of the executioner, the snap of the door, and then silence once more. Now what? whispered Harry, looking around. We'll have to hide in here, said Hermione, who looked very shaken. We need to wait until they've gone back to the castle. Then we wait until it's safe to fly Buckbeak up to Sirius's window. He won't be there for another couple of hours. Ooh, this is going to be difficult. She looked nervously over her shoulder into the depths of the forest. The sun was setting now. We're going to have to move said Harry, thinking hard. We've got to be able to see the Whomping Willow, or we won't know what's going on. Okay, said Hermione, getting a firmer grip on Buckbeak's rope. But we've got to keep out of sight, Harry, remember. They moved around the edge of the forest, darkness falling thickly around them, until they were hidden behind a clump of trees through which they could make out the willow. There's Ron, said Harry suddenly, a dark figure was sprinting across the lawn, and its shout echoed through the still night air. Get away from him! Get away! Scabbers! Come here! And then they saw two more figures materialize out of nowhere. Harry watched himself and Hermione chasing after Ron. Then he saw Ron dive. Gotcha! Get off, you stinking cat! There's Sirius, said Harry. The great shape of the dog had bounded out from the roots of the willow. They saw him bowl Harry over, then seize Ron. Looks even worse from here, doesn't it? said Harry, watching the dog pulling Ron into the roots. Ouch! Look! I just got walloped by the tree, and so did you. 
This is weird. The whomping willow was creaking and lashing out with its lower branches. They could see themselves darting here and there, trying to reach the trunk. And then the tree froze. That was Crookshanks pressing the knot, said Hermione. And there we go, Harry muttered. We're in. The moment they disappeared, the tree began to move again. Seconds later, they heard footsteps quite close by. Dumbledore, McNair, Fudge, and the old committee member were making their way up to the castle. Right after we'd gone down into the passage, said Hermione, if only Dumbledore had come with us. McNair and Fudge would have come too, said Harry bitterly. I bet you anything Fudge would have told McNair to murder Sirius on the spot. They watched the four men climb the castle steps and disappear from view. For a few minutes the scene was deserted, then... Here comes Lupin, said Harry, as they saw another figure sprinting down the stone steps and herring toward the willow. Harry looked up at the sky. Clouds were obscuring the moon completely. They watched Lupin seize a broken branch from the ground and prod the knot on the trunk. The tree stopped fighting, and Lupin too disappeared into the gap in its roots. If only he'd grabbed the cloak, said Harry. It's just lying there. He turned to Hermione. If I dashed out now and grabbed it, Snape would never be able to get it, and Harry, we mustn't be seen. How can you stand this? He asked Hermione fiercely, just standing here and watching it happen. He hesitated. I'm going to grab the cloak. Harry, no! Hermione seized the back of Harry's robes not a moment too soon. Just then, they heard a burst of song. It was Hagrid making his way up to the castle, singing at the top of his voice and weaving slightly as he walked. A large bottle was swinging from his hands. See? Hermione whispered. See what would have happened? We've got to keep out of sight. No, Buckbeak! The Hippogriff was making frantic attempts to get to Hagrid again. Harry seized his rope, too, straining to hold Buckbeak back. They watched Hagrid meander tipsily up to the castle. He was gone. Buckbeak stopped fighting to get away. His head drooped sadly. Barely two minutes later, the castle doors flew open yet again, and Snape came charging out of them, running toward the willow. Harry's fists clenched as they watched Snape skid to a halt next to the tree, looking around. He grabbed the cloak and held it up. Get your filthy hands off it, Harry snarled under his breath. <sighs> Snape seized the branch Lupin had used to freeze the tree, prodded the knot, and vanished from view as he put on the cloak. So that's it, said Hermione quietly. We're all down there. And now we've just got to wait until we come back up again. She took the end of Buckbeak's rope and tied it securely around the nearest tree, then sat down on the dry ground, arms around her knees. Harry, there's something I don't understand. Why didn't the Dementors get serious? I remember them coming, and then I think I passed out. There were so many of them. Harry sat down, too. He explained what he'd seen, how, as the nearest Dementor had lowered its mouth to Harry's, a large silver something had come galloping across the lake and forced the Dementors to retreat. Hermione's mouth was slightly open by the time Harry had finished. But what was it? There's only one thing it could have been to make the Dementors go, said Harry, a real Patronus, a powerful one. But who conjured it? Harry didn't say anything. 
He was thinking back to the person he'd seen on the other bank of the lake. He knew who he thought it had been, but how could it have been? "'Didn't you see what they looked like?' said Hermione eagerly. "'Was it one of the teachers?' "'No,' said Harry. "'He wasn't a teacher.' But it must have been a really powerful wizard to drive all those Dementors away. If the Patronus was shining so brightly, didn't it light him up? Couldn't you see? Yeah, I saw him, said Harry slowly. But maybe I imagined it. I wasn't thinking straight. I passed out right afterward. Who did you think it was? I think Harry swallowed, knowing how strange this was going to sound. I think it was my dad. Harry glanced up at Hermione and saw that her mouth was fully open now. She was gazing at him with a mixture of alarm and pity. Harry, your dad's, well, dead, she said quietly. I know that, said Harry quickly. You think you saw his ghost? I don't know. No, he looks solid. But then maybe I was seeing things said Harry, but from what I could see, it looked like him. I've got photos of him. Hermione was still looking at him as though worried about his sanity. I know it sounds crazy, said Harry flatly. He turned to look at Buckbeak, who was digging his beak into the ground, apparently searching for worms, but he wasn't really watching Buckbeak. He was thinking about his father, and about his father's three oldest friends, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and prongs. Had all four of them been out on the grounds tonight? Wormtail had reappeared this evening when everyone had thought he was dead. Was it so impossible his father had done the same? Had he been seeing things across the lake? The figure had been too far away to see distinctly, yet he had felt sure for a moment before he'd lost consciousness. The leaves overhead rustled faintly in the breeze, the moon drifted in and out of sight behind the shifting clouds. Hermione sat with her face turned toward the willow, waiting. And then, at last, after over an hour, "'Here we come,' Hermione whispered. She and Harry got to their feet. Buckbeak raised his head. They saw Lupin, Ron, and Pettigrew clambering awkwardly out of the hole in the roots. Then came Hermione, then the unconscious Snape, drifting weirdly upward. Next came Harry and Black. They all began to walk toward the castle. Harry's heart was starting to beat very fast. He glanced up at the sky. Any moment now, that cloud was going to move aside and show the moon. Harry, Hermione muttered as though she knew exactly what he was thinking. We've got to stay put. We mustn't be seen. There's nothing we can do. "'So we're just going to let Pettigrew escape all over again,' said Harry quietly. "'How do we expect to find a rat in the dark?' snapped Hermione. "'There's nothing we can do. We came back to help Sirius. We're not supposed to be doing anything else.' "'All right.' The moon slid out from behind its cloud. They saw the tiny figures across the grounds stop. Then they saw movement. "'There goes Lupin,' Hermione whispered. "'He's transforming.' "'Hermione!' said Harry suddenly. We've got to move. We mustn't. I keep telling you not to interfere. Lupin's going to run into the forest right at us. Hermione gasped. Quick, 
she moaned, dashing to untie Buckbeak. Quick! Where are we going to go? Where are we going to hide? The Dementors will be coming any moment. Back to Hagrid's, Harry said. It's empty now. Come on! They ran as fast as they could, Buckbeak cantering along behind them. They could hear the werewolf howling behind them. The cabin was in sight. Harry skidded to the door, wrenched it open, and Hermione and Buckbeak flashed past him. Harry threw himself in after them and bolted the door. Fang, the boarhound, barked loudly. Shh, Fang, it's us, said Hermione, hurrying over and scratching his ears to quieten him. That was really close, she said to Harry. Yeah. Harry was looking out of the window. It was much harder to see what was going on from here. Buckbeak seemed very happy to find himself back inside Hagrid's house. He lay down in front of the fire, folded his wings contentedly, and seemed ready for a good nap. "'I think I'd better go outside again, you know,' said Harry slowly. "'I can't see what's going on. We won't know when it's time.' Hermione looked up. Her expression was suspicious. "'I'm not going to try and interfere.' said Harry quickly, but if we don't see what's going on, how are we going to know when it's time to rescue Sirius? Well, okay then, I'll wait here with Buckbeak, but Harry, be careful, there's a werewolf out there, and the Dementors. Harry stepped outside again and edged around the cabin. He could hear yelping in the distance. That meant the Dementors were closing in on Sirius. He and Hermione would be running to him any moment. Harry stared out toward the lake, his heart doing a kind of drumroll in his chest. Whoever had sent that Patronus would be appearing at any moment. For a fraction of a second he stood, irresolute, in front of Hagrid's door. You must not be seen. But he didn't want to be seen. He wanted to do the seeing. He had to know. And there were the Dementors. They were emerging out of the darkness from every direction, gliding around the edges of the lake. They were moving away from where Harry stood to the opposite bank. He wouldn't have to get near them. Harry began to run. He had no thought in his head except his father. If it was him, if it really was him, he had to know, had to find out. The lake was coming nearer and nearer, but there was no sign of anybody. On the opposite bank he could see tiny glimmers of silver, his own attempts at a Patronus. There was a bush at the very edge of the water. Harry threw himself behind it, peering desperately through the leaves. On the opposite bank the glimmers of silver were suddenly extinguished. A terrified excitement shot through him at any moment now. "'Come on!' he muttered, staring about. "'Where are you? Dad! Come on!' But no one came. Harry raised his head to look at the circle of Dementors across the lake. One of them was lowering its hood. It was time for the rescuer to appear, but no one was coming to help this time. And then it hit him. He understood. He hadn't seen his father. He had seen himself. Harry flung himself out from behind the bush and pulled out his wand. Expecto Patronum! he yelled, and out of the end of his wand burst not a shapeless cloud of mist, but a blinding, dazzling silver animal.
He screwed up his eyes, trying to see what it was. It looked like a horse. It was galloping silently away from him, across the black surface of the lake. He saw it lower its head and charge at the swarming Dementors. Now it was galloping around and around the black shapes on the ground, and the Dementors were falling back, scattering, retreating into the darkness. They were gone. The Patronus turned. It was cantering back toward Harry across the still surface of the water. It wasn't a horse. It wasn't a unicorn, either. It was a stag. It was shining brightly as the moon above. It was coming back to him. It stopped on the bank. Its hooves made no mark on the soft ground as it stared at Harry with its large silver eyes. Slowly, it bowed its antlered head. And Harry realized. Prongs, he whispered. But as his trembling fingertips stretched toward the creature, it vanished. Harry stood there, hands still outstretched. Then, with a great leap of his heart, he heard hooves behind him. He whirled around and saw Hermione dashing toward him, dragging Buckbeak behind her. What did you do? she said fiercely. You said you were only going to keep a lookout. I just saved all our lives, said Harry. Get behind here, behind this bush. I'll explain. Hermione listened to what had just happened with her mouth open yet again. Did anyone see you? Yes, haven't you been listening? I saw me, but I thought I was my dad. It's okay. Harry, I can't believe it. You conjured up a Patronus that drove away all those Dementors? That's very, very advanced magic. I knew I could do it this time, said Harry, because I'd already done it. Does that make sense? I don't know. Harry, look at Snape. Together they peered around the bush to the other bank. Snape had regained consciousness. He was conjuring stretchers and lifting the limp forms of Harry, Hermione, and Black onto them. A fourth stretcher, no doubt bearing Ron, was already floating at his side. Then, one held out in front of him, he moved them away toward the castle. Right, it's nearly time, said Hermione tensely, looking at her watch. We've got about forty-five minutes until Dumbledore locks the door to the hospital wing. We've got to rescue Sirius and get back into the ward before anybody realizes we're missing. They waited, watching the moving clouds reflected in the lake, while the bush next to them whispered in the breeze. Buckbeak, bored, was ferreting for worms again. Do you reckon he's up there yet? said Harry, checking his watch. He looked up at the castle and began counting the windows to the right of the West Tower. Look! Hermione whispered. Who's that? Someone's coming back out of the castle. Harry stared through the darkness. The man was hurrying across the grounds towards one of the entrances. Something shiny glinted in his belt. McNair, said Harry, the executioner. He's gone to get the Dementors. This is it, Hermione. Hermione put her hands on Buckbeak's back, and Harry gave her a leg up. Then he placed his foot on one of the lower branches of the bush and climbed up in front of her. He pulled Buckbeak's rope back over his neck and tied it to the other side of his collar like reins. Ready? he whispered to Hermione. You'd better hold on to me. 
He nudged Buckbeak's sides with his heels. Buckbeak soared straight into the dark air. Harry gripped his flanks with his knees, feeling the great wings rising powerfully beneath them. Hermione was holding Harry very tight around the waist. He could hear her muttering, Oh, no, I don't like this. Ooh, I really don't like this. Harry urged Buckbeak forward. They were gliding quietly toward the upper floors of the castle. Harry pulled hard on the left-hand side of the rope, and Buckbeak turned. Harry was trying to count the windows flashing past. Woo! he said, pulling backward as hard as he could. Buckbeak slowed down, and they found themselves at a stop, unless you counted the fact that they kept rising up and down several feet as the hippogriff beat his wings to remain airborne. He's there, Harry said, spotting Sirius as they rose up beside the window. He reached out, and as Buckbeak's wings fell, was able to tap sharply on the glass. Black looked up. Harry saw his jaw drop. He leapt from his chair, hurried to the window, and tried to open it, but it was locked. Stand back, Hermione called to him, and she took out her wand, still gripping the back of Harry's robes with her left hand. Alohomora! The window sprang open. How? How? said Black, weakly, staring at the hippogriff. Get on, there's not much time, said Harry, gripping Buckbeak firmly on either side of his sleek neck to hold him steady. You've got to get out of here. The Dementors are coming. McNair's gone to get them. Black placed a hand on either side of the window frame and heaved his head and shoulders out of it. It was very lucky he was so thin. In seconds, he had managed to fling one leg over Buckbeak's back and pull himself onto the hippogriff behind Hermione. "'Okay, Buckbeak, up!' said Harry, shaking the rope. "'Up to the tower! Come on!' The hippogriff gave one sweep of its mighty wings, and they were soaring upward again, high as the top of the west tower. Buckbeak landed with a clatter on the battlements, and Harry and Hermione slid off him at once. "'Sirius, you'd better go, quick!' Harry panted. "'They'll reach Flitwick's office any moment. They'll find out you're gone!' Buckbeak poured the ground, tossing his sharp head. "'What happened to the other boy, Ron?' croaked Sirius. "'He's going to be okay. He's still out of it, but Madame Pomfrey says she'll be able to make him better. Quick, go!' But Black was still staring down at Harry. "'How can I ever thank—' "'Go!' Harry and Hermione shouted together. Black wheeled Buckbeak around, facing the open sky. "'We'll see each other again,' he said. "'You are—' Truly, your father's son, Harry. He squeezed Buckbeak's sides with his heels. Harry and Hermione jumped back as the enormous wings rose once more. The hippogriff took off into the air. He and his rider became smaller and smaller as Harry gazed after them. Then a cloud drifted across the moon. They were gone. Chapter 22 Owl Post again. Harry! Hermione was tugging at his sleeve, staring at her watch. We've got exactly ten minutes to get back down to the hospital wing without anybody seeing us, before Dumbledore locks the door. Okay, said Harry, wrenching his gaze from the sky. Let's go. They slipped through the doorway behind them and down a tightly spiraling stone staircase. As they reached the bottom of it, they heard voices. They flattened themselves against the wall and listened. It sounded like fudge and snape. They were walking quickly along the corridor at the foot of the staircase. 
Only hope Dumbledore's not going to make difficulties, Snape was saying. The kiss will be performed immediately. As soon as McNair returns with the Dementors, this whole black affair has been highly embarrassing. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to informing the Daily Prophet that we've got him at last. I dare say they'll want to interview you, Snape. And once young Harry's back in his right mind, I expect he'll want to tell the Prophet exactly how you saved him. Harry clenched his teeth. He caught a glimpse of Snape's smirk as he and Fudge passed Harry and Hermione's hiding place. Their footsteps died away. Harry and Hermione waited a few moments to make sure they'd really gone, then started to run in the opposite direction, down one staircase, then another, along a new corridor. Then they heard a cackling ahead. Peeves, Harry muttered, grabbing Hermione's wrist. In here! They tore into a deserted classroom to their left, just in time. Peeves seemed to be bouncing along the corridor in boisterous good spirits, laughing his head off. Ooh, he's horrible, whispered Hermione, her ear to the door. I bet he's all excited because the Dementors are going to finish off Sirius. She checked her watch. Three minutes, Harry. They waited until Peeves's gloating voice had faded into the distance, then slid back out of the room and broke into a run again. Hermione, what'll happen if we don't get back inside before Dumbledore locks the door? Harry panted. I don't want to think about it. Hermione moaned, checking her watch again. One minute. They had reached the end of the corridor with the hospital wing entrance. Okay, I can hear Dumbledore, said Hermione tensely. Come on, Harry. They crept along the corridor. The door opened. Dumbledore's back appeared. I am going to lock you in, they heard him saying. It is five minutes to midnight. Miss Granger, three turns should do it. Good luck. Dumbledore backed out of the room, closed the door, and took out his wand to magically lock it. Panicking, Harry and Hermione ran forward. Dumbledore looked up, and a wide smile appeared under the long silver moustache. Well, he said quietly. We did it, said Harry breathlessly. Sirius has gone. On Buckbeak. Dumbledore beamed at them. Well done. I think... He listened intently for any sound within the hospital wing. Yes, I think you've gone too. Get inside. I'll lock you in. Harry and Hermione slipped back inside the dormitory. It was empty except for Ron, who was still lying motionless in the end bed. As the lock clicked behind them, Harry and Hermione crept back to their own beds, Hermione tucking the time-turner back under her robes. A moment later... Madam Pomfrey came striding back out of her office. Did I hear the headmaster leaving? Am I allowed to look after my patients now? She was in a very bad mood. Harry and Hermione thought it best to accept their chocolate quietly. Madam Pomfrey stood over them, making sure they ate it. But Harry could hardly swallow. He and Hermione were waiting, listening, their nerves jangling. And then... As they both took a fourth piece of chocolate from Madame Pomfrey, they heard a distant roar of fury echoing from somewhere above them. What was that? said Madame Pomfrey in alarm. Now they could hear angry voices growing louder and louder. Madame Pomfrey was staring at the door. Really? They'll wake everybody up. What do they think they're doing? Harry was trying to hear what the voices were saying. They were drawing nearer. 
He must have disapparated, Severus. We should have left somebody in the room with him. When this gets out, he didn't disapparate. Snape roared, now very close at hand. You can't apparate or disapparate inside this castle. This has something to do with Potter. Severus, be reasonable. Harry has been locked up. Bam! The door of the hospital wing burst open. Fudge, Snape, and Dumbledore came striding into the ward. Dumbledore alone looked calm. Indeed, he looked as though he was quite enjoying himself. Fudge appeared angry, but Snape was beside himself. Out with it, Potter, he bellowed. What did you do? Professor Snape, shrieked Madame Pomfrey. Control yourself. See here, Snape, be reasonable, said Fudge. This door's been locked. We just saw. They helped him escape. I know it. Snape howled, pointing at Harry and Hermione. His face was twisted. Spit was flying from his mouth. Calm down, man, Fudge barked. You're talking nonsense. You don't know Potter, shrieked Snape. He did it. I knew he did it. That will do, Severus, said Dumbledore quietly. Think about what you are saying. This door has been locked since I left the ward ten minutes ago. Madame Pomfrey... Have these students left their beds? Of course not, said Madame Pomfrey, bristling. I would have heard them. Well, there you have it, Severus, said Dumbledore calmly. Unless you are suggesting that Harry and Hermione are able to be in two places at once, I'm afraid I don't see any point in troubling them further. Snape stood there, seething, staring from Fudge, who looked thoroughly shocked at his behavior, to Dumbledore, whose eyes were twinkling behind his glasses. Snape whirled about, robes swishing behind him, and stormed out of the ward. "'Fellow seems quite unbalanced,' said Fudge, staring after him. "'I'd watch out for him if I were you, Dumbledore.' "'Oh, he's not unbalanced,' said Dumbledore quietly. "'He's just suffered a severe disappointment.' He's not the only one, puffed Fudge. The Daily Prophet's going to have a field day. We had Black cornered, and he slipped through our fingers yet again. All it needs now is for the soy of that hippogriff's escape to get out, and I'll be a laughingstock. Well, I'd better go and notify the Ministry. And the Dementors, said Dumbledore. They'll be removed from the school, I trust. Oh, yes, they'll have to go said Fudge, running his fingers distractedly through his hair. Never dreamt they'd attempt to administer the kiss on an innocent boy. Completely out of control. No, I'll have them packed off back to Azkaban tonight. Perhaps we should think about dragons at the school entrance. Hagrid would like that, said Dumbledore, smiling at Harry and Hermione. As he and Fudge left the dormitory, Madame Pomfrey hurried to the door and locked it again. Muttering angrily to herself, she headed back to her office. There was a low moan from the other end of the ward. Ron had woken up. They could see him sitting up, rubbing his head, looking around. What? What happened? He groaned. Harry, why are we in here? Where's Sirius? Where's Lupin? What's going on? Harry and Hermione looked at each other. You explain said Harry, helping himself to some more chocolate. 
When Harry, Ron, and Hermione left the hospital wing at noon the next day, it was to find an almost deserted castle. The sweltering heat and the end of the exams meant that everyone was taking full advantage of another Hogsmeade visit. Neither Ron nor Hermione felt like going, however, so they and Harry wandered onto the grounds, still talking about the extraordinary events of the previous night and wondering where Sirius and Buckbeak were now. Sitting near the lake, watching the giant squid waving its tentacles lazily above the water, Harry lost the thread of the conversation as he looked across to the opposite bank. The stag had galloped toward him from there just last night. A shadow fell across them, and they looked up to see a very bleary-eyed Hagrid mopping his sweaty face with one of his tablecloth-sized handkerchiefs and beaming down at them. "'No, I shouldn't feel happy after what happened last night,' he said. "'I mean, black escaping again and everything. But guess what?' "'What?' they said, pretending to look curious. "'Beaky! He escaped!' He's free. Been celebrating all night. That's wonderful, said Hermione, giving Ron a reproving look, because he looked as though he was close to laughing. Yeah, can't have tied him up properly, said Hagrid, gazing happily out over the grounds. I was worried this morning, mind. Thought he might have met Professor Lupin on the grounds. But Lupin says he never ate anything last night. What? Blimey, haven't you heard? said Hagrid, his smile fading a little. He lowered his voice, even though there was nobody in sight. Er, uh, Snape told all the Slytherins this morning. Thought everyone would know by now. Professor Lupin's a werewolf, see? And he was loose on the grounds last night. He's packing now, of course. He's packing? said Harry, alarmed. Why? Leaving, isn't he? said Hagrid, looking surprised that Harry had to ask. Resign first thing this morning. Says he can't risk it happening again. Harry scrambled to his feet. I'm going to see him, he said to Ron and Hermione. But if he's resigned, doesn't sound like there's anything we can do. I don't care. I still want to see him. I'll meet you back here. Lupin's office door was open. He had already packed most of his things. The Grindy Lowe's empty tank stood next to his battered old suitcase, which was open and nearly full. Lupin was bending over something on his desk and looked up only when Harry knocked on the door. "'I saw you coming,' said Lupin, smiling. He pointed to the parchment he had been poring over. It was the Marauder's map. "'I just saw Hagrid,' said Harry, "'and he said you'd resigned.' It's not true, is it? I'm afraid it is, said Lupin. He started opening his desk drawers and taking out the contents. Why, said Harry, the Ministry of Magic don't think you were helping Sirius, do they? Lupin crossed to the door and closed it behind Harry. No, Professor Dumbledore managed to convince Fudge that I was trying to save your lives, he sighed. That was the final straw for Severus. I think the loss of the Order of Merlin hit him hard. So he, uh, accidentally let slip that I am a werewolf this morning at breakfast. You're not leaving just because of that, said Harry. Lupin smiled wryly. This time tomorrow the owls will start arriving from parents. They will not want a werewolf teaching their children, Harry. And after last night I see their point. I could have bitten any of you. 
That must never happen again. You're the best defense against the dark arts teacher we've ever had, said Harry. Don't go. Lupin shook his head and didn't speak. He carried on emptying his drawers. Then, while Harry was trying to think of a good argument to make him stay, Lupin said, From what the headmaster told me this morning, you saved a lot of lives last night, Harry. If I'm proud of anything I've done this year, it's how much you've learned. Tell me about your Patronus. How do you know about that? said Harry, distracted. What else could have driven the Dementors back? Harry told Lupin what had happened. When he'd finished, Lupin was smiling again. Yes, your father was always a stag when he transformed, he said. You guessed right. That's why we called him Prongs. Lupin threw his last books into his case, closed the desk drawers, and turned to look at Harry. Here, I bought this from the Shrieking Shack last night, he said, handing Harry back the invisibility cloak. And... He hesitated, then held out the marauder's map, too. I am no longer your teacher, so I don't feel guilty about giving you back this as well. It's no use to me, and I dare say you, Ron and Hermione, will find uses for it. Harry took the map and grinned. You told me Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs would have wanted to lure me out of school. You said they'd have thought it was funny. And so we would have said Lupin, now reaching down to close his case. I have no hesitation in saying that James would have been highly disappointed if his son had never found any of the secret passages out of the castle. There was a knock on the door. Harry hastily stuffed the marauder's map and the invisibility cloak into his pocket. It was Professor Dumbledore. He didn't look surprised to see Harry there. Your carriage is at the gates, Remus, he said. Thank you, Headmaster. Lupin picked up his old suitcase and the empty Grindylow tank. Well, goodbye, Harry, he said, smiling. It has been a real pleasure teaching you. I feel sure we'll meet again sometime. Headmaster, there is no need to see me to the gates. I can manage. Harry had the impression that Lupin wanted to leave as quickly as possible. Goodbye, then, Remus, said Dumbledore soberly. Lupin shifted the Grindylow tank slightly so that he and Dumbledore could shake hands. Then, with a final nod to Harry and a swift smile, Lupin left the office. Harry sat down in his vacated chair, staring glumly at the floor. He heard the door close and looked up. Dumbledore was still there. "'Why so miserable, Harry?' he said quietly. "'You should be very proud of yourself after last night.' It didn't make any difference, said Harry bitterly. Pettigrew got away. Didn't make any difference, said Dumbledore quietly. It made all the difference in the world, Harry. You helped uncover the truth. You saved an innocent man from a terrible fate. Terrible? Something stirred in Harry's memory. Greater and more terrible than ever before? Professor Trelawney's prediction. Professor Dumbledore, yesterday, when I was having my divination exam, Professor Trelawney went very, very strange. Indeed, said Dumbledore. Ah, uh, stranger than usual, you mean. Yes, her voice went all deep and her eyes rolled, and she said, 
She said Voldemort's servant was going to set out to return to him before midnight. She said the servant would help him come back to power. Harry stared up at Dumbledore. And then she sort of became normal again, and she couldn't remember anything she'd said. Was it... Was she making a real prediction? Dumbledore looked mildly impressed. Do you know, Harry, I think she might have been, he said thoughtfully. Who'd have thought it? That brings her total of real predictions up to two. I should offer her a pay raise. But Harry looked at him aghast. How could Dumbledore take this so calmly? But I stopped Sirius and Professor Lupin from killing Pettigrew. That makes it my fault if Voldemort comes back. It does not, said Dumbledore quietly. Hasn't your experience with the time-turner taught you anything, Harry? The consequences of our actions are always so complicated, so diverse, that predicting the future is a very difficult business indeed. Professor Trelawney, bless her, is living proof of that. You did a very noble thing in saving Pettigrew's life. But if he helps Voldemort back to power, Pettigrew owes his life to you. You have sent Voldemort a deputy who is in your debt. When one wizard saves another wizard's life, it creates a certain bond between them. And I'm much mistaken if Voldemort wants his servant in the debt of Harry Potter. I don't want a connection with Pettigrew, said Harry. He betrayed my parents. This is magic at its deepest, its most impenetrable, Harry. But trust me... The time may come when you will be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. Harry couldn't imagine when that would be. Dumbledore looked as though he knew what Harry was thinking. I knew your father very well, both at Hogwarts and later, Harry, he said gently. He would have saved Pettigrew too, I'm sure of it. Harry looked up at him. Dumbledore wouldn't laugh. He could tell Dumbledore. I thought it was my dad who'd conjured my Patronus. I mean, when I saw myself across the lake, I thought I was seeing him. An easy mistake to make, said Dumbledore softly. I expect you'll tire of hearing it, but you do look extraordinarily like James, except for the eyes. You have your mother's eyes. Harry shook his head. It was stupid, thinking it was him, he muttered. I mean, I knew he was dead. You think the dead we loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? Your father is alive in you, Harry, and shows himself most plainly when you have need of him. How else could you produce that particular Patronus? Prongs rode again last night. It took a moment for Harry to realize what Dumbledore had said. Last night, Sirius told me all about how they became Animagi, said Dumbledore, smiling. An extraordinary achievement, not least keeping it quiet from me. And then I remembered the most unusual form your Patronus took when it charged Mr. Malfoy down at your Quidditch match against Ravenclaw. You know, Harry... In a way, you did see your father last night. You found him inside yourself. And Dumbledore left the office, leaving Harry to his very confused thoughts.
Nobody at Hogwarts now knew the truth of what had happened that night, that Sirius, Buckbeak, and Pettigrew had vanished, except Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Professor Dumbledore. As the end of term approached, Harry heard many different theories about what had really happened, but none of them came close to the truth. Malfoy was furious about Buckbeak. He was convinced that Hagrid had found a way of smuggling the hippogriff to safety, and seemed outraged that he and his father had been outwitted by a gamekeeper. Percy Weasley, meanwhile, had much to say on the subject of Sirius's escape. If I manage to get into the Ministry, I'll have a lot of proposals to make about magical law enforcement, he told the only person who would listen, his girlfriend Penelope. Though the weather was perfect, though the atmosphere was so cheerful, though he knew they had achieved the near impossible in helping Sirius to freedom, Harry had never approached the end of a school year in worse spirits. He certainly wasn't the only one who was sorry to see Professor Lupin go. The whole of Harry's defense against the dark arts class was miserable about his resignation. "'Wonder what they'll give us next year,' said Seamus Finnegan gloomily. "'Maybe a vampire.' suggested Dean Thomas hopefully. It wasn't only Professor Lupin's departure that was weighing on Harry's mind. He couldn't help thinking a lot about Professor Trelawney's prediction. He kept wondering where Pettigrew was now, whether he had sought sanctuary with Voldemort yet. But the thing that was lowering Harry's spirits most of all was the prospect of returning to the Dursleys. For maybe half an hour, a glorious half-hour, he had believed he would be living with Sirius from now on, his parents' best friend. It would have been the next best thing to having his own father back. And while no news of Sirius was definitely good news, because it meant he had successfully gone into hiding, Harry couldn't help feeling miserable when he thought of the home he might have had, and the fact that it was now impossible. The exam results came out on the last day of term. Harry, Ron, and Hermione had passed every subject. Harry was amazed that he had got through potions. He had a shrewd suspicion that Dumbledore might have stepped in to stop Snape failing him on purpose. Snape's behavior toward Harry over the past week had been quite alarming. Harry wouldn't have thought it possible that Snape's dislike for him could increase, but it certainly had. A muscle twitched unpleasantly at the corner of Snape's thin mouth every time he looked at Harry, and he was constantly flexing his fingers as though itching to place them around Harry's throat. Percy had got his top-grade N.E.W.T.s. Fred and George had scraped a handful of O.W.L.s each. Gryffindor House, meanwhile, largely thanks to their spectacular performance in the Quidditch Cup, had won the House Championship for the third year running. This meant that the end-of-term feast took place amid decorations of scarlet and gold, and that the Gryffindor table was the noisiest of the lot, as everybody celebrated. Even Harry managed to forget about the journey back to the Dursleys the next day, as he ate, drank, talked, and laughed with the rest. As the Hogwarts Express pulled out of the station the next morning, Hermione gave Harry and Ron some surprising news. I went to see Professor McGonagall this morning, just before breakfast. I've decided to drop muggle studies. But you passed your exam with 320%, said Ron. I know, sighed Hermione, but I can't stand another year like this one. That time-turner, it was driving me mad. I've handed it in. Without muggle studies and divination, I'll be able to have a normal schedule again. I still can't believe you didn't tell us about it 
said Ron grumpily. We're supposed to be your friends. I promised I wouldn't tell anyone, said Hermione severely. She looked around at Harry, who was watching Hogwarts disappear from view behind a mountain. Two whole months before he'd see it again. Oh, cheer up, Harry, said Hermione sadly. I'm okay, said Harry quickly, just thinking about the holidays. Yeah, I've been thinking about them too, said Ron. Harry, you've got to come and stay with us. I'll fix it up with Mum and Dad, and then I'll call you. I know how to use a felitone now. A telephone, Ron, said Hermione. Honestly, you should take Muggle studies next year. Ron ignored her. It's the Quidditch World Cup this summer. How about it, Harry? Come and stay, and we'll go and see it. Dad can usually get tickets from work. This proposal had the effect of cheering Harry up a great deal. Yeah, I bet the Dursleys would be pleased to let me come, especially after what I did to Aunt Marge. Feeling considerably more cheerful, Harry joined Ron and Hermione in several games of exploding snap, and when the witch with the teacart arrived, he bought himself a very large lunch, though nothing with chocolate in it. But it was late in the afternoon before the thing that made him truly happy turned up. Harry, said Hermione suddenly, peering over his shoulder. What's that thing outside your window? Harry turned to look outside. Something very small and grey was bobbing in and out of sight beyond the glass. He stood up for a better look and saw that it was a tiny owl, carrying a letter that was much too big for it. The owl was so small, in fact, that it kept tumbling over in the air, buffeted this way and that in the train's slipstream. Harry quickly pulled down the window, stretched out his arm, and caught it. It felt like a very fluffy snitch. He brought it carefully inside. The owl dropped its letter onto Harry's seat and began zooming around their compartment, apparently very pleased with itself for accomplishing its task. Hedwig clicked her beak with a sort of dignified disapproval. Crookshank sat up in his seat, following the owl with his great yellow eyes. Ron, noticing this, snatched the owl safely out of harm's way. Harry picked up the letter. It was addressed to him. He ripped open the letter and shouted, It's from Sirius! What? said Ron and Hermione excitedly. Read it aloud. Dear Harry, I hope this finds you before you reach your aunt and uncle. I don't know whether they're used to owl post. Buckbeak and I are in hiding. I won't tell you where, in case this owl falls into the wrong hands. I have some doubt about his reliability, but he is the best I could find, and he did seem eager for the job. I believe the Dementors are still searching for me, but they haven't a hope of finding me here. I am planning to allow some muggles to glimpse me soon, a long way from Hogwarts, so that the security on the castle will be lifted. There is something I never got around to telling you during our brief meeting. It was I who sent you the firebolt. Ha! said Hermione triumphantly. See? I told you it was from him! Yes, but he hadn't jinxed it, had he? said Ron. Ouch! The tiny owl, now hooting happily in his hand, had nibbled one of his fingers in what it seemed to think was an affectionate way. Crookshanks took the order to the owl office for me. I used your name but told them to take the gold from my own Gringotts vault. Please consider it as thirteen birthdays' worth of presents from your godfather. 
I would also like to apologize for the fright I think I gave you that night last year when you left your uncle's house. I had only hoped to get a glimpse of you before starting my journey north, but I think the sight of me alarmed you. I am enclosing something else for you which I think will make your next year at Hogwarts more enjoyable. If ever you need me, send word. Your owl will find me. I'll write again soon. Sirius. Harry looked eagerly inside the envelope. There was another piece of parchment in there. He read it through quickly and felt suddenly as warm and contented as though he'd swallowed a bottle of hot butter beer in one gulp. I, Sirius Black, Harry Potter's godfather, hereby give him permission to visit Hogsmeade on weekends. That'll be good enough for Dumbledore, said Harry happily. He looked back at Sirius's letter. Hang on, there's a P.S. I thought your friend Ron might like to keep this owl, as it's my fault he no longer has a rat. Ron's eyes widened. The minute owl was still hooting excitedly. Keep him, he said uncertainly. He looked closely at the owl for a moment. Then, to Harry's and Hermione's great surprise, he held him out for Crookshanks to sniff. What do you reckon? Ron asked the cat. Definitely an owl. Crookshanks purred. That's good enough for me, said Ron happily. He's mine. Harry read and reread the letter from Sirius all the way back into King's Cross Station. It was still clutched tightly in his hand as he, Ron, and Hermione stepped back through the barrier of Platform Nine and Three Quarters. Harry spotted Uncle Vernon at once. He was standing a good distance from Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, eyeing them suspiciously, and when Mrs. Weasley hugged Harry in greeting, his worst suspicions about them seemed confirmed. "'I'll call about the World Cup!' Ron yelled after Harry as Harry bid him and Hermione goodbye, then wheeled the trolley bearing his trunk and Hedwig's cage toward Uncle Vernon, who greeted him in his usual fashion. "'What's that?' He snarled, staring at the envelope Harry was still clutching in his hand. If it's another form for me to sign, you've got another... It's not, said Harry cheerfully. It's a letter from my godfather. Godfather? sputtered Uncle Vernon. You haven't got a godfather. Yes, I have, said Harry brightly. He was my mum and dad's best friend. He's a convicted murderer, but he's broken out of wizard prison and he's on the run. He likes to keep in touch with me, though. Keep up with my news. Check if I'm happy. And, grinning broadly at the look of horror on Uncle Vernon's face, Harry set off toward the station exit, Hedwig rattling along in front of him for what looked like a much better summer than the last. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban was read by Jim Dale. Text copyright J.K. Rowling, 1999. Recording copyright Listening Library, 1999. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Digitally remastered by Pottermore at Pinewood Studios in 2015. Pottermore is the digital entertainment, news and e-commerce company from J.K. Rowling, inspired by her Harry Potter books and the wider wizarding world. Pottermore is a place for Harry Potter fans to be entertained and discover more of the wizarding world they love through Pottermore.com experiences or products including Harry Potter ebooks, digital audiobooks and more.
Harry Potter characters, names and related indicia are trademarks and copyright of Warner Brothers Entertainment. The story continues. Find out what happens next in this preview of the digital audiobook Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling. Text copyright J.K. Rowling 2000. Recording copyright Listening Library 2000. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Chapter 1 The Riddle House The villagers of Little Haggleton still called it the Riddle House, even though it had been many years since the Riddle family had lived there. It stood on a hill overlooking the village, some of its windows boarded, tiles missing from its roof, and ivy spreading unchecked over its face. Once a fine-looking manor, and easily the largest and grandest building for miles around, the Riddle House was now damp, derelict, and unoccupied. The little Hangletons all agreed that the old house was creepy. Half a century ago, something strange and horrible had happened there, something that the older inhabitants of the village still liked to discuss when topics for gossip were scarce. The story had been picked over so many times and had been embroidered in so many places that nobody was quite sure what the truth was any more. Every version of the tale, however, started in the same place. Fifty years before, at daybreak on a fine summer's morning, when the Riddle House had still been well-kept and impressive, a maid had entered the drawing-room to find all three riddles dead. The maid had run screaming down the hill into the village and roused as many people as she could. "'Lying there with her eyes wide open, cold as ice, still in their dinner things!' The police were summoned, and the whole of Little Hangleton had seethed with shocked curiosity and ill-disguised excitement. Nobody wasted their breath pretending to feel very sad about the Riddles, for they had been most unpopular. Elderly Mr. and Mrs. Riddle had been rich, snobbish, and rude, and their grown-up son Tom had been, if anything, worse.' All the villagers cared about was the identity of their murderer, for plainly three apparently healthy people did not all drop dead of natural causes on the same night. The hanged man, the village pub, did a roaring trade that night. The whole village seemed to have turned out to discuss the murders. They were rewarded for leaving their firesides when the Riddle's cook arrived dramatically in their midst and announced to the suddenly silent pub that a man called Frank Bryce had just been arrested. "'Frank?' cried several people. "'Never!' Frank Bryce was the Riddle's gardener. He lived alone in a run-down cottage on the grounds of the Riddle House. Frank had come back from the war with a very stiff leg and a great dislike of crowds and loud noises, and had been working for the Riddle's ever since. There was a rush to buy the cook drinks and hear more details. "'Always thought he was odd!' She told the eagerly listening villagers after her fourth sherry. Unfriendly like. I'm sure if I've offered him a cup of once, I've offered it a hundred times. Never wanted to mix, he didn't. Ah, no, said a woman at the bar. He had a hard war, Frank. He likes the quiet life. That's no reason to... Who else had a key to the back door then? Barked the cook. There's been a spare key hanging in the gardener's cottage far back as I can remember. Nobody forced the door last night. No broken windows. All Frank had to do was creep up to the big house while we was all sleeping. The villagers exchanged dark looks. I always thought he had a nasty look about him, right enough, 
grunted a man at the bar. War turned him funny, if you ask me, said the landlord. Told you I wouldn't like to get on the wrong side of Frank, didn't I, Dot? said an excited woman in the corner. Horrible temper, said Dot, nodding fervently. I remember when he was a kid. By the following morning, hardly anyone in Little Hangleton doubted that Frank Bryce had killed the riddles. But over in the neighbouring town of Great Hangleton, in the dark and dingy police station, Frank was stubbornly repeating again and again that he was innocent, and that the only person he had seen near the house on the day of the riddle's deaths had been a teenage boy, a stranger, dark-haired and pale. Nobody else in the village had seen any such boy, and the police were quite sure that Frank had invented him. Then, just when things were looking very serious for Frank, the report on the riddle's bodies came back and changed everything. The police had never read an odder report. A team of doctors had examined the bodies and had concluded that none of the riddles had been poisoned, stabbed, shot, strangled, suffocated, or, as far as they could tell, harmed at all. In fact, the report continued in a tone of unmistakable bewilderment. The riddles all appeared to be in perfect health, apart from the fact that they were all dead. The doctors did note, as though determined to find something wrong with the bodies, that each of the riddles had a look of terror upon his or her face. But, as the frustrated police said, whoever heard of three people being frightened to death? As there was no proof that the riddles had been murdered at all, the police were forced to let Frank go. The riddles were buried in the little Hangleton churchyard, and their graves remained objects of curiosity for a while. To everyone's surprise, and amid a cloud of suspicion, Frank Bryce returned to his cottage on the grounds of the Riddle House. So far as I'm concerned, he killed them, and I don't care what the police say, said Dot in The Hanged Man. And if he had any decency, he'd leave here, knowing as how we knows he did it. But Frank did not leave. He stayed to tend the garden for the next family who lived in the Riddle House, and then the next, for neither family stayed long. Perhaps it was partly because of Frank that the new owners said there was a nasty feeling about the place, which, in the absence of inhabitants, started to fall into disrepair. The wealthy man who owned the Riddle House these days neither lived there nor put it to any use. They said in the village that he kept it for tax reasons, though nobody was very clear what these might be. The wealthy owner continued to pay Frank to do the gardening, however. Frank was nearing his seventy-seventh birthday now, very deaf, his bad legs stiffer than ever, but could be seen pottering around the flower beds in fine weather, even though the weeds were starting to creep up on him, try as he might to suppress them. Weeds were not the only things Frank had to contend with either. Boys from the village made a habit of throwing stones through the windows of the Riddle House. They rode their bicycles over the lawns Frank worked so hard to keep smooth. Once or twice they broke into the old house for a dare. They knew that old Frank's devotion to the house and grounds amounted almost to an obsession, and it amused them to see him limping across the garden, brandishing his stick and yelling croakily at them. Frank, for his part, believed the boys tormented him because they, like their parents and grandparents, thought him a murderer. So when Frank awoke one night in August and saw something very odd up at the old house, he merely assumed that the boys had gone one step further in their attempts to punish him. It was Frank's bad leg that woke him. It was paining him worse than ever in his old age. He got up and limped downstairs into the kitchen with the idea of refilling his hot water bottle to ease the stiffness in his knee. Standing at the sink, filling the kettle, 
He looked up at the Riddle House and saw lights glimmering in its upper windows. Frank knew at once what was going on. The boys had broken into the house again, and judging by the flickering quality of the light, they had started a fire. Frank had no telephone, and in any case he had deeply mistrusted the police ever since they had taken him in for questioning about the Riddle's deaths. He put down the kettle at once, hurried back upstairs as fast as his bad leg would allow, and was soon back in his kitchen, fully dressed and removing a rusty old key from its hook by the door. He picked up his walking stick, which was propped against the wall, and set off into the night. The front door of the Riddle House bore no sign of being forced, nor did any of the windows. Frank limped around to the back of the house until he reached a door almost completely hidden by ivy, took out the old key, put it into the lock, and opened the door noiselessly. He let himself into the cavernous kitchen. Frank had not entered it for many years. Nevertheless, although it was very dark, he remembered where the door into the hall was, and he groped his way toward it, his nostrils full of the smell of decay, ears pricked for any sound of footsteps or voices from overhead. He reached the hall, which was a little lighter owing to the large mullioned windows on either side of the front door, and started to climb the stairs, blessing the dust that lay thick upon the stone, because it muffled the sound of his feet and stick. On the landing, Frank turned right and saw at once where the intruders were. At the very end of the passage a door stood ajar, and a flickering light shone through the gap, casting a long sliver of gold across the black floor. Frank edged closer and closer, grasping his walking-stick firmly. Several feet from the entrance, he was able to see a narrow slice of the room beyond. The fire, he now saw, had been lit in the grate. This surprised him. Then he stopped moving and listened intently, for a man's voice spoke within the room. It sounded timid and fearful. "'There is a little more in the bottle, my lord, if you are still hungry.' "'Later!' said a second voice. This, too, belonged to a man, but it was strangely high-pitched and cold as a sudden blast of icy wind. Something about that voice made the sparse hairs on the back of Frank's neck stand up. "'Move me closer to the fire, Wormtail!' Frank turned his right ear toward the door, the better to hear. There came the clink of a bottle being put down upon some hard surface, and then the dull, scraping noise of a heavy chair being dragged across the floor. Frank caught a glimpse of a small man, his back to the door, pushing the chair into place. He was wearing a long black cloak, and there was a bald patch at the back of his head. Then he went out of sight again. "'Where is Nagini?' said the cold voice. "'I, I don't know, my lord.' said the first voice nervously. She set out to explore the house, I think. You will milk her before we retire, Wormtail, said the second voice. I will need feeding in the night. The journey has tired me greatly. Brow furrowed. Frank inclined his good ear still closer to the door, listening very hard. There was a pause, and then the man called Wormtail spoke again. My lord... "'May I ask how long we are going to stay here?' "'A week,' said the cold voice. "'Perhaps longer. The place is moderately comfortable, and the plan cannot proceed yet. It would be foolish to act before the Quidditch World Cup is over.' Frank inserted a gnarled finger into his ear and rotated it. Owing no doubt to a build-up of earwax, he had heard the word Quidditch, which was not a word at all. "'The... 
the Quidditch World Cup, my lord, said Wormtail. Frank dug his finger still more vigorously into his ear. Forgive me, but I do not understand. Why should we wait until the World Cup is over? Because, fool, at this very moment wizards are pouring into the country from all over the world, and every meddler from the Ministry of Magic will be on duty, on the watch for signs of unusual activity, checking and double-checking identities. They will be obsessed with security, lest the muggles notice anything. So we wait. Frank stopped trying to clear out his ear. He had distinctly heard the words Ministry of Magic, Wizards, and Muggles. Plainly, each of these expressions meant something secret, and Frank could think of only two sorts of people who would speak in code, spies and criminals. Frank tightened his hold on his walking stick once more and listened more closely still. "'Your lordship is still determined, then?' Wormtail said quietly. "'Certainly I am determined, Wormtail.' There was a note of menace in the cold voice now. A slight pause followed, and then Wormtail spoke, the words tumbling from him in a rush, as though he was forcing himself to say this before he lost his nerve. "'It could be done without Harry Potter, my lord.' Another pause, more protracted, and then— "'Without Harry Potter,' breathed the second voice softly. "'I see.' "'My lord, I do not say this out of concern for the boy,' said Wormtail, his voice rising squeakily. "'The boy is nothing to me, nothing at all. "'It is merely that if we were to use another witch or wizard, any wizard, "'the thing could be done so much more quickly. "'If you allowed me to leave you for a short while, "'you know that I can disguise myself most effectively. "'I could be back here in as little as two days with a suitable person.' "'I could use another wizard,' said the cold voice softly. "'That is true.' "'My lord, it makes sense,' said Wormtail, sounding thoroughly relieved now. "'Laying hands on Harry Potter would be so difficult. He is so well protected.' "'And so you volunteer to go and fetch me a substitute. I wonder. Perhaps the task of nursing me has become wearisome for you, Wormtail.' Could this suggestion of abandoning the plan be nothing more than an attempt to desert me? My lord, I I have no wish to leave you, none at all. Do not lie to me, hissed the second voice. I can always tell, Wormtail. You are regretting that you ever returned to me. I revolt you. I see you flinch when you look at me, feel you shudder when you touch me. No, my devotion to your lordship. Your devotion is nothing more than cowardice. You would not be here if you had anywhere else to go. How am I to survive without you when I need feeding every few hours? Who is to milk Nagini? But you seem so much stronger, my lord. "'Liar!' breathed the second voice. "'I am no stronger, and a few days alone would be enough to rob me of the little health I have regained under your clumsy care. Silence!' Wormtail, who had been sputtering incoherently, fell silent at once. For a few seconds Frank could hear nothing but the fire crackling. Then the second man spoke once more, in a whisper that was almost a hiss. 
I have my reasons for using the boy, as I have already explained to you, and I will use no other. I have waited thirteen years. A few more months will make no difference. As for the protection surrounding the boy, I believe my plan will be effective. All that is needed is a little courage from you, Wormtail. Courage you will find, unless you wish to feel the full extent of Lord Voldemort's wrath. My lord, I must speak. Said Wormtail, panic in his voice now. All through our journey, I have gone over the plan in my head. My lord, Bertha Jorkins's disappearance will not go unnoticed for long, and if we proceed, if I murder, if whispered the second voice, if if you follow the plan, Wormtail, the Ministry need never know that anyone else has died. You will do it quietly and without fuss. I only wish that I could do it myself, but in my present condition, come, Wormtail, one more death, and our path to Harry Potter is clear. I am not asking you to do it alone. By that time, my faithful servant will have rejoined us. I am a faithful servant," said Wormtail, the merest trace of sullenness in his voice. Wormtail, I need somebody with brains, somebody whose loyalty has never wavered, and you, unfortunately, fulfil neither requirement. I found you," said Wormtail, and there was definitely a sulky edge to his voice now. I was the one who found you. I brought you Bertha Jorkins. That is true," said the second man, sounding amused. A stroke of. Brilliance! I would not have thought possible from you, Wormtail. Though, if truth be told, you were not aware how useful she would be when you caught her, were you? I, I thought she might be useful, my lord. Liar! Said the second voice again, the cruel amusement more pronounced than ever. However, I do not deny that her information was invaluable. Without it, I could never have formed our plan, and for that you will have your reward, Wormtail. I will allow you to perform an essential task for me, one that many of my followers would give their right hands to perform. Really, my lord? What? Wormtail sounded terrified again. Ah, Wormtail, you don't want me to spoil the surprise. Your part will come at the very end, but I promise you, you will have the honour of being just as useful as Bertha Jorkins. You, you, Wormtail's voice suddenly sounded hoarse, as though his mouth had gone very dry. You are going to kill me too. Wormtail, Wormtail," said the cold voice silkily. "Why would I kill you? I killed Bertha because I had to. She was fit for nothing after my questioning. Quite useless. In any case, awkward questions would have been asked if she had gone back to the Ministry with the news that she had met you on her holidays. Wizards who are supposed to be dead would do well not to run into Ministry of Magic witches at wayside inns. Wormtail muttered something so quietly that Frank could not hear it, but it made the second man laugh—an entirely mirthless laugh, cold as his speech. 
We could have modified her memory, but memory charms can be broken by a powerful wizard, as I proved when I questioned her. It would be an insult to her memory not to use the information I extracted from her worm tail. Out in the corridor, Frank suddenly became aware that the hand gripping his walking stick was slippery with sweat. The man with the cold voice had killed a woman. He was talking about it without any kind of remorse, with amusement. He was dangerous, a madman, and he was planning more murders. This boy, Harry Potter, whoever he was, was in danger. Frank knew what he must do. Now, if ever, was the time to go to the police. He would creep out of the house and head straight for the telephone box in the village. But the cold voice was speaking again, and Frank remained where he was, frozen to the spot, listening with all his might. One more murder, my faithful servant at Hogwarts. Harry Potter is as good as mine, Wormtail. It is decided there will be no more argument. But quiet. I think I hear Nagini and the second man's voice changed. He started making noises such as Frank had never heard before. He was hissing and spitting without drawing breath. Frank thought he must be having some sort of fit or seizure. And then Frank heard movement behind him in the dark passageway. He turned to look and found himself paralyzed with fright. Something was slithering toward him along the dark corridor floor. And as it drew nearer to the sliver of firelight, he realized with a thrill of terror that it was a gigantic snake, at least twelve feet long. Horrified, transfixed, Frank stared as its undulating body cut a wide, curving track through the thick dust on the floor, coming closer and closer. What was he to do? The only means of escape was into the room where two men sat plotting murder. Yet, if he stayed where he was, the snake would surely kill him. But before he had made his decision, the snake was level with him, and then, incredibly, miraculously, it was passing. It was following the spitting, hissing noises made by the cold voice beyond the door, and, in seconds, the tip of its diamond-patterned tail had vanished through the gap. There was sweat on Frank's forehead now, and the hand on the walking stick was trembling. Inside the room, the cold voice was continuing to hiss— and Frank was visited by a strange idea, an impossible idea. This man could talk to snakes. Frank didn't understand what was going on. He wanted more than anything to be back in his bed with his hot water bottle. The problem was that his legs didn't seem to want to move. As he stood there shaking and trying to master himself, the cold voice switched abruptly to English again. "'Nagini has interesting news, Wormtail,' it said. In "'Indeed, my lord,' said Wormtail. "'Indeed, yes,' said the voice. "'According to Nagini, there is an old muggle standing right outside this room, "'listening to every word we say.' Frank didn't have a chance to hide himself. There were footsteps, and then the door of the room was flung wide open. A short, balding man with graying hair, a pointed nose, and small, watery eyes stood before Frank, a mixture of fear and alarm in his face. "'Invite him inside, Wormtail. Where are your manners?' The cold voice was coming from the ancient armchair before the fire, but Frank couldn't see the speaker— 
The snake, on the other hand, was curled up on the rotting hearth-rug, like some horrible travesty of a pet dog. Wormtail beckoned Frank into the room. Though still deeply shaken, Frank took a firmer grip upon his walking-stick and limped over the threshold. The fire was the only source of light in the room. It cast long, spidery shadows upon the walls. Frank stared at the back of the armchair. The man inside it seemed to be even smaller than his servant, for Frank couldn't even see the back of his head. "'You heard everything, muggle,' said the cold voice. "'What's that you're calling me?' said Frank defiantly, for now he was inside the room. Now that the time had come for some sort of action, he felt braver. It had always been so in the war. "'I am calling you a muggle.' said the voice coolly. It means that you are not a wizard. I don't know what you mean by wizard, said Frank, his voice growing steadier. All I know is I've heard enough to interest the police tonight, I have. You've done murder, and you're planning more, and I'll tell you this too, he added on a sudden inspiration. My wife knows I'm up here, and if I don't come back, you have no wife said the cold voice, very quietly. Nobody knows you are here. You told nobody that you were coming. Do not lie to Lord Voldemort, Muggle, for he knows. He always knows. Is that right? said Frank, roughly. Lord, is it? Well, I don't think much of your manners, my lord. Turn round and face me like a man. Why don't you? But I am not a man, Muggle said the cold voice, barely audible now over the crackling of the flames. I am much, much more than a man. However, why not? I will face you. Wormtail, come turn my chair round. The servant gave a whimper. You heard me, Wormtail. Slowly, with his face screwed up as though he would rather have done anything than approach his master and the hearth-rug where the snake lay, the small man walked forward and began to turn the chair. The snake lifted its ugly triangular head and hissed slightly as the legs of the chair snagged on its rug. And then the chair was facing Frank, and he saw what was sitting in it. His walking stick fell to the floor with a clatter. He opened his mouth and let out a scream. He was screaming so loudly that he never heard the words the thing in the chair spoke as it raised a wand. There was a flash of green light, a rushing sound, and Frank Bryce crumpled. He was dead before he hit the floor. Two hundred miles away, the boy called Harry Potter woke with a start. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.